Tyrion. They supped alone, as they did so often. The peas are overcooked, his wife ventured once. No matter, he said. So is the mutton. It was a jest, but Sansa took it for criticism. I'm sorry, my lord. Why? Some cook should be sorry, not you. The peas are not your province, Sansa. I... I am sorry that my lord, husband, is displeased. Any displeasure I'm feeling has naught to do with peas. I have Joffrey and my sister to displease me, and my lord father, and three hundred bloody Dornishmen. He had settled Prince Oberon and his lords in a corner fort facing the city, as far from the Tyrells as he could put them, without evicting them from the Red Keep entirely. It was not nearly far enough. Already there had been a brawl in a flea-bottomed pot-shop that left one Tyrell man-at-arms dead, and two of Lord Gargalen scalded, and an ugly confrontation in the yard, when Mace Tyrell's wizened little mother called Elaria Sand the serpent's whore. Every time he chanced to see Ober and Martell, the prince asked when the justice would be served. Overcooked peas were the least of Tyrion's troubles, but he saw no point in burdening his young wife with any of that. Sansa had enough griefs of her own. The peace of face, he told her curtly, they are green and round. What more can one expect of peas? Here I'll have another serving, if it please my lady. He beckoned, and Podrick Payne spooned so many peas onto his plate that Tyrion lost sight of his mutton. That was stupid, he told himself. Now I have to eat them all, or she'll be sorry all over again. The supper ended in a strained silence, as so many of their suppers did. Afterward, as Pod was removing the cups and platters, Sansa asked Tyrion for leave to visit the godswood. As you wish. He had become accustomed to his wife's nightly devotions. She prayed at the royal sept as well, and often lit candles to mother, maid, and crone. Tyrion found all this piety excessive, if truth be told, but in her place he might want the help of the gods as well. "'I confess I know little of the old gods,' he said, trying to be pleasant. "'Perhaps some day you might enlighten me. I could even accompany you.' "'No,' Sansa said at once. "'You—you are kind to offer, but there are no devotions, my lord. No priests or songs or candles, only trees and silent prayer. You would be bored. No doubt you're right.' She knows me better than I thought, though the sound of rustling leaves might be a pleasant change from some septon droning on about the seven aspects of grace. Tyrion waved her off. I, I won't intrude. Dress warmly, my lady. The wind is brisk out there. He was tempted to ask what she prayed for, but Sansa was so dutiful she might actually tell him, and he didn't think he wanted to know. He went back to work after she'd left, trying to track some golden dragons through the labyrinth of Littlefinger's ledgers. But Tyre Baelish had not believed in letting gold sit about and grow dusty, that was for certain, but the more Tyrion tried to make sense of his accounts, the more his head hurt. It was all very well to talk of breeding dragons instead of locking them up in the treasury, but some of these ventures smell worse than weak old fish. I wouldn't have been so quick to let Joffrey fling the antler men over the walls if I'd known how many of the bloody bastards had taken loans from the crown. 
he would have to send Bronn to find their heirs. But he feared that would prove as fruitful as trying to squeeze silver from a silverfish. When the summons from his lord father arrived, it was the first time Tyrion could ever recall being pleased to see Sir Boris Blunt. He closed the ledgers gratefully, blew out the oil lamp, tied a cloak around his shoulders, and waddled across the castle to the Tower of the Hand. The wind was brisk, just as it warned Sansa, and there was a smell of rain in the air. Perhaps when Lord Tywin was done with him, he should go to the guard's wood and fetch her home before she got soaked. But all that went straight out of his head when he entered the Hand Solar to find Cersei, Sir Kevin, and Grand Maester Pycelle gathered about Lord Tywin and the King. Joffrey was almost bouncing, and Cersei was savouring a smug little smile, though Lord Tywin looked as grim as ever. I wonder if he could smile even if he wanted to. What's happened? Tyrion asked. His father offered him a roll of parchment. Someone had flattened it, but it still wanted a curl. Rosalind caught a fine fat trout, the message read. Her brothers gave her a pair of wolf pelts for her wedding. Tyrion turned it over to inspect the broken seal. The wax was silvery grey, and pressed into it were the twin towers of House Frey. Does the Lord of the Crossing imagine he's being poetic, or is this meant to confound us? Tyrion snorted. The trout would be Edmure Tully. The pelts... He's dead! Joffrey sounded so proud and happy you might have thought he'd skin Rob Stark himself. First Greyjoy... And now Stark. Tyrion thought of his child wife praying in the gods' wood even now, praying to her father's gods to bring her brother victory and keep her mother safe, no doubt. The old gods paid no more heed to prayer than the new ones, it would seem. Perhaps he should take comfort in that. Kings are falling like leaves this autumn, he said. It will seem our little war is winning itself. Wars do not win themselves, Tyrion. Cersei said with poisonous sweetness. Our Lord Father won this war. Nothing is won, so long as we have enemies in the field, Lord Tywin warned them. The river lords are no fools, the Queen argued. Without the Northmen, they cannot hope to stand against the combined power of Highgarden, Castle Rock, and Dawn. Surely they will choose submission rather than destruction. Most, agreed Lord Tywin. River Ron remains, but so long as Walder Frey holds Edmure Tully hostage, the Blackfish dare not mount a threat. Jason Malister and Titus Blackwood will fight on for honor's sake, but the Freys can keep the Malisters penned up as he got, and with the right inducement, Jonas Brecken can be persuaded to change his allegiance and attack the Blackwoods. In the end, they will bend the knee, yes. I mean to offer generous terms. Any castle that yields to us will be spared, save one. Harrenhal, said Tyrion, who knew his sire, the realm is best rid of these brave companions. I have commanded Sir Gregor to put the castle to the sword. Gregor Clegane. It appeared as if his lord father meant to mine the mountain for every last nugget of ore before turning him over to Dornish justice. 
the brave companions would end as heads on spikes, and Littlefinger would stroll into Harrenhal without so much as a spot of blood on those fine clothes of his. He wondered if Patar Baelish had reached the Vale yet. If the guards are good, he ran into a storm at sea and sank. But when had the guards ever been especially good? They should all be put to the sword, Joffrey declared suddenly. The Malisters and Blackwoods and Brackens, all of them. They're traitors. I want them killed, Grandfather. I won't have any generous terms. The king turned to Grand Maester Bysel, and I want Rob Stark's head, too. Write to Lord Frey and tell him. The king commands. I'm going to have it served to Sansa at my wedding feast. Sire, Sir Kevin said in a shocked voice, the lady is now your aunt by marriage. A jest, Cersei smiled. Joff did not mean it. Yes, I did, Joffrey insisted. He was a traitor, and I want his stupid head. I'm going to make Sansa kiss it. No. Tyrion's voice was hoarse. Sansa is no longer yours to torment. Understand that, monster. Joffrey sneered. You're the monster, uncle. Am I? Tyrion cocked his head. Perhaps you should speak more softly to me, then. Monsters are dangerous beasts, and just now kings seem to be dying like flies. I could have your tongue out for saying that, the boy king said, reddening. I'm the king. Cersei put a protective hand on her son's shoulder. Let the dwarf make all the threats he likes, Joff. I want my lord father and my uncle to see what he is. Lord Tywin ignored that. It was Joff he addressed. Aris also felt the need to remind men uh, that he was king, and he was passing fond of ripping tongues out as well. You could ask Sir Ilian Payne about that. No, you'll get no reply. Sir Ilian never dared provoke Ares the way your imp provokes Joff, said Cersei. You heard him. Monster, he said, to the king's grace, and he threatened him. Be quiet, Cersei. Joffrey, when your enemies defy you, you must serve them steel and fire. When they go to their knees, however, you must help them back to their feet. Elsewise, no man will ever bend the knee to you. And any man who must say, I am the king, is no true king at all. Ares never understood that, but you will. When I've won your war for you, we will restore the king's peace and the king's justice. The only head that need concern you is Marjorie Tyrell's maiden head. Joffrey had that sullen, sulky look he got. Cersei had him firmly by the shoulder, but perhaps she should have had him by the throat. The boy surprised them all. Instead of scuttling safely back under his rock, Joffrey drew himself up defiantly and said, You talk about Ares, grandfather, but you were scared of him. Oh my, hasn't this gotten interesting, Tyrion thought. Lord Tywin studied his grandchild in silence, gold flecks shining in his pale green eyes. Joffrey, apologize to your grandfather, said Cersei. He wrenched free of her. Why should I? Everyone knows it's true. My father won all the battles. He killed Prince Rhaegar and took the crown, while your father was hiding under Castle Rock. The boy gave his grandfather a defiant look. 
a strong king acts boldly. He doesn't just talk. Thank you for that wisdom, your grace, Lord Tywin said, with a courtesy so cold it was like to freeze their ears off. Thank heaven. I can see the king is tired. Please see him safely back to his bedchamber. Pycelle, perhaps some gentle potion to help his grace sleep restfully. Dream wine, my lord? I don't want any dream wine, Joffrey insisted. Lord Tywin would have paid more heed to a mouse squeaking in the corner. A dream wine will serve. Cersei, Tyrion, remain. Sir Kevin took Joffrey firmly by the arm and marched him out of the door where two of the king's guard were waiting. Grand Maester Pycelle scurried after them as fast as his shaky old legs could take him. Tyrion remained where he was. Father, I'm sorry, Cersei said when the door was shut. Joff has always been willful. I did warn you. There is a long league's worth of difference between willful and stupid. A strong king acts boldly. <laughs> Who told him that? Not me, I promise you, said Cersei. Most like it was something he heard Robert say. The part about you hiding under Castley Rock does sound like Robert. Tyrion didn't want Lord Tywin forgetting that bit. Yes, I recall now, Cersei said. Robert often told Joff that a king must be bold. And what were you telling him, pray? I did not fight a war to seat Robert II on the Iron Throne. You gave me to understand the boy cared nothing for his father. Why would he? Robert ignored him. He would have beat him if I'd allowed it. That brute you made me marry once hit the boy so hard he knocked out two of his baby teeth over some mischief with a cat. I told him I'd kill him in his sleep if he ever did it again, and he never did. But sometimes he would say things, it appears, things needed to be said. Lord Tywin waved two fingers at her, a brusque dismissal. Go! She went, seething. Not Robert the Second, Tyrion said. Ares the Third. The boy is thirteen. There is time yet. Lord Tywin paced to the window. That was unlike him. He was more upset than he wished to show. He requires a sharp lesson. Tyrion had gotten his own sharp lesson at thirteen. He felt almost sorry for his nephew. On the other hand, no one deserved it more. Enough of Joffrey, he said. Wars are worn with quills and ravens. Wasn't that what you said? I must congratulate you. How long have you and Walder Frey been plotting this? I mislike that word, Lord Tywin said stiffly. And I mislike being left in the dark. There was no reason to tell you. You had no part in this. Was Cersei told? Tyrion demanded to know. No one was told, save those who had a part to play, and they were only told as much as they needed to know. You ought to know that there is no other way to keep a secret, here especially. My object was to rid us of a dangerous enemy as cheaply as I could, not to indulge your curiosity or make your sister feel important. He closed the shutters, frowning. You have a certain cunning, Tyrion, but the plain truth is you talk too much. That loose tongue of yours will be your undoing. You should have let Joff tear it out. 
suggested Tyrion. You would do well not to tempt me, Lord Tywin said. I'll hear no more of it. I have been considering how best to appease Oberon Martell and his entourage. Oh, is there something I'm allowed to know, or should I leave so you can discuss it with yourself? His father ignored the sally. Prince Oberon's presence here he is unfortunate. His brother is a cautious man, a reasoned man, subtle, deliberate, even indolent to a degree. He is a man who weighs the consequences of every word and every action. But Oberon has always been half mad. Is it true he tried to raise Dawn for Viserys? No one speaks of it, but yes. Ravens flew, and riders rode. With what secret messages I never knew. John Aaron sailed to Sonspear to return Prince Lewin's bones, sat down with Prince Doran, and ended all the talk of war. But Robert never went to dawn thereafter, and Prince Oberon seldom left it. Well, he's here now, with half the nobility of Dawn in his tail, and he grows more impatient every day, said Tyrion. Perhaps I should show him the brothels of King's Landing that might distract him. A tool for every task, isn't that how it works? My tool is yours, father. Never let it be said that House Lannister blew its trumpets and I did not respond. Lord Tywin's mouth tightened. Very droll. Oh, shall I have them sew you a suit of motley and a little hat with bells on it? If I wear it, do I have leave to say anything I want about His Grace King Joffrey? Lord Tywin seated himself again and said, I was made to suffer my father's follies. I will not suffer yours. Enough. Very well, as you are so pleasantly. The Red Viper is not going to be pleasant, I fear. Nor will he content himself with Sir Gregor's head alone. All the more reason not to give it to him. Not to... Tyrion was shocked. I thought we were agreed that the woods were full of beasts. Lesser beasts. Lord Tywin's fingers laced together under his chin. Sir Gregor has served us well. No other knight in the realm inspire such terror in our enemies. Oberon knows that Gregor was the one who... He knows nothing. He has heard tales, stable gossip, and kitchen calumnies. He has no crumb of proof. Sigurgor is certainly not about to confess to him. I mean to keep him well away for so long as the Dornishmen are in King's Landing. And when Oberon demands the justice he's come for, I will tell him that Sir Amory Lorch killed Elia and her children, Lord Tywin said calmly. So will you, if he asks. Sir Amory Lorch is dead, Tyrion said flatly. Precisely. Vargo hoped at Sir Amory torn apart by a bear after the fall of Harrenhal. That ought to be sufficiently grisly to appease even Oberon Martell. You may call that justice. It is justice. It was Sir Amory who brought me the girl's body, if you must know. He found her hiding under her father's bed, as if she believed Rhaegar could still protect her. Princess Elia and the babe were in the nursery a floor below. Well, it's a tale, 
and Sir Amory is not like to deny it. What will you tell Oberon when he asks who gave Lorch his orders? Sir Amory acted on his own in the hope of winning favour from the new king. Robert's hatred for Rhaegar was scarcely a secret. It might serve, Tyrion had to concede, but the snake will not be happy. Far be it from me to question your cunning, father, but in your place I do believe I'd have let Robert Baratheon bloody his own hands. Lord Tywin stared at him as if he'd lost his wits. You deserve that motley, then. We had come late to Robert's cause. It was necessary to demonstrate our loyalty. When I laid those bodies before the throne, no man could doubt that we had forsaken House Targaryen forever, and Robert's relief was palpable. As stupid as he was, even he knew that Rhaegar's children had to die if his throne was ever to be secure. Yet he saw himself as a hero, and heroes do not kill children. His father shrugged. I grant you, it was done too brutally. Ilya need not have been harmed at all. That was sheer folly. By herself, yes, she was nothing. Then why did the mountain kill her? Because I did not tell him to spare her. I doubt I, I mentioned her at all. I had more pressing concerns. Ned Stark's van was rushing south from the Trident, and I feared it might come to swords between us. And it was in Ares to murder Jamie, with no more cause than spite. That was the thing I feared most, that and what Jamie himself might do. He closed a fist. Nor did I yet grasp what I had in Gregor Clegane only that he was huge and terrible in battle. The rape! Even you will not accuse me of giving that command, I would hope. Sir Amory was almost as bestial with Rhaenys. I asked him afterwards why it had required half a hundred thrusts to kill a girl of two, three. He said she'd kicked him and would not stop screaming. If Lorch had half the witch... The guards gave a turnip. He would have calmed her with a few sweet words and used a soft silk pillow. His mouth twisted in distaste. The blood was in him. But not in you, father. There's no blood in Tywin Lannister. Was it a soft silk pillow that slew Rob Stark? It was to be an arrow at Edmure Tully's wedding feast. The boy was too wary in the field. He kept his men in good order and surrounded himself with outriders and bodyguards. So Lord Walder slew him under his own roof, at his own table. Tyrion made a fist. What of Lady Catelyn? Slain as well, I'd say. A pair of wolfskins. Frey had intended to keep her captive, but uh, perhaps something went awry. So much for guest right. The blood is on Walder Frey's hands, and not mine. Walder Frey is a peevish old man who lives to fondle his young wife and brood over all the slights he suffered. I have no doubt he hatched this ugly chicken, but he would never have dared such a thing without a promise of protection. I suppose you would have spared the boy and told Lord Frey 
You had no need of his allegiance. <laughs> that would have driven the old fool right back into Stark's arms and won you another year of war. Explain to me why it is more noble to kill ten thousand men in battle than a dozen at dinner. When Tyrion had no reply to that, his father continued, The price was cheap by any measure. Uh, the crown shall grant river run to Sir Eamon Frey once the blackfish yields. Lancel and Devon must marry Frey girls. Joy is to wed one of Lord Walder's natural sons when she's old enough, and Roose Bolton becomes warden of the north and takes home Arya Stark. Arya Stark? Tyrion cocked his head. And Bolton? I might have known Frey would not have the stomach to act alone, but Arya. Varys and Sir Jaslyn search for her for more than half a year. Arya Stark is surely dead. So was Renly, until the Blackwater. What does that mean? Uh, perhaps Littlefinger succeeded where you and Varys failed. Lord Bolton will wed the girl to his bastard son. We shall allow the Dreadfort to fight the Ironborn for a few years, and see if he can bring Stark's other bannermen to heel. Come spring, all of them should be at the end of their strength, and ready to bend the knee. The North will go to your son by Sansa Stark, if you ever find enough manhood in you to, to breed one. Lest you forget, it is not only Joffrey who must needs take a maidenhead. I had not forgotten, though I'd hoped you had. And when do you imagine Sansa will be at her most fertile? Tyrion asked his father in tones that dripped acid. Before or after I tell her how we murdered her mother and her brother? Davos for a moment it seemed as though the king had not heard. Stannis showed no pleasure at the news, no anger, no disbelief, not even relief. He stared at his painted table with teeth clenched hard. "'You are certain?' he asked. "'I am not seeing the body, no, your kingliness,' said Salador San. "'Yet in the city the lions prance and dance, the red wedding, the small folk are calling it, they swear Lord Frey had the boy's head hacked off, sewed the head of his direwolf in its place, and nailed a crown about his ears. His lady mother was slain as well, and thrown naked in the river. At a wedding, thought Davis, as he sat at his slayer's board, a guest beneath his roof. These Freys are cursed. He could smell the burning blood again, and hear the leech hissing and spitting on the brazier's hot coals. "'It was the Lord's wrath that slew him,' Sir Axel Florent declared. "'It was the hand of Relor. "'Praise the Lord of Light,' sang out Queen Selice, a pinched, thin, hard woman with large ears and a hairy upper lip. "'Is the hand of Relor spotted and palsied?' asked Stannis. "'This sounds more Waldo Frey's handiwork than any god's.' Relor chooses such instruments as he requires. The ruby at Melisande's throat shone redly. His ways are mysterious, yet no man may withstand his fiery will. No man can withstand him, the queen cried. 
Be quiet, woman. You're not at a night fire now. Stannis considered the painted table. The wolf leaves no heirs. The kraken too many. The lions will devour them unless... Son, I will require your fastest ships to carry envoys to the Iron Islands and White Harbour. I shall offer... Bardens. The way he snapped his teeth showed how little he liked that word. Full pardons for all those who repent of treason and swear fealty to their rightful king. They must see... They will not. Melisande's voice was soft. I am sorry, Your Grace. This is not an end. More false kings will soon rise to take up the crowns of those who've died. More? Stannis looked as though he would gladly have throttled her. More usurpers? More traitors? I have seen it in the flames. Queen Selyse went to the king's side. The Lord of Light sent Melisande to guide you to your glory. Heed her, I beg you. Relore's holy flames do not lie. There are lies and lies, woman. Even when the flames speak truly, they are full of tricks, it seems to me. An ant who hears the words of a king may not comprehend what he is saying. Melisande said, and all men are ants before the fiery face of God. If sometimes I have mistaken a warning for a prophecy, or a prophecy for a warning, the fault lies in the reader, not the book. But this I know for a certainty. Envoys and pardons will not serve you now, no more than leeches. You must show the realm a sign, a sign that proves your power. Power? Yeah. <laughs> The king snorted. I have thirteen hundred men on Dragonstone, another three hundred at Storm's End. His hand swept over the painted table. The rest of Westeros is in the hands of my foes. I have no fleet but Salador Sands, no coin to hire sellswords, no prospect of plunder or glory to lure free riders to my cause. Lord Husband, said Queen Selyse, you have more men than Aegon did three hundred years ago. All you lack are dragons. The look Stannis gave her was dark. Nine mages crossed the sea to hatch Aegon Third's cache of eggs. Baelor the Blessed prayed over his for half a year. Aegon Fourth built dragons of wood and iron. Arian Brightflame drank wildfire to transform himself. The mages failed. King Baelor's prayers went unanswered. The wooden dragons burned and Prince Arian died screaming. Queen Selyse was adamant. None of these was the chosen of Relore. No red comet blazed across the heavens to herald their coming. None wielded Lightbringer, the red sword of heroes, and none of them paid the price. Nadia Melisande will tell you, my lord, only death can pay for life. The boy! The king almost spat the words. The boy! agreed the queen. The boy, Sir Axel echoed. I was sick unto death of this wretched boy before he was even born, the king complained. His very name is a roaring in my ears and a dark cloud upon my soul. Give the boy to me, and you need never hear his name spoken again, Medicine promised. No, but you'll hear him screaming when she burns him. Davis held his tongue. It was wiser not to speak until the king commanded it. Give me the boy for a law, the red woman said, and the ancient prophecy shall be fulfilled. 
your dragon shall awaken and spread his stony wings. The kingdom shall be yours. Sir Axel went to one knee. Unbended knee, I beg you, sire. Wake the stone dragon and let the traitors tremble. Like Aegon, you begin as lord of Dragonstone. Like Aegon, you shall conquer. Let the false and the fickle feel your flames. Your own wife begs as well, lord husband. Queen Selyse went down on both knees before the king, hands clasped as if in prayer. Robert and Delina defiled our bed and laid a curse upon our union. This boy is the foul fruit of their fornications. Lift his shadow from my womb, and I will bear you many true-born sons, I know it. She threw her arms around his legs. He is only one boy born of your brother's lust and my cousin's shame. He is mine own blood. Stop clutching me, woman. King Stannis put a hand on her shoulder, awkwardly untangling himself from her grasp. Perhaps Robert did curse our marriage bed. He swore to me that he never meant to shame me, that he was drunk, and never knew which bedchamber he entered that night. But does it matter? The boy was not at fault, whatever the truth. Melisande put a hand on the king's arm. The Lord of Light cherishes the innocent. There's no sacrifice more precious. From his king's blood and his untainted fire, a dragon shall be born. Stannis did not pull away from Melisande's touch, as he had from his queen's. The red woman was all Solice was not, young, full-bodied, and strangely beautiful, with a heart-shaped face, coppery hair, and unearthly red eyes. It would be a wondrous thing to see stone come to life, he admitted grudgingly, and to mount a dragon. <laughs> I remember the first time my father took me to court. Robert had to hold my hand. I could not have been older than four, which would have made him five or six. We agreed afterward that the king had been as noble as the dragons were fearsome. Stannis snorted. <laughs> Years later, our father told us that Ares had cut himself on the throne that morning, so his hand had taken his place. It was Tywin Lannister who'd so impressed us. His fingers touched the surface of the table, tracing a path lightly across the varnished hills. Robert took the skulls down when he'd done the crown, but he could not bear to have them destroyed. Dragon wings over Westeros. <laughs> there would be such a... Your Grace, Davis edged forward, might I speak? Stannis closed his mouth so hard his teeth snapped. My lord of the Rainwood, why do you think I made your hand if not to speak? The king waved a hand. Say what you will. Warrior, make me brave. I know little of dragons and less of gods, but the queen spoke of curses. No man is as cursed as a kinslayer in the eyes of gods and men. There are no gods save law, and the other whose name must not be spoken. Medicine's mouth made a hard red line, and small men curse what they cannot understand. I am a small man, Davis admitted, so tell me why you need this boy, Edric Storm, to wait your great stone dragon, my lady. He was determined to say the boy's name as often as he could. Only death can pay for life, my lord. A great gift requires a great sacrifice. Where is the greatness in a base-born child? 
He has King's blood in his veins. You have seen what even a little of that blood could do. I saw you burn some leeches, and two false kings are dead. Rob Stark was murdered by Lord Walder of the Crossing, and we have heard that Balon Greyjoy fell from a bridge. Who did your leeches kill? Do you doubt the power of the law? No. Davis remembered too well the living shadow that had squirmed from out of her womb, that night beneath Storm's End, its black hands pressing at her thighs. I must go carefully here, or some shadow may come seeking me as well. Even an onion smuggler knows two onions from three. You are short a king, my lady. Stannis gave a snort of laughter. He has you there, my lady. Two is not three. To be sure, your grace, one king might die by chance, even two. But three? If Joffrey should die, in the midst of all his power, surrounded by his armies and king's guard, would not that show the power of the Lord at work? It might. The king spoke as if he grudged every word. Or not. Davis did his best to hide his fear. Joffrey shall die, Queen Celise declared, serene in her confidence. It may be that he's dead already, Sir Axel added. Stannis looked at them with annoyance. Are you trained crows to croak at me in turns? Enough. Husband, hear me, the queen entreated. Why? Two is not three. Kings can count as well as smugglers. You may go. Stannis turned his back on them. Melisande helped the queen to her feet. Selyse swept stiffly from the chamber, the red woman trailing behind. Sir Axel lingered long enough to give Davis one last look. An ugly look and an ugly face, he thought as he met the stare. After the others had gone, Davis cleared his throat. The king looked up. Why are you still here? Sire, about Edric Storm. Stannis made a sharp gesture. Spare me, Davis persisted. Your daughter takes her lessons with him, and plays with him every day in Aegon's garden. I know that. Her heart would break if anything ill should. I know that as well. If you would only see him. I have seen him. He looks like Robert. Aye, and worships him. Shall I tell him how often his beloved father ever gave him a thought? My brother liked the making of children well enough, but after birth they were a bother. He asks after you every day. He— You're making me angry, Davis. I will hear no more of this bastard boy. His name is Edric Storm, sire. I know his name. Was there ever a name so apt? It proclaims his bastardy, his high birth, and the turmoil he brings with him. Edric Storm. There, I've said it. Are you satisfied, my lord hand? Edric, he started, is one boy. He may be the best boy who ever drew breath, and it would not matter. My duty is to the realm. His hand swept across the painted table. How many boys dwell in Westeros? How many girls? How many men? How many women? The darkness will devour them all, she says. The night that never ends. She talks of prophecies. A hero reborn in the sea, living dragons hatched from dead stone. She speaks of signs, and swears they point at me. I never asked for this. 
no more than I asked to be king. Yet dare I disregard her? He ground his teeth. We do not choose our destinies, yet we must... We must do our duty. No? Great or small, we must do our duty. Medicine swears that she has seen me in her flames, facing the dark, with Lightbringer raised on high. Lightbringer! Stannis gave a derisive snort. Che! It glimmers prettily, I'll grant you, but on the Blackwater this magic sword served me no better than any common steel. A dragon would have turned that battle. Aegon once stood here, as I do, looking down on this table. Do you think we would name him Aegon the Conqueror today, if he had not had dragons? Your grace, said Davos, the cost. I know the cost. Last night, gazing into that hearth, I saw things in the flames as well. I saw a king, a crown of fire on his brows, burning, burning, Davos. His own crown consumed his flesh and turned him into ash. Do you think I need Melisande to tell me what that means? Or you? The king moved so his shadow fell upon King's Landing. If Joffrey should die... What is the life of one bastard boy against a kingdom? Everything, said Davos softly. Stannis looked at him, jaw clenched. Go, the king said at last, before you talk yourself back into the dungeon. Sometimes the storm winds blow so strong, a man has no choice but to furl his sails. Aye, your grace. Davos bowed, but Stannis had seemingly forgotten him already. It was chilly in the yard when he left the stone drum. A wind blew briskly from the east, making the banner snap and flap noisily along the walls. Davis could smell salt in the air. The sea. He loved that smell. It made him want to walk a deck again, to raise his canvas and sail off south to Maria and his two small ones. He thought of them most every day now, and even more at night. Part of him wanted nothing so much as to take Devon and go home. I cannot. Not yet. I am a lord now, and the king's hand. I must not fail him. He raised his eyes to gaze up at the walls. In place of Merlins, a thousand grotesques and gargoyles looked down on him, each different from all the others. Wyverns, griffins, demons, manticores, minotaurs, basilisks, hellhounds, cockatrices, and a thousand queerer creatures sprouted from the castle's battlements as if they'd grown there. And the dragons were everywhere. The great hall was a dragon lying on its belly. Men entered through its open mouth. The kitchens were a dragon curled up in a ball, with the smoke and steam of the ovens vented through its nostrils. The towers were dragons hunched above the walls, or poised for flight. The windworms seemed to scream defiance while Sea Dragon Tower gazed serenely out across the waves. Smaller dragons framed the gates. Dragon claws emerged from walls to grasp at torches. Great stone wings enfolded the smith and armory, and tails formed arches, bridges, and exterior stairs. Davis had often heard it said that the wizards of Valeria did not cut and chisel, as common masons did, but work stone with fire and magic as a potter might work clay. But now he wondered. 
What if they were real dragons, somehow turned to stone? If the Red Woman brings them to life, the castle will come crashing down, I'm thinking. What kind of dragons are full of rooms and stairs and furniture and windows and chimneys and privy shafts? Davis turned to find Salador San beside him. Does this mean you have forgiven my treachery, Salar? The old pirate wagged a finger at him. Forgiving, yes. Forgetting, no. All that good gold on Claw Isle, that might have been mine. It makes me tired and old to think of it. When I die impoverished, my wives and my concubines will curse you, Onion Lord. Lord Seldigar had many fine wines that now I am not tasting. A sea eagle he had trying to fly from the wrist, and a magic horn to summon krakens from the deep. Very useful such a horn would be to pull down Tairashi and other vexing creatures. But do I have this horn to blow? No, because the king made my old friend eh, his hand. <laughs> he slipped his arm through Davis's and said, the Queen's men love you not, old friend. I am hearing that a certain hand has been making friends of his own. This is true, yes. You err too much, you old pirate. A smuggler had best know men as well as tides, or he would not live to smuggle long. The Queen's men might remain fervent followers of the Lord of Light, but the lesser folk of Dragonstone were drifting back to the gods they'd known all their lives. They said Stannis was ensorcelled, that Melisande had turned him away from the Seven to bow before some demon out of shadow and, worse sin of all, that she and her god had failed him. And there were knights and lordlings who felt the same. Davis had sought them out, choosing them with the same care with which he had once picked his crews. Sir Gerald Gower had fought stoutly on the Blackwater, but afterward had been heard to say that Relor must be a feeble god to let his followers be chased off by a dwarf and a dead man. Sir Andrew Estamont was the king's cousin and had served as his squire years ago. The bastard of Nightsong had commanded the rear guard that allowed Stannis to reach the safety of Salador San's galleys, but he worshipped the warrior with a faith as fierce as he was. King's men, not queen's men but it would not do to boast of them. A certain Lysine pirate once told me that a good smuggler stays out of sight, Davis replied carefully. Black sails, muffled oars, and a crew that knows how to hold their tongues. The Lysine laughed. A crew with no tongues is even better, eh? Big, stronger mutes who cannot read or write. But then he grew more somber. But... I am glad to know that someone watches your back, old friend. Will the king give the boy to the Red Priestess, do you think? One little dragon could end this great big war. Old habit made him reach for his luck, but his finger bones no longer hung about his neck, and he found nothing. He will not do it, said Davis. He could not arm his own blood. Lord Renly will be glad to hear this. Renly was a traitor in arms, Edric Storm is innocent of any crime. His grace is a just man. Sala shrugged. Well, we shall be seeing, or you shall. For myself, I am returning to sea. Even now, rascally smugglers may be sailing across the Blackwater Bay, 
hoping to avoid paying their lord's lawful duties? He slapped Davis on the back. Take care. You, with your mute friends. <laughs> you are grown so very great now. Yet the higher a man climbs, the farther he has to fall. Davis reflected on those words as he climbed the steps of Sea Dragon Tower to the maester's chambers below the rookery. He did not need Sala to tell him he had risen too high. I cannot read. I cannot write. The lords despise me. I know nothing of ruling. How can I be the king's hand? I belong on the deck of a ship, not in a castle tower. He had said as much to Maester Pilus. You are a notable captain, the maester replied. A captain rules his ship, does he not? He must navigate treacherous waters, set his sails to catch the rising wind, know when a storm is coming, and how best to weather it. This is much the same. Pilus meant it kindly, but his assurances rang hollow. It's not at all the same, Davis had protested. A kingdom's not a ship, and a good thing, or this kingdom would be sinking. I know wood and rope and water, yes, but how will that serve me now? Where do I find the wind to blow King Stannis to his throne? The maester laughed at that. And there you have it, my lord. Words are wind, you know, and you've blown mine away with your good sense. His grace knows what he has in you, I think. Onions, said Davis glumly. That is what he has in me. The king's hand should be a high-born lord, someone wise and learned, a battle commander or a great knight. Sir Ryan Redwine was the greatest knight of his day, and one of the worst hands ever to serve a king. Septon Mermison's prayers worked miracles, but as hand he soon had the whole realm praying for his death. Lord Butterwell was renowned for wit, Miles Smallwood for courage, Sir Otto Hightower for learning, yet they failed as hands, every one. As for birth, the Dragon Kings oft chose hands from amongst their own blood, with the results as various as Baylor Breakspear and Magor the Cruel. Against this you have Septon Bath, the blacksmith's son the old king plucked from the Red Keep's library, who gave the realm forty years of peace and plenty. Pilar smiled. Read your history, Lord Davers, and you will see that your doubts are groundless. How can I read history when I cannot read? Any man can read, my lord said Maester Pilus. There is no magic needed, nor high birth. I'm teaching the art to your son at the king's command. Let me teach you as well. It was a kindly offer, and not one that Davis could refuse. And so every day he repaired to the Maester's chambers, high atop sea dragon tower, to frown over scrolls and parchments and great leather tomes, and try to puzzle out a few more words. His efforts often gave him headaches, and made him feel as big a fool as Patchface, besides. His son Devon was not yet twelve, yet he was well ahead of his father. And for Princess Shireen and Edric Storm, reading seemed as natural as breathing. When it came to books, Davos was more a child than any of them. Yet he persisted. He was a king's hand now, and a king's hand should read. The narrow, twisting steps of Sea Dragon Tower had been a sore trial to Maester Cresson after he broke his hip. Davis still found himself missing the old man. He thought Stannis must as well. 
Pilus seemed clever and diligent and well-meaning, but he was so young, and the king did not confide in him as he had in Crescent. The old man had been with Stannis so long, until he ran afoul of Melisande and died for it. At the top of the steps, Davis heard a soft jingle of bells that could only herald Patchface. The princess's fool was waiting outside the maester's door for her like a faithful hound. Doe soft and slump-shouldered, his broad face tattooed in a motley pattern of red and green squares, Patchface wore a helm made of a rack of deer antlers strapped to a tin bucket. A dozen bells hung from the tines and rang when he moved, which meant constantly, since the fool seldom stood still. He jingled and jangled his way everywhere he went. Small wonder that Pylos had exiled him from Shireen's lessons. Under the sea, the old fish ate the young fish, the fool muttered at Davis. He bobbed his head, and his bells clanged and chimed and sang, I know, I know, oh, ho, ho. Up here, the young fish teach the old fish, said Davis, who never felt so ancient as when he sat down to try and read. It might have been different if aged Maester Cresson had been the one teaching him, but Pylus was young enough to be his son. He found the maester seated at his long wooden table, covered with books and scrolls, across from the three children. Princess Shireen sat between the two boys. Even now Davis could take great pleasure in the sight of his own blood keeping company with a princess and a king's bastard. Davin will be a lord now, not merely a knight, the lord of the Rainwood. Davis took more pride in that than in wearing the title himself. He reads, too. He reads and he writes, as if he'd been born to it. Pylus had naught but praise for his diligence. And the master at arms, said Devon, was showing promise with sword and lance as well. And he is a godly lad, too. My brothers have ascended to the Hall of Light to sit beside the Lord, Devon had said when his father told him how his four elder brothers had died. I will pray for them at the night fires, and for you as well, father, so you might walk in the light of the Lord till the end of your days. "'Good morrow to you, father,' the boy greeted him. "'He looks so much like Dale did at his age,' Davis thought. His elders had never dressed so fine as Devon in his squire's raiment, to be sure, but they shared the same square, plain face, the same forthright brown eyes, the same thin brown fly-away hair. Devon's cheeks and chin were dusted with blonde hair, a fuzz that would have shamed a proper peach, though the boy was fiercely proud of his beard, just as Dale was proud of his once. Devon was the oldest of the three children at the table. Yet Edric Storm was three inches taller and broader in the chest and shoulders. He was his father's son in that, nor did he ever miss a morning's work with sword and shield. Those old enough to have known Robert and Renly as children said that the bastard boy had more of their look than Stannis had ever shared. The coal-black hair, the deep blue eyes, the mouth, the jaw, the cheekbones. Only his ears reminded you that his mother had been a Florent. Yes, good morrow, my lord, Edric echoed. The boy could be fierce and proud, but the maesters and castellans and masters at arms who'd raised him had schooled him well in courtesy. Do you come for my uncle? How fares his grace? Well, Davis lied. If truth be told, 
The king had a haggard, haunted look about him, but he saw no need to burden the boy with his fears. I hope I have not disturbed your lesson. We had just finished, my lord, Maester Pilus said. We were reading about King Daron I. Princess Shireen was a sad, sweet, gentle child, far from pretty. Stannis had given her his square jaw and Selyse her florent ears, and the guards in their cruel wisdom had seen fit to compound her homeliness by afflicting her with grey scale in the cradle. The disease had left one cheek and half her neck grey and cracked and hard, though it had spared both her life and her sight. He went to war and conquered Dawn, the young dragon they called him. He worshipped false gods, said Devon, but he was a great king otherwise, and very brave in battle. He was, agreed Edric Storm, but my father was braver. The young dragon never won three battles in a day. The princess looked at him wide-eyed. Did Uncle Robert win three battles in a day? The bastard nodded. It was when he'd first come home to call his banners. Lords Grandison, Catherine, and Fell planned to join their strength at Summerhall, a march on Storm's End. But he learned their plans from an informer and rode at once with all his knights and squires. As the plotters came up on Summerhall, one by one, he defeated each of them in turn before they could join up with the others. He slew Lord Fell in single combat and captured his son, Silver Axe. Devon looked to Pilus. Is that how it happened? I said so, didn't I? Edric Storm said before the maester could reply. He smashed all three of them and fought so bravely that Lord Grandison and Lord Catherine became his men afterwards, and Silveraxe too. No one ever beat my father. Edric, you ought not to boast, Maester Pilus said. King Robert suffered defeats like any other man. Lord Tyrell bested him at Ashford, and he lost many a tawny tilt as well. He won more than he lost, though, and he killed Prince Rhaegar on the trident. That he did, the maester agreed. But now I must give my attention to Lord Davis, who has waited so patiently. We will read more of King Daron's Conquest of Dawn on the morrow. Princess Shireen and the boy said their farewells courteously. When they had taken their leaves, Maester Pylus moved closer to Davis. My lord, perhaps you would like to try a bit of Conquest of Dawn as well. He slid the slender, leather-bound book across the table. King Daron wrote with an elegant simplicity, and his history is rich with blood, battle, and bravery. Your son is quite engrossed. My son is not quite twelve. I am the king's hand. Give me another letter, if you would. As you wish, my lord. Maester Pilus rummaged about his table, unrolling and then discarding various scraps of parchment. There are no new letters, perhaps an old one. Davis enjoyed a good story as well as any man, but Stannis had not named him Hand for his enjoyment, he felt. His first duty was to help his king rule, and for that he must needs understand the words the ravens brought. The best way to learn a thing was to do it, he had found. Sails or scrolls, it made no matter. This might serve our purpose. Pilus passed him a letter. Davis flattened down the little square of crinkled parchment and squinted at the tiny, crabbed letters. Reading was hard on the eyes that much he had learned early. 
Sometimes he wondered if the Citadel offered a champion's purse to the maester who wrote the smallest hand. Pilus had laughed at the notion, but— To the five kings, read Davis, hesitating briefly over five, which he did not often see written out. The king be— The king be where? Beyond, the maester corrected. Davis grimaced. The king beyond the wall comes, comes south. He leads a, f a f fast, vast, a vast host of wi wi wildlings. Lord Mormont sent a raven from the her. Uh, haunted, a haunted forest. Pilus underlined the words with the point of his finger. The haunted forest. He is under uh, attack. Yes. Pleased, he ploughed onward. Other birds have come since with no words. We've Fear, Mormont slain with all, with all his tench. No, no strength. We fear Mormont slain with all his strength. Davis suddenly realized just what he was reading. He turned the letter over and saw that the wax that had sealed it had been black. This is from the Night's Watch. Maester, has King Stannis seen this letter? I brought it to Lord Alistair when it first arrived. He was the hand then. I believed he discussed it with the Queen. When I asked him if he wished to send a reply, he told me not to be a fool. His grace lacks the men to fight his own battles. He has none to waste on wildlings, he said to me. That was true enough, and this talk of five kings would certainly have angered Stannis. Only a starving man begs bread from a beggar, he muttered. Pardon, my lord? Something my wife once said. Davis drummed his shortened fingers against the tabletop. The first time he had seen the wall, he had been younger than Devon, serving aboard the Cobblecat under Roro Euhorus, a Tyrushi known up and down the narrow sea as the Blind Bastard, though he was neither blind nor baseborn. Roro had sailed past Skaggers into the shivering sea, visiting a hundred little coves, that had never seen a trading ship before. He brought steel, swords, axes, helms, good chainmail hauberks to trade for furs, ivory, amber, and obsidian. When the Cobblecat turned back south, her holes were stuffed, but in the Bay of Seals three black galleys came out to herd her into East Watch. They lost their cargo, and the bastard lost his head, for the crime of trading weapons to the wildlings. Davis had traded at Eastwatch in his smuggling days. The Black Brothers made hard enemies but good customers for a ship with the right cargo. But while he may have taken their coin, he never forgot how the blind bastard's head had rolled across the cobblecat's deck. I met some wildings when I was a boy, he told Maester Pilus. They were fair thieves but bad hagglers. One made off with our cabin girl. All in all, 
They seem men like any other men, some fair, some foul. Men are men, Mr. Pilus agreed. Shall we return to our reading, my lord hand? I am the hand of the king, yes. Stannis might be the king of Westeros in name, but in truth he was king of the painted table. He held Dragonstone and Storm's End, and had an ever more uneasy alliance with Salador San, but that was all. How could the Watch have looked to him for help? They may not know how weak he is, how lost his cause. King Stannis never saw this letter. You're quite certain? Nor Melisande? No. Or should I bring it to them, even now? No, Davis said at once. You did your duty when you brought it to Lord Alistair. If Melisande knew of this letter, what was it she had said? One whose name may not be spoken is marshalling his powers, Davis Seaworth. Soon comes a cold, and a night that never ends. And Stannis had seen a vision in the flames, a ring of torches in the snow with terror all around. "'My lord, are you unwell?' asked Pylos. "'I am frightened, maester,' he might have said. Davis was remembering a tale Salador San had told him, of how Azor Ahai tempered Lightbringer by thrusting it through the heart of the wife he loved. He slew his wife to fight the dark. If Stannis's Azor Ahai come again, does that mean Edric Storm must play the part of Nisser, Nisser? I was thinking, maester, my pardons. What harm if some wily king conquers the North? It was not as though Stannis held the North. His grace could scarcely be expected to defend people who refused to acknowledge him as king. Give me another letter, he said abruptly. This one is too... difficult, suggested Pylos. Soon comes the cold, whispered Melisande, and the night that never ends. Troubling, said Davis, too troubling. A different letter, please. John they woke to the smoke of Molestown burning. Atop the king's tower, Jon Snow leaned on the padded crutch that Maester Eamon had given him and watched the grey plume rise. Stir had lost all hope of taking Castle Black unawares when Jon escaped him, yet even so he need not have warned of his approach so bluntly. You may kill us, he reflected, but no one will be butchered in their beds. That much I did, at least. His legs still hurt like blazes when he put his weight on it. He'd needed Clydus to help him don his fresh-wash blacks and lace up his boots that morning, and by the time they were done, he'd wanted to drown himself in the milk of the poppy. Instead, he had settled for half a cup of dream wine, a chew of willow bark, and the crutch. The beacon was burning on Weatherback Ridge, and the night's watch had need of every man. I can fight, he insisted when they tried to stop him. <laughs> Your leg's healed, is it? Noy snorted. You won't mind me giving it a little kick, then? I'd sooner you didn't. It's stiff, but I can hobble around well enough, and stand and fight, if you have need of me. 
I have need of every man who knows which end of a spear to stab into the wildings. The pointy end? John had told his little sister something like that once, he remembered. Noy rubbed the bristle on his chin. Might be you'll do. We'll put you on a tower with a longbow. But if you bloody well fall off, don't come crying to me. He could see the King's Road wending its way south through stony brown fields and over windswept hills. The Magnar would be coming up that road before the day was done, his thens marching behind him with axes and spears in their hands and their bronze and leather shields on their backs. Grig the goat, Court, Big Boyle, and the rest will be coming as well, and Igrit. The wildlings had never been his friends. He had not allowed them to be his friends. But her... He could feel the throb of pain where her arrow had gone through the meat and muscle of his thigh. He remembered the old man's eyes, too, and the black blood rushing from his throat as the storm cracked overhead. But he remembered the grotto best of all, the look of her naked in the torchlight, the taste of her mouth when it opened under his. Egret, stay away. Go south and raid. Go hide in one of those round towers you like so well. You'll find nothing here but death. Across the yard, one of the bowmen on the roof of the old flint barracks had unlaced his breeches and was pissing through a crenel. Mully, he knew from the man's greasy orange hair. Men in black cloaks were visible on other roofs and tower tops as well, though nine of every ten happened to be made of straw. The Scarecrow Sentinels, Donald Noy called them. Only where the crows, John mused, and most of us were scared enough. Whatever you call them, the straw soldiers had been Maester Eamon's notion. They had more breeches and jerkins and tunics in the storerooms than they had had men to fill them, so why not stuff some with straw, drape a cloak around their shoulders, and set them to standing watches? Noy had placed them on every tower and in half the windows. Some were even clutching spears, or had crossbows cocked under their arms. The hope was that the Thens would see them from afar and decide that Castle Black was too well defended to attack. John had six scarecrows sharing the roof of the King's Tower with him, along with two actual breathing brothers. Deaf Dick Fallard sat in a crenel methodically cleaning and oiling the mechanism of his crossbow to make sure the wheel turned smoothly, while the old-town boy wandered restlessly around the parapets, fussing with the clothes on straw men. Maybe he thinks they will fight better if they're posed just right, or maybe this waiting is fraying his nerves the way it's fraying mine. The boy claimed to be eighteen, older than John, but he was green as summer grass for all that. Satin, they called him, even in the wool and mail and boiled leather of the night's watch, the name he'd gotten in the brothel where he'd been born and raised. He was pretty as a girl, with his dark eyes, soft skin, and raven's ringlets. Half a year at Castle Black had toughened up his hands, however, and Noy said he was passable with a crossbow. Whether he had the courage to face what was coming, though— John used the crutch to limp across the tower top. The king's tower was not the castle's tallest. The high, slim, crumbling lance held that honour, though Othel Yarwick had been heard to say it might topple any day. 
nor was the king's tower strongest. The tower of guards beside the king's road would be a tougher nut to crack, but it was tall enough, strong enough, and well placed beside the wall, overlooking the gate and the foot of the wooden stair. The first time he had seen Castle Black with his own eyes, John had wondered why anyone would be so foolish as to build a castle without walls. How could it be defended? It can't, his uncle told him. That is the point. The Night's Watch is pledged to take no part in the quarrels of the realm. Yet over the centuries, certain lords' commander, more proud than wise, forgot their vows and ne'er destroyed us all with their ambitions. Lord Commander Runcel Hightower tried to bequeath the watch to his bastard son. Lord Commander Rudrick Flint thought to make himself king beyond the wall. Tristan Mudd, Mad Mark Rankinfell, Robin Hill. Did you know that six hundred years ago, the commanders at Snowgate and the Night Fort went to war against each other, and when the Lord Commander tried to stop them, they joined forces to murder him. The Stark in Winterfell had to take a hand, and both their heads, which he did easily, because their strongholds were not defensible. The Night's Watch had nine hundred and ninety-six Lords Commander before Jor Mormont, most of them men of courage and honour, but we have had cowards and fools as well, our tyrants and our madmen. We survive because the lords and kings of the seven kingdoms know that we pose no threat to them, no matter who should lead us. Our only foes are to the north, and to the north we have the wall. Only now those foes had gotten past the wall to come up from the south, John reflected, and the lords and kings of the seven kingdoms have forgotten us. We are caught between the hammer and the anvil. Without a wall, Castle Black could not be held. Donald Noy knew that as well as any. The castle does them no good, the armourer told his little garrison. Kitchens, common hall, stables, even the towers. Let them take it all. We'll empty the armoury and move what stores we can to the top of the wall and make our stand around the gate. So Castle Black had a wall of sorts at last, a crescent-shaped barricade ten feet high, made of stores, casks of nails and barrels of salt mutton, crates, bales of black broadcloth, stacked logs, sawn timbers, far-hardened stakes, and sacks and sacks of grain. The crude rampart enclosed the two things most worth defending, the gate to the north and the foot of the great wooden switchback stair that clawed and climbed its way up the face of the wall like a drunken thunderbolt, supported by wooden beams as big as tree trunks driven deep into the ice. The last few moles were still making the long climb, John saw, urged on by his brothers. Gran was carrying a little boy in his arms, while Pip, two flights below, let an old man lean upon his shoulder. The oldest villagers still waited below for the cage to make its way back down to them. He saw a mother pulling along two children, one on either hand, as an older boy ran past her up the steps. Two hundred feet above them, sky-blue Sue and Lady Meliana, who was no lady, all her friends agreed, stood on the landing looking south. They had a better view of the smoke than he did, no doubt. John wondered about the villagers who had chosen not to flee. There were always a few, too stubborn, 
or too stupid or too brave to run, a few who prefer to fight or hide or bend the knee. Maybe the thins would spare them. The thing to do would be to take the attack to them, he thought. With fifty rangers well-mounted, we could cut them apart on the road. They did not have fifty rangers, though, nor half as many horses. The garrison had not returned, and there was no way to know just where they were, or even whether the riders that Noy had sent out had reached them. We are the garrison, John told himself, and look at us. The brothers Bowen Marsh had left behind were old men, cripples, and green boys, just as Donald Noy had warned him. He could see some wrestling barrels up the steps, others on the barricade. Start old kegs, as slow as ever. Spare boot, hopping along briskly on his carved wooden leg. Half-mad Easy, who fancied himself Florian the Fool reborn. Dornish Dilly, Red Allen of the Rosewood. Young Henley, well past fifty. Old Henley, well past seventy. Hairy Hal, spotted pate of Maidenpool. A couple of them saw John looking down from atop the King's Tower and waved up at him. Others turned away. They still think me a turncloak. That was a bitter draught to drink. But John could not blame them. He was a bastard, after all. Everyone knew that bastards were wanton and treacherous by nature, having been born of lust and deceit. And he had made as many enemies as friends at Castle Black. Rest for one. John had once threatened to have Ghost rip his throat out unless he stopped tormenting Samuel Tarley, and Rest did not forget things like that. He was raking dry leaves into piles under the stairs just now, but every so often he stopped long enough to give John a nasty look. No! Donald Noy roared at three of the Molestown men down below. The pitch goes to the hoist, the oil up the steps, crossbow bolts to the fourth, fifth, and sixth landings, spears to the first and second. Stack the lard under the stair. Yes, there, behind the planks. The casks of meat are for the barricade. Now, you puxy plough-pushers, now! He has a lord's voice, John thought. His father had always said that in battle a captain's lungs were as important as his sword arm. It does not matter how brave or brilliant a man is if his commands cannot be heard. Lord Eddard told his sons. So Rob and he used to climb the towers of Winterfell to shout at each other across the yard. Donald Noy could have drowned out both of them. The moles all went in terror of him, and rightfully so, since he was always threatening to rip their heads off. Three-quarters of the village had taken John's warning to heart and come to Castle Black for refuge. Noy had decreed that every man still spry enough to hold a spear or swing an axe would help defend the barricade, else they could damn well go home and take their chances with the thens. He had emptied the armory to put good steel in their hands, big double-bladed axes, razor-sharp daggers, long swords, maces, spiked morning stars, clad in studded leather jerkins and male hauberks, with greaves for their legs, and gorgettes to keep their heads on their shoulders, a few of them even looked like soldiers. In a bad light, if you squint. Noy had put the women and children to work as well. Those too young to fight 
would carry water and tend the fires. The Molestown midwife would assist Clydus, and Maester Eamon would any wounded, and Three-Finger Hub suddenly had more spit-boys, kettle-stirrers, and onion-choppers than he knew what to do with. Two of the whores had even offered to fight, and had shown enough skill with a crossbow to be given a place on the steps forty feet up. "'It's cold,' Satin stood with his hands tucked into his armpits under his cloak. His cheeks were bright red. John made himself smile. "'The frost fangs are cold. This is a brisk autumn day. "'Well, I hope I never see the frost fangs, then. I knew a girl in Old Town who liked to ice her wine. That's the best place for ice, I think, in wine.' Satin glanced south, frowned. You think the scarecrow sentinels scared them off, my lord? We can hope. It was possible, John supposed, but more likely the wildlings had simply paused for a bit of rape and plunder in Molestown. Or maybe Stir was waiting for nightfall to move up under cover of darkness. Midday came and went, with still no sign of thens on the king's road. John heard footsteps inside the tower, though, and Owen the oaf puffed up out of the trapdoor, red face from the climb. He had a basket of buns under one arm, a wheel of cheese under the other, a bag of onions dangling from one hand. Hops had to feed you in case you're stuck up here a while. That, or for our last meal. Thank him for us, Owen. Dick Follard was deaf as a stone, but his nose worked well enough. The buns were still warm from the oven when he went digging in the basket and plucked one out. He found a crock of butter as well and spread some with his dagger. Raisins, he announced happily. Nuts, too. His peach was thick, but easy enough to understand once you got used to it. You can have mine, too, said Satin. I'm not hungry. Eat, John told him. There's no knowing when you'll have another chance. He took two buns himself. The nuts were pine nuts, and besides the raisins there were bits of dried apple. "'Will the wildings come today, Lord Snow?' Owen asked. "'You'll know if they do,' said John. "'Listen for the horns.' Two, two is for wildings.' Owen was tall, tow-headed, and amiable. A tireless worker, and surprisingly deft when it came to working wood— and fixing catapults and the like, but, as he'd gladly tell you, his mother had dropped him on his head when he was a baby, and half his wits had leaked out through his ear. "'You remember where to go?' John asked him. "'I'm to go to the stairs,' Donald Noy says. "'I'm to go up to the third landing and shoot my crossbow down at the wildlings if they try to climb over the barrier. The third landing—' One, two, three. His head bobbed up and down. If the wildlings attack, the king will come and help us, won't he? He's a mighty warrior, King Robert. He's sure to come. Maester Eamon sent him a bird. There was no use telling him that Robert Baratheon was dead. He would forget it, as he'd forgotten it before. Maester Eamon sent him a bird, John agreed. That seemed to make Owen happy. Maester Eamon had sent a lot of birds, not to one king, but to four. Wildlings at the gate, the message ran. 
the realm in danger. Send all the help you can to Castle Black. Even as far as Old Town and the Citadel the ravens flew, and to half a hundred mighty lords in their castles, the northern lords offered their best hope. So to them Aemon had sent two birds, to the Umbers and the Boltons, to Castle Serwin and Torren Square, Carhold and Deepwood Mott, to Bear Island, Old Castle, Widow's Watch, White Harbour, Barrowton and the Rills, to the mountain fastnesses of the Liddles, the Burleys, the Norreys, the Harclays and the Walls, the Blackbirds brought their plea, wildings at the gate, the North in danger, come with all your strength. Well, ravens might have wings, but lords and kings do not. If help was coming, it would not come today. As morning turned to afternoon, the smoke of Molestown blew away, and the southern sky was clear again. No clouds, thought John. That was good. Rain or snow could doom them all. Clydus and Maester Eamon rode the winch cage up to safety at the top of the wall, and most of the Molestown wives as well. Men in black cloaks paced restlessly on the tower tops and shouted back and forth across the courtyards. Septon Celador led the men on the barricade in a prayer, beseeching the warrior to give them strength. Deaf Dick Follard curled up beneath his cloak and went to sleep. Satin walked a hundred leagues in circles round and round the crenellations. The wall wept and the sun crept across a hard blue sky. Near Evenfall, Owen the Oaf returned with a loaf of black bread and a pail of Hobbs' best mutton, cooked in a thick broth of ale and onions. Even Dick woke up for that. They ate every bit of it, using chunks of bread to wipe the bottom of the pail. By the time they were done, the sun was low in the west, the shadows sharp and black throughout the castle. Light the fire, John told Saturn and fill the kettle with oil. He went downstairs himself to bar the door, to try and work some of the stiffness from his leg. That was a mistake, and John soon knew it, but he clutched the crutch and saw it through all the same. The door to the king's tower was oak, studded with iron. It might delay the thens, but it would not stop them if they wanted to come in. John slammed the bar down in its notches, paid a visit to the privy—it might well be his last chance—and hobbled back up to the roof, grimacing at the pain. The west had gone the colour of a blood bruise, but the sky above was cobalt blue, deepening to purple, and the stars were coming out. John sat between two merlons, with only a scarecrow for company, and watched the stallion gallop up the sky. Or was it the horned lord— he wondered where Ghost was now. He wondered about Ygrette as well, and told himself, that way lay madness. They came in the night, of course. Like thieves, John thought, like murderers. Satin pissed himself when the horns blew, but John pretended not to notice. Go shake Dick by the shoulder, he told the old town boy, else he's liable to sleep through the fight. I'm frightened. Satin's face was a ghastly white. So are they. John leaned his crutch up against a merlin and took up his longbow, bending the smooth, thick Dornish yew to slip a bowstring through the notches. 
Don't waste a quarrel, unless you know you have a good clean shot, he said when Saturn returned from waking Dick. We have an ample supply up here, but ample does not mean inexhaustible. And step behind a Merlin to reload. Don't try and hide in back of a scarecrow. They're made of straw. An arrow will punch through them. He did not bother telling Dick Follard anything. Dick could read your lips if there was enough light, and he gave a damn what you were saying. But he knew it all already. The three of them took up positions on three sides of the round tower. John hung a quiver from his belt and pulled an arrow. The shaft was black, the fletching grey. As he notched it to his string, he remembered something that Theon Greyjoy had once said after a hunt. The boar can keep his tusks and the bear his claws, he had declared, smiling the way he did. There's nothing half so mortal as a grey goose feather. John had never been half the hunter that Theon was, but he was no stranger to the longbow either. There were dark shapes slipping around the armory, backs against the stone, but he could not see them well enough to waste an arrow. He heard distant shouts, and saw the archers on the Tower of Guards loosing shafts at the ground. That was too far off to concern John. But when he glimpsed three shadows detach themselves from the old stables fifty yards away, he stepped up to the crenel, raised his bow, and drew. They were running. So he led them, waiting, waiting. The arrow made a soft hiss as it left his string. A moment later there was a grunt, and suddenly only two shadows were loping across the yard. They ran all the faster, but John had already pulled a second arrow from his quiver. This time he hurried the shot too much and missed. The wildlings were gone by the time he'd knocked again. He searched for another target and found four, rushing around the empty shell of the Lord Commander's keep. The moonlight glimmered off their spears and axes and the gruesome devices on their round leather shields, skulls and bones, serpents, bears' claws, twisted demonic faces. Free folk, he knew. The Thens carried shields of black-boiled leather with bronze rims and bosses, but theirs were plain and unadorned. These were the lighter, wicker shields of raiders, John pulled the goose feather back to his ear, aimed, and loosed the arrow, then knocked and drew and loosed again. The first shaft pierced the bear claw shield, the second one a throat. The wildling screamed as he went down. He heard the deep thrum of Deaf Dick's crossbow to his left, and Satin's a moment later. I got one, the boy cried hoarsely. I got one in the chest. Get another, John called. He did not have to search for targets now, only choose them. He dropped a wilding archer as he was fitting an arrow to his string, then sent a shaft toward the axeman hacking at the door of Harden's tower. That time he missed, but the arrow quivering in the oak made the wilding reconsider. It was only as he was running off that John recognized Big Boyle. Half a heartbeat later, old Molly put an arrow through his leg from the roof of the flint barracks, and he crawled off bleeding. That will stop him bitching about his boil, John thought. When his quiver was empty, he went to get another and moved to a different crenel, side by side with Deaf Dick Follard. John got off three arrows for every bolt Deaf Dick discharged, but that was the advantage of the longbow. 
The crossbow penetrated better, some insisted, but it was slow and cumbersome to reload. He could hear the wildlings shouting to each other, and somewhere to the west a war horn blew. The world was moonlight and shadow, and time became an endless round of notch and draw and loose. A wildling arrow ripped through the throat of the straw sentinel beside him, but Jon Snow scarcely noticed. Give me one clean shot at the Magnar of Then, he prayed to his father's gods. The Magnar at least was a foe that he could hate. Give me a stir. His fingers were growing stiff, and his thumb was bleeding, but still John notched and drew and loosed. A guard of flame caught his eye, and he turned to see the door of the common hall of fire. It was only a few moments before the whole great timber hall was burning. Three-finger Hub and his Molestown helpers were safe atop the wall, he knew. But it felt like a punch in the belly all the same. Young! Deaf Dick yelled in his thick voice. The armory! They were on the roof, he saw. One had a torch. Dick hopped onto the crenel for a better shot, jerked his crossbow to his shoulder, and sent a quarrel thrumming towards the torchman. He missed. The archer down below him didn't. Follard never made a sound, only toppled forward, headlong, over the parapet. It was a hundred feet to the yard below. John heard the thump as he was peering around a straw soldier trying to see where the arrow had come from. Not ten feet from deaf Dick's body, he glimpsed a leather shield, a ragged cloak, a mop of thick red hair. Kissed by fire, he thought. Lucky. He brought his bow up, but his fingers would not part, and she was gone as suddenly as she'd appeared. He swiveled, cursing, and loosed a shaft at the men on the armory roof instead, but he missed them as well. By then the east stables were afire too, black smoke and wisps of burning hay pouring from the stalls. When the roof collapsed, flames rose up roaring so loud they almost drowned out the war horns of the thins. Fifty of them were pounding up the king's road in tight column, their shields held up above their heads. Others were swarming through the vegetable garden, across the flagstone yard, around the old dry well. Three had hacked their way through the doors of Maester Eamon's apartments in the timber keep below the rookery, and a desperate fight was going on atop the silent tower, longswords against bronze axes. None of that mattered. The dance has moved on, he thought. John hobbled across to Saturn and grabbed him by the shoulder. With me, he shouted. Together they moved to the north parapet, where the king's tower looked down on the gate and Donald Noy's makeshift wall of lugs and barrels and sacks of corn. The Thens were there before them. They wore half-helms and had thin bronze discs sewn to their long leather shirts. Many wielded bronze axes, though a few were chipped stone. More had short stabbing spears with leaf-shaped heads that gleamed redly in the light from the burning stables. They were screaming in the old tongue as they stormed the barricade, jabbing with their spears, swinging their bronze axes, spitting corn and blood with equal abandon, while crossbow quarrels and arrows rained down on them from the archers that Donald Noy had posted on the stair. "'What do we do?' Satin shouted. "'We kill them!' John shouted back, a black arrow in his hand. No archer could have asked for an easier shot, 
The Thens had their backs to the king's tower as they charged the crescent, clambering over bags and barrels to reach the men in black. Both John and Satin chanced to choose the same target. He had just reached the top of the barricade when an arrow sprouted from his neck and a quarrel between his shoulder blades. Half a heartbeat later, a longsword took him in the belly, and he fell back onto the man behind him. John reached down to his quiver and found it empty again. Satin was winding back his crossbow. He left him to it and went for more arrows, but he hadn't taken more than three steps before the trap slammed open three feet in front of him. Bloody hell! I never even heard the door break. There was no time to think or plan or shout for help. John dropped his bow, reached back over his shoulder, ripped long claw from its sheath, and buried the blade in the middle of the first head to pop out of the tower. Bronze was no match for Valerian steel. The blow sheared right through the Thens' helm and deep into his skull, and he went crashing back down where he'd come from. There were more behind him. John knew from the shouting. He fell back and called a satin. The next man to make the climb got a quarrel through his cheek. He vanished, too. "'The oil!' John said. Saturn nodded. Together they snatched up the thick quilted pads they'd left beside the fire, lifted the heavy kettle of boiling oil, and dumped it down the hole on the fens below. The shrieks were as bad as anything he'd ever heard, and Saturn looked as if he was going to be sick. John kicked the trapdoor shut, set the heavy iron kettle on top of it, and gave the boy with a pretty face a hard shake. "'Wretch later!' John yelled. "'Come!' They had only been gone from the parapets for a few moments, but everything below had changed. A dozen black brothers and a few Molestown men still stood atop the crates and barrels, but the wildlings were swarming over all along the crescent, pushing them back. John saw one shove his spear up through Rast's belly so hard it lifted him into the air. Young Henley was dead, and old Henley was dying surrounded by foes. He could see Easy spinning and slashing, laughing like a loon, his cloak flapping as he leapt from cask to cask. A bronze axe caught him just below the knee, and the laughter turned into a bubbling shriek. They're breaking, Satin said. No, said John, they're broken. It happened quickly. One mole fled, then another, and suddenly all the villagers were throwing down their weapons and abandoning the barricade. The brothers were too few to hold alone. John watched them try and form a line to fall back in order, but the thens washed over them with spear and axe, and then they were fleeing too. Dornish Dilly slipped and went down in his face, and a wildling planted a spear between his shoulder blades. Kegs! Slow and short of breath, had almost reached the bottom step when a then caught the end of his cloak and yanked him around. But a crossbow quarrel dropped the man before his axe could fall. Gut him, Satin crowed, as Keggs staggered to the stair and began to crawl up the steps on hands and knees. The gate is lost. Donald Noy had closed and chained it, but it was there for the taking the iron bars glimmering red with reflected firelight, the coal-black tunnel behind. No one had fallen back to defend it. The only safety was on top of the wall, seven hundred feet up the crooked wooden stairs. "'What guards do you pray to?' John asked Satin. "'The seven, 
the boy from Old Town said. Pray then, John told him. Pray to your new gods, and I'll pray to my old ones. It all turned here. With a confusion at the trapdoor, John had forgotten to fill his quiver. He limped back across the roof, and did that now, and picked up his bow as well. The kettle had not moved from where he'd left it, so it seemed as though they were safe enough for the nonce. The dance has moved on, and we're watching from the gallery, he thought as he hobbled back. Satin was loosing quarrels at the wildlings on the steps, then ducking down behind a merlin to cock the crossbow. He may be pretty, but he's quick. The real battle was on the steps. Noy had put spearmen on the two lowest landings, but the headlong flight of the villagers had panicked them, and they had joined the flight, racing up toward the third landing with the thens killing anyone who fell behind. The archers and crossbowmen on the higher landings were trying to drop shafts over their heads. John knocked an arrow, drew and loosed, and was pleased when one of the wildlings went rolling down the steps. The heat of the fires was making the wall weep, and the flames danced and shimmered against the ice. The steps shook to the footsteps of men running for their lives. Again John notched and drew and loosed, but there was only one of him and one of Saturn, and a good sixty or seventy thens pounding up the stairs, killing as they went, drunk on victory. On the fourth landing three brothers in black cloaks stood shoulder to shoulder with long swords in their hands, and battle was joined again briefly. But there were only three, and soon enough the wilding tide washed over them, and their blood dripped down the steps. A man is never so vulnerable in battle as when he flees, Lord Eddard had told John once. A running man is like a wounded animal to a soldier. It gets his bloodlust up. The archers on the fifth landing fled before the battle even reached them. It was a rout, a red rout. Fetch the torches, John told Saturn. There were four of them stacked beside the fire, their heads wrapped in oily rags. There were a dozen fire arrows, too. The old town boy thrust one torch into the fire until it was blazing brightly, and brought the rest back under his arm unlit. He looked frightened again, as well he might. John was frightened, too. It was then that he saw a stir. The Magna was climbing up the barricade over the gutted corn sacks and smashed barrels and the bodies of friends and foe alike. His bronze-scale armor gleamed darkly in the firelight. Stir had taken off his helm to survey the scene of his triumph, and the bald, earless Horson was smiling. In his hand was a long weirwood spear with an ornate bronze head. When he saw the gate, he pointed the spear at it and barked something in the old tongue to the half-dozen thens around him. Too late, John thought. You should have led your men over the barricade. You might have been able to save a few. Up above, a war horn sounded, long and low. Not from the top of the wall, but from the ninth landing, some two hundred feet up, where Donald Noy was standing. John notched a fire arrow to his bowstring and sat in lit it from the torch. He stepped to the parapet, drew, aimed, loosed. Ribbons of flame trailed behind as the shaft sped downward and thudded into its target, crackling. Not stir. The steps. 
or more precisely, the casks and kegs and sacks that Donald Noy had piled up beneath the steps, as high as the first landing. The barrels of lard and lamp oil, the bags of leaves and oily rags, the split logs, bark, and wood shavings. Again, said John, and again, and again. Other longbowmen were firing too from every tower top in range, some sending their arrows up in high arcs to drop before the wall. When John ran out of fire arrows, he and Saturn began to light the torches and fling them from the crenels. Up above, another fire was blooming. The old wooden steps had drunk up oil like a sponge, and Donald Noy had drenched them from the ninth landing all the way down to the seventh. John could only hope that most of their own people had staggered up to safety before Noy threw the torches. The Black Brothers at least had known the plan, but the villagers had not. Wind and fire did the rest. All John had to do was watch. With flames below and flames above, the wildlings had nowhere to go. Some continued upward and died. Some went downward and died. Some stayed where they were. They died as well. Many leapt from the steps before they burned and died from the fall. Twenty-odd thens were still huddled together between the fires when the ice cracked from the heat, and the whole lower third of the stair broke off, along with several tons of ice. That was the last that Jon Snow saw of Stir, the Magna of Then. The wall defends itself, he thought. John asked Saturn to help him down to the yard. His wounded leg hurt so badly that he could hardly walk even with a crutch. Bring the torch, he told the boy from Old Town. I need to look for someone. It had been mostly thins on the steps. Surely some of the free folk had escaped. Mansa's people, not the Magnars. She might have been one. So they climbed down, past the bodies of the men who tried the trapdoor, and John wandered through the dark with his crutch under one arm and the other around the shoulders of a boy who'd been a whore in Old Town. The stables and the common hall had burned down to smoking cinders by then, but the fire still raged along the wall, climbing step by step and landing by landing. From time to time they'd hear a groan, and then a crack, and another chunk would come crashing off the wall. The air was full of ash and ice crystals. He found Court dead, and Stone Thumbs dying. He found some dead and dying thens he'd never truly known. He found Big Boyle, weak from all the blood he'd lost, but still alive. He found Igret, sprawled across a patch of old snow beneath the Lord Commander's tower, with an arrow between her breasts. The ice crystals had settled over her face, and in the moonlight it looked as though she wore a glittering silver mask. The arrow was black. John saw, but it was fletched with white duck feathers. Not mine, he told himself. Not one of mine. But he felt as if it were. When he knelt in the snow beside her, her eyes opened. John Snow, she said, very softly. It sounded as though the arrow had found a lung. Is this a proper castle, no? Not just a tower.
It is. John took her hand. Good, she whispered. I wanted to see one proper castle before... before I... You'll see a hundred castles, he promised her. The battle's done. Maester Eamon will see to you. He touched her hair. You're kissed by fire, remember? Lucky. It will take more than an arrow to kill you. Eamon will draw it out and patch you up, and will get you some milk of the puppy for the pain. She just smiled at that. Do you remember that cave? We should have stayed in that cave. I told you so. We'll go back to the cave, he said. You're not going to die, Ygritte. You're not. Oh, Ygritte cupped his cheek with her hand. You know nothing, Jon Snow. She sighed, dying. Bran It's only another empty castle, Mira Reed said, as she gazed across the desolation of rubble, ruins, and weeds. No, thought Bran, it is the night fort, and this is the end of the world. In the mountains, all he could think of was reaching the wall and finding the three-eyed crow. But now that they were here, he was filled with fears. The dream he'd had, the dream that Summer had had. No, I mustn't think about that dream. He had not even told the reeds, though Mira at least seemed to sense that something was wrong. If he never talked of it, maybe he could forget he ever dreamed it, and then it wouldn't have happened, and Rob and Grey Wind would still be... Hodor! Hodor shifted his weight and ran with it. He was tired. They had been walking for hours. At least he's not afraid. Bran was scared of this place, and almost as scared of admitting it to the reeds. I'm a prince of the north, a Stark of Winterfell, almost a man-grown. I have to be as brave as Rob. Jojen gazed up at him with his dark green eyes. There's nothing here to hurt us, your grace. Bran wasn't so certain. The night fort had figured in some of old Nan's scariest stories. It was here that Night's King had reigned, before his name was wiped from the memory of man. This was where the Rat Cook had served the Andal King, his prince and bacon pie, where the seventy-nine sentinels stood their watch, where brave young Danny Flint had been raped and murdered. This was a castle where King Sherrod had called down his curse on the Andals of old, where the Prentice boys had faced the thing that came in the night, where blind Simeon Star Eyes had seen the hellhounds fighting. Mad Axe had once walked these yards and climbed these towers, butchering his brothers in the dark. All that had happened hundreds and thousands of years ago, to be sure, and some maybe never happened at all. Maester Lewin always said that old Nan's stories shouldn't be swallowed whole. But once his uncle came to see father, and Bran asked about the night fort. Benjamin Stark never said the tales were true, but he never said they weren't. He only shrugged and said, We left the night fort two hundred years ago, as if that was an answer. Bran forced himself to look around. 
The morning was cold but bright, the sun shining down from the hard blue sky, but he did not like the noises. The wind made a nervous whistling sound as it shivered through the broken towers. The keeps groaned and settled, and he could hear rats scrabbling under the floor of the great hall. The rat cooks children running from their father. The yards were small forests where spindly trees rubbed their bare branches together and dead leaves scuttled like roaches across patches of old snow. There were trees growing where the stables had been, and a twisted white weirwood pushing up through the gaping hole in the roof of the domed kitchen. Even summer was not at ease here. Bran slipped inside his skin, just for an instant, to get the smell of the place. He did not like that either. And there was no way through. Bran had told them there wouldn't be. He had told them and told them. But Jojen Reed had insisted on seeing for himself. He had had a green dream, he said, and his green dreams did not lie. They don't open any gates either, thought Bran. The gate the night fort guarded had been sealed since the day the Black Brothers had loaded up their mules and garrons and departed for Deep Lake. Its iron portcullis lowered, the chains that raised it carried off, the tunnel packed with stone and rubble all frozen together until they were as impenetrable as the wall itself. We should have followed John, Bran said when he saw it. He thought of his bastard brother often, since the night that Summer had watched him ride off through the storm. We should have found the King's Road and gone to Castle Black. We dare not, my prince, Jojen said. I've told you why. But there are wildlings. They killed some man, and they wanted to kill John too. Jojen, there were a hundred of them. So you said. We are four. You helped your brother, if that was him in truth, but it almost cost you summer. I know, Bran said miserably. The direwolf had killed three of them, maybe more, but there had been too many. When they formed a tight ring around the tall, earless man, he had tried to slip away through the rain, but one of their arrows had come flashing after him, and the sudden stab of pain had driven Bran out of the wolf's skin and back into his own. After the storm finally died, they had huddled in the dark without a fire, talking in whispers, if they talked at all, listening to Hodor's heavy breathing and wondering if the wildlings might try and cross the lake in the morning. Bran had reached out for summer time and time again, but the pain he found drove him back, the way a red-hot kettle makes you pull your hand back even when you mean to grab it. Only Hodor slept that night, muttering, home gone, home gone, as he tossed and turned. Bran was terrified that Summer was off, dying in the darkness. Please, you old guards, he prayed. You took Winterfell and my father and my legs. Please don't take Summer too, and watch over Jon Snow too, and make these wildlings go away. No weirwoods grew on that stony island in the lake, yet somehow the old guards must have heard. The wildlings took their sweet time about departing the next morning, stripping the bodies of their dead, and the old man they'd killed, even pulling a few fish from the lake, and there was a scary moment when three of them found the causeway, 
and started to walk out. But the path turned, and they didn't, and two of them nearly drowned before the others pulled them out. The tall, bald man yelled at them, his words echoing across the water in some tongue that even Jojen did not know. And a little while later, they gathered up their shields and spears and marched off north by east, the same way John had gone. Bran wanted to leave too, to look for summer, but the reeds said no. We will stay another night, said Jojen. Put some leagues between us and the wildlings. You don't want to meet them again, do you? Late that afternoon, Summer returned from wherever he'd been hiding, dragging his back leg. He ate parts of the bodies in the inn, driving off the crows, then swam out to the island. Mira had drawn the broken arrow from his leg and rubbed the wound with the juice of some plants she'd found growing around the base of the tower. The dire wolf was still limping, but a little less each day, it seemed to Bren. The guards had heard. Maybe we should try another castle, Mira said to her brother. Maybe we could get through the gate somewhere else. I could go scout if you wanted. I'd make better time by myself. Bran shook his head. If you go east, there's Deep Lake, then Queensgate. West is Icemark. But they'll be the same, only smaller. All the gates are sealed except the ones at Castle Black, Eastwatch, and the Shadow Tower. Hodor said, Hodor, to that, and the reeds exchanged a look. At least I should climb to the top of the wall, Mira decided. Maybe I'll see something up there. What could you hope to see? Jojen asked. Something, said Mira, and for once she was adamant. It should be me. Bran raised his head to look up at the wall and imagined himself climbing inch by inch, squirming his fingers into cracks in the ice and kicking footholds with his toes. That made him smile, in spite of everything. The dreams and the wildlings and John and everything. He had climbed the walls of Winterfell when he was little, and all the towers too, but none of them had been so high, and they were only stone. The wall could look like stone, all grey and pitted, but then the clouds would break, and the sun would hit it differently, and all at once it would transform and stand there white and blue and glittering. It was the end of the world, old Nan always said. On the other side were monsters and giants and ghouls, but they could not pass so long as the wall stood strong. I want to stand on top with Mira, Bran thought. I want to stand on top and see. But he was a broken boy with useless legs, so all he could do was watch from below as Mira went up in his stead. She wasn't really climbing the way he used to climb. She was only walking up some steps that the Night's Watch had hewn hundreds and thousands of years ago. He remembered Maester Lewin saying the night fort was the only castle where the steps had been cut from the ice of the wall itself. Or maybe it had been Uncle Benjamin. The newer castles had wooden steps or stone ones or long ramps of earth and gravel. Ice is too treacherous. It was his uncle who told him that. He said that the outer surface of the wall wept icy tears sometimes, though the core inside stayed frozen, hard as rock. 
The steps must have melted and refrozen a thousand times since the last Black Brothers left the castle, and every time they did, they shrunk a little and got smoother and rounder and more treacherous. And smaller. It's almost like the wall was swallowing them back into itself. Mira Reed was very sure-footed, but even so she was going slowly, moving from nub to nub. In two places where the steps were hardly there at all, she got down on all fours. It will be worse when she comes down, Bran thought, watching. Even so, he wished it was him up there. When she reached the top, calling up the icy knobs that were all that remained with the higher steps, Mira vanished from his sight. When will she come down? Bran asked Jojen. When she is ready. She will want to have a good look at the wall and what's beyond. We should do the same down here. Hodor, said Hodor doubtfully. We might find something, Jojen insisted. Or something might find us. Bran couldn't say it, though. He did not want Jojen to think he was craven. So they went exploring, Jojen Reed leading, Bran in his basket on Hodor's back, Summer padding by their side. Once the direwolf bolted through a dark door and returned a moment later with a grey rat between his teeth. The rat cook, Bran thought, but it was the wrong colour, and only as big as a cat. The rat cook was white and almost as huge as a sow. There were a lot of dark doors in the night fort, and a lot of rats. Bran could hear them scurrying through the vaults and cellars and the maze of pitch-black tunnels that connected them. Jojen wanted to go poking around down there, but Hodor said, Hodor, to that, and Bran said, No. There were worse things than rats down in the dark beneath night fort. This seems an old place, Jojen said, as they walked down a gallery where the sunlight fell in dusty shafts through empty windows. Twice as old as Castle Black, Bran said, remembering. It was the first castle on the wall and the largest. But it also had been the first abandoned, all the way back in the time of the old king. Even then it had been three quarters empty and too costly to maintain. Good Queen Alessandre had suggested that the watch replace it with a smaller, newer castle, at a spot only seven miles east, where the wall curved along the shore of a beautiful green lake. Deep Lake had been paid for by the Queen's jewels, and built by the men the old king had sent north, and the Black Brothers had abandoned the night fort to the rats. That was two centuries past, though. Now Deep Lake stood as empty as the castle it had replaced, and the night fort? There are ghosts here, Bran said. Hodor had heard all the stories before, but Jojen might not have. Old ghosts, from before the old king, even before Aegon the dragon. Seventy-nine deserters who went south to be outlaws. One was Lord Risewell's youngest son, so when they reached the Barrowlands, they sought shelter at his castle but Lord Risewell took them captive and returned them to the night fort. The Lord Commander had holes hewn in the top of the wall, and he put the deserters in them and sealed them up alive in the ice. 
They have spears and horns, and they all face north. They're seventy-nine sentinels, they're called. They left their posts in life, so in death their watch goes on forever. Years later, when Lord Risewell was old and dying, he had himself carried to the night fort so he could take the black and stand beside his son. He'd sent him back to the wall for honour's sake, but he loved him still, so he came to share his watch. They spent half the day poking through the castle. Some of the towers had fallen down, and others looked unsafe. But they climbed the bell tower. The bells were gone, and the rookery. The birds were gone. Beneath the brew house they found a vault of huge oaken casks that boomed hollowly when Hodar knocked on them. They found a library. The shelves and bins had collapsed, the books were gone, and rats were everywhere. They found a dank and dim-lit dungeon with cells enough to hold five hundred captives, but when Bran grabbed hold of one of the rusted bars, it broke off in his hand. Only one crumbling wall remained of the great hall. The bathhouse seemed to be sinking into the ground, and a huge thorn-bush had conquered the practice-yard outside the armory where Black Brothers had once laboured with spear and shield and sword. The armory and the forge still stood, however, though cobwebs, rats, and dust had taken the places of blades, bellows, and anvil. Sometimes Summer would hear sounds that Bran seemed deaf to, or bare his teeth at nothing, the fur on the back of his neck bristling. But the rat-cook never put in an appearance, nor the seventy-nine sentinels, nor mad axe. Bran was much relieved. Maybe it is only a ruined empty castle. By the time Mira returned, the sun was only a sword's breadth above the western hills. What did you see? her brother Jojan asked her. I saw the haunted forest, she said in a wistful tone. Hills rising wild as far as the eye can see, covered with trees that no axe has ever touched. I saw the sunlight glinting off a lake, and clouds sweeping in from the west. I saw patches of old snow and icicles long as pikes. I even saw an eagle circling. I think he saw me too. I waved at him. Did you see a way down? asked Jojen. She shook her head. No, it's a sheer drop, and the ice is so smooth. I might be able to make the descent if I had a good rope and an axe to chop out andoles, but— But not us, Jojen finished. No, his sister agreed. Are you sure this is the place you saw in your dream? Maybe we have the wrong castle. No, this is the castle. There is a gate here. Yes thought Bran, but it's blocked by stone and ice. As the sun began to set, the shadows of the towers lengthened, and the wind blew harder, sending gusts of dry, dead leaves rattling through the yards. The gathering gloom put Bran in mind of another of old Nan's stories, the tale of Night's King. He had been the thirteenth man to lead the Night's Watch, she said, a warrior who knew no fear. And that was supporting him, she would add, for all men must know fear. A woman was his downfall, 
A woman glimpsed from atop the wall, with skin as white as a moon and eyes like blue stars. Fearing nothing, he chased her and caught her and loved her, though her skin was cold as ice, and when he gave his seed to her, he gave his soul as well. He brought her back to the night fort and proclaimed her a queen and himself her king, and with strange sorceries he bound his sworn brothers to his will. For thirteen years they had ruled, night's king and his corpse queen, till finally the Stark of Winterville and Joraman of the Wildings had joined to free the watch from bondage. After his fall, when it was found he had been sacrificing to the others, all records of Knight's King had been destroyed, his very name forbidden. Some say he was a Bolton, old Nan would always end. Some say a magna out of Stagos. Some say umber, flint, or nurry. Some would have you think he was a uh, Woodfoot, from then who ruled Bear Island before the Iron Men came. He never was. He was a Stark, the brother of the man who brought him down. She always pinched Bran on the nose then. He would never forget it. He was a Stark of Winterfell, and who could say, mayhaps his name was Brandon. <laughs> mayhaps he slept in this very bed, in this very room. No. Bran thought, but he walked in this castle where we'll sleep tonight. He did not like that notion very much at all. Night's king was only a man by light of day, old Nan would always say, but the night was his to rule. And it's getting dark. The reeds decided that they would sleep in the kitchens, a stone octagon with a broken dome. It looked to offer better shelter than most of the other buildings, even though a crooked weirwood had burst up through the slate floor beside the huge central well, stretching slantwise towards the hole in the roof, its bone-white branches reaching for the sun. It was a queer kind of tree, skinnier than any other weirwood that Bran had ever seen, and faceless as well, but it made him feel as if the old guards were with him here at least. That was the only thing he liked about the kitchens, though, the roof was mostly there, so they'd be dry if it rained again, but he didn't think they would ever get warm here. You could feel the cold seeping up through the slate floor. Bran did not like the shadows either, or the huge brick ovens that surrounded them like open mouths, or the rusted meat hooks, or the scars and stains he saw in the butcher's block along one wall. That was where the rat cook chopped the prince to pieces. He knew, and he baked the pie in one of these ovens. The well was the thing he liked the least, though. It was a good twelve feet across, all stone, with steps built into its side, circling down and down into darkness. The walls were damp and covered with nitre, but none of them could see the water at the bottom, not even Mira, with her sharp hunter's eyes. Maybe it doesn't have a bottom, Bran said uncertainly. Hodor peered over the knee-high lip of the well and said, Hodor! The words echoed down the well. Hodor! 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 Fainter and fainter, 
Hold on, hold on, hold on, until it was less than a whisper. Hodor looked startled. Then he laughed and bent to scoop a broken piece of slate off the floor. Hodor, don't, said Bran, but too late. Hodor tossed the slate over the edge. You shouldn't have done that. You don't know what's down there. You might have hurt something or... or woken something up. Hodor looked at him innocently. Hodor? Far, far, far below, they heard the sound as the stone found water. It wasn't a splash, not truly. It was more a gulp, as if whatever was below had opened a quivering, jellied mouth to swallow Hodor's stone. Faint echoes travelled up the well, and for a moment Bran thought he heard something moving, thrashing about in the water. Maybe we shouldn't stay here, he said uneasily. By the well, asked Mira, or in the night for it. Yes, said Bran. She laughed and sent Hodor out to gather wood. Summer went too. It was almost dark by then, and the dire wolf wanted to hunt. Hodor returned alone with both arms full of dead wood and broken branches. Jojen Reed took his flint and knife and set about lighting a fire, while Mira boned the fish she'd caught at the last stream they'd crossed. Bran wondered how many years had passed since there had last been a supper cooked in the kitchens of the night fort. He wondered who had cooked it, too, though maybe it was better not to know. When the flames were blazing nicely, Mira put the fish on. At least it's not a meat pie. The rat cook had cooked the son of the Andal king in a big pie with onions, carrots, mushrooms, lots of pepper and salt, a rasher of bacon, and a dark red Dornish wine. Then he'd served him to his father, who praised the taste and had a second slice. Afterwards, the guards transformed the cook into a monstrous white rat who could only eat his own young. He had roamed the night fort ever since, devouring his children, but still his hunger was not sated. It was not for murder that the gods cursed him, old Nan said. Nor for serving the handle thing is shun in a pie. A man has a right to vengeance, but he slew a guest beneath his roof, and that the gods cannot forgive. We shall sleep, Jojon said solemnly, after they were full. The fire was burning low. He stirred it with a stick. Perhaps I'll have another green dream to show us the way. Hodor was already curled up and snoring lightly. From time to time he thrashed beneath his cloak and whimpered something that might have been Hodor. Bran wriggled closer to the fire. The warmth felt good, and the soft crackling of flames soothed him. But sleep would not come. Outside, the wind was sending armies of dead leaves marching across the courtyards to scratch faintly at the doors and windows. The sounds made him think of old Nan's stories. He could almost hear the ghostly sentinels calling to each other atop the wall and winding their ghostly war horns. Pale moonlight slanted down through the hole in the dome, painting the branches of the weirwood as they strained up toward the roof. 
It looked as if the tree was trying to catch the moon and drag it down into the well. Old gods, Bran prayed, if you hear me, don't send a dream tonight, or if you do, make it a good dream. The gods made no answer. Bran made himself close his eyes. Maybe he even slept some, or maybe he was just drowsing, floating the way you do when you're half awake and half asleep, trying not to think about Mad Axe or the Rat Cook or the thing that came in the night. Then he heard the noise. His eyes opened. What was that? He held his breath. Did I dream it? Was I having a stupid nightmare? He didn't want to wake Mira and Jojen for a bad dream, but there, a soft scuttling sound, far off. Leaves. It's leaves rattling off the walls outside and rustling together, or the wind. It could be the wind. The sound wasn't coming from outside, though. Bran felt the hairs on his arms start to rise. The sound's inside. It's in here, with us. And it's, it's getting louder. He pushed himself up onto an elbow, listening. There was wind and blowing leaves as well, but this was something else. Footsteps. Someone was coming this way. Something was coming this way. It wasn't the sentinels he knew. The sentinels never left the wall. But there might be other ghosts in the night fort, ones even more terrible. He remembered what old Nan had said of Mad Axe, how he took his boots off and prowled the castle halls barefoot in the dark, with never a sound to tell you where he was except for the drops of blood that fell from his axe and his elbows and the end of his wet red beard. Or maybe it wasn't Mad Axe at all. Maybe it was the thing that came in the night. The Prentice boys all saw it, old Nan said, but afterwards, when they told their Lord Commander, every description had been different. And three died within a year, and the fourth went mad, and a hundred years later, when the thing had come again, the Prentice boys were seen shambling along behind it, all in chains. That was only a story, though. He was just scaring himself. There was no thing that comes in the night. Maester Lewin had said so. If there had ever been such a thing, it was gone from the world now, like giants and dragons. It's nothing, Bran thought. But the sounds were louder now. It's coming from the well, he realized. That made him even more afraid. Something was coming up from under the ground, coming up out of the dark. Hodor woke it up. He woke it up with that stupid piece of slate. And now it's coming. It was hard to hear over Hodor's snores and the thumping of his own heart. Was that the sound blood made, dripping from an axe? Or was it the faint, far-off rattling of ghostly chains? Bran listened harder. Footsteps. It was definitely footsteps, each one a little louder than the one before. He couldn't tell how many, though. The well made the sounds echo. He didn't hear any dripping or chains either, but there was something else. A high, thin, whimpering sound, 
like someone in pain, and heavy, muffled breathing. But the footsteps were loudest. The footsteps were coming closer. Bran was too frightened to shout. The fire had burned down to a few faint embers, and his friends were all asleep. He almost slipped his skin and reached out for his wolf. But summer might be miles away. He couldn't leave his friends helpless in the dark to face whatever was coming up out of the well. I told them not to come here, he thought miserably. I told them there were ghosts. I told them that we should go to Castle Black. The footfall sounded heavy to Bran, slow, ponderous, scraping against the stone. It must be huge. Maddox had been a big man in Old Nan's story and the thing that came in the night had been monstrous. Back in Winterfell, Sansa had told him that the demons of the dark couldn't touch him if he hid beneath his blanket. He almost did that now, before he remembered that he was a prince, and almost a man grown. Bran wriggled across the floor, dragging his dead legs behind him until he could reach out and touch Mira on the foot. She woke at once. He had never known anyone to wake as quickly as Mira Reed, or to be so alert so fast. Bran pressed a finger to his mouth, so she'd know not to speak. She heard the sound at once. He could see that on her face, the echoing footfalls, the faint whimpering, the heavy breathing. Mira rose to her feet without a word and reclaimed her weapons. With her three-pronged frog-spear in her right hand and the folds of her net dangling from her left, she slipped barefoot toward the well. Jojen dozed on, oblivious, while Hodor muttered and thrashed in restless sleep. She kept to the shadows as she moved, stepped around the shaft of moonlight as quiet as a cat. Bran was watching her all the while, and even he could barely see the faint sheen of her spear. I can't let her fight the thing alone, he thought. Summer was far away, but... He slipped his skin and reached for Hodor. It was not like sliding into summer. That was so easy now that Bran hardly thought about it. This was harder, like trying to pull a left boot over your right foot. It fit all wrong, and the boot was scared too. The boot didn't know what was happening. The boot was pushing the foot away. He tasted vomit in the back of Hodor's throat and that was almost enough to make him flee. Instead, he squirmed and shoved, sat up, gathering his legs under him, his huge, strong legs, and rose. I'm standing. He took a step. I'm walking. It was such a strange feeling that he almost fell. He could see himself on the cold stone floor, a little broken thing, but he wasn't broken now. He grabbed Hodor's longsword. The breathing was as loud as a blacksmith's bellows. From the well came a wail, a piercing creech that went through him like a knife. A huge black shape heaved itself up into the darkness and lurched toward the moonlight, and the fear rose up in Bran so thick that before he could even think of drawing Hodor's sword the way he'd meant to, he found himself back on the floor again, with Hodor roaring, Hodor! 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 The way he had in the lake tower whenever the lightning flashed. 
but the thing that came in the night was screaming too, and thrashing wildly in the folds of Mira's net. Bran saw her spear dart out of the darkness to snap at it, and the thing staggered and fell, struggling with the net. The wailing was still coming from the well, even louder now. On the floor, the black thing flopped and fought, screeching, No! No, don't! Please, don't! Mira stood over him, the moonlight shining silver off the prongs of her frog spear. Who are you? she demanded. I'm Sam! The black thing sobbed. Sam! Sam, I'm Sam! Let me out! You stabbed me! He rolled through the puddle of moonlight, flailing and flopping in the tangles of Mira's net. Hodor was still shouting, Hodor! 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 It was Jojen who fed the sticks to the fire and blew on them until the flames leapt up crackling. Then there was light, and Bran saw the pale, thin-faced girl by the lip of the well, all bundled up in furs and skins beneath an enormous black cloak, trying to shush the screaming baby in her arms. The thing on the floor was pushing an arm through the net to reach his knife, but the loops wouldn't let him. He wasn't any monster beast, or even mad axe, drenched in gore, only a big fat man dressed up in black wool, black fur, black leather, and black mail. He's a black brother, said Bran. Mira, he's from the Night's Watch. Hodor! Hodor squatted down on his haunches to peer at the man in the net. Hodor! He said again, hooting. The Night's Watch! Yes! The fat man was still breathing like a bellows. I'm a brother of the watch. He had one cord under his chins, forcing his head up, and others digging deep into his cheeks. I'm a crow. Please let me out of this. Bran was suddenly uncertain. Are you the three-eyed crow? It can't be the three-eyed crow. I don't think so. The fat man rolled his eyes but there were only two of them. I'm only Sam. Samuel Tarly. Let me out. It's hurting me. He began to struggle again. Mira made a disgusted sound. Stop flopping around. If you tear my net, I'll throw you back down the well. Just lie still, and I'll untangle you. Who are you? Jojen asked the girl with the baby. Gilly, she said for the gillyflower. He's Sam. We never meant to scare you. She rocked her baby and murmured at it, and finally it stopped crying. Mira was untangling the fat brother. Jojen went to the well and peered down. Where did you come from? From Craster's, the girl said. Are you the one? Jojen turned to look at her. The one? He said that Sam wasn't the one she explained. There was someone else, he said. The one he was sent to find. Who said? Bran demanded. Cold hands, Gilly answered softly. Mira peeled back one end of her net, and the fat man managed to sit up. He was shaking, Bran saw, and still struggling to catch his breath. He said there would be people, he huffed. People in a castle, 
I didn't know you'd be right at the top of the steps, though. I didn't know you'd throw a net on me or stab me in the stomach. He touched his belly with a black-gloved hand. Am I bleeding? I can't see. It was just a poke to get you off your feet, said Mira. Here, let me have a look. She went to one knee and felt around his navel. You're wearing mail. I never got near your skin. Well, it hurt all the same, Sam complained. Are you really a brother of the Night's Watch? Bran asked. The fat man's chins jiggled when he nodded. His skin looked pale and saggy. Only a steward, I took care of Lord Mormont's ravens. For a moment he looked like he was going to cry. I lost them at the fist, though. It was my fault. I, I got us lost, too. I couldn't even find the wall. It's a hundred leagues long and seven hundred feet high, and I couldn't find it. Well, you found it now, said Mira. Lift your rump off the ground. I want my net back. How did you get through the wall? Jojen demanded as Sam struggled to his feet. Does the well lead to an underground river? Is that where you came from? You're not even wet. There's a gate, said Fat Sam, a hidden gate as old as a wall itself. The Black Gate, he called it. The reeds exchanged a look. We'll find this gate at the bottom of the well, asked Jojen. Sam shook his head. You won't. I have to take you. Why? Mira demanded. If there's a gate, you won't find it. If you did, it wouldn't open. Not for you. It's the black gate. Sam plucked at the faded black wool of his sleeve. Only a man of the night's watch can open it, he said. A sworn brother who has said his words. He said, Jojen frowned, this cold hands? That wasn't his true name, said Gilly, rocking. We only called him that, Sam and me. His hands were cold as ice, but he saved us from the dead men, him and his ravens, and he brought us here on his elk. His elk, said Bran, wonderstruck. His elk? said Mira, startled. "'His ravens?' said Jojen. "'Hodor,' said Hodor. "'Was he green?' Bran wanted to know. "'Did he have antlers?' The fat man was confused. "'The elk?' "'Cold hands,' Bran said impatiently. "'The green men ride on elks,' old Nan used to say. "'Sometimes they have antlers, too.' He wasn't a green man. He wore blacks like a brother of the watch, but he was pale as a white, with hands so cold that at first I was afraid. The whites have blue eyes, though, and they don't have tongues, or they've forgotten how to use them. The fat man turned to Jojen. He'll be waiting. We should go. Do you have anything warmer to wear? The black day is cold. And the other side of the wall is even colder. You... Why didn't he come with you? Mira gestured toward Gilly and her babe. They came with you. Why not him? Why didn't you bring him through this black gate, too? He, uh... He can't. Why not? The wall. 
The wall is more than just ice and stone, he said. There are spells woven into it, old ones and strong. He cannot pass beyond the wall. It grew very quiet in the castle kitchen then. Bran could hear the soft crackle of the flames, the wind stirring the leaves in the night, the creak of the skinny weirwood reaching for the moon. Beyond the gates, the monsters live, and the giants and the ghouls, he remembered old Nan saying, but they cannot pass so long as the war stands strong. So go to sleep, my little Brandon, my baby boy. You needn't fear. There are no monsters here. I am not the only one you are told to bring, Jojen Reed told Fat Sam in his stained and baggy blacks. He is. Oh, Sam looked down at him uncertainly. It might have been just then that he realized Bran was crippled. I don't... I'm not strong enough to carry you. I... Odor can carry me, Bran pointed at the basket. I ride in that up on his back. Sam was staring at him. You're Jon Snow's brother, the one who fell. No, said Jojen. That boy is dead. Don't tell, Bran warned. Please. Sam looked confused for a moment, but finally he said, I, I can keep a secret. Gilly, too. When he looked at her, the girl nodded. John, John was my brother, too. He was the best friend I ever had. But he went off with Corin Halfhand to scout the Frostfangs and never came back. We were waiting for him on the fist when... when... John's here, Bran said. Summer saw him. He was with some wildlings, but they killed a man, and John took his horse and escaped. I bet he went to Castle Black. Sam turned big eyes on Mira. You're certain it was John? You saw him? I'm Mira, Mira said with a smile. Summer is... A shadow detached itself from the broken dome above and leapt down through the moonlight. Even with his injured leg, the wolf landed light and quiet as a snowfall. The girl, Gilly, made a frightened sound and clutched her babe so hard against her that he began to cry again. He won't hurt you, Bran said, that summer. John said, you all had wolves. Sam pulled off a glove. I know, ghost. He held out a shaky hand, the fingers white and soft and fat as little sausages. Summer padded closer, sniffed them, and gave the hand a lick. That was when Bran made up his mind. We'll go with you. All of you? Sam seemed surprised by that. Mira ruffled Bran's hair. He's our prince. Summer circled the well, sniffing. He paused by the top step and looked back at Bran. He wants to go. Will Gilly be safe if I leave her here till I come back? Sam asked them. She should be said Mira. She's welcome to our fire. Jojen said, The castle is empty. Gilly looked around. Craster used to tell us tales of castles, but I never knew they'd be so big. It's only the kitchens. Bran wondered what she'd think when she saw Winterfell, if she ever did. It took them a few minutes 
to gather their things and hoist Bran into his wicker seat on Hodor's back. By the time they were ready to go, Gilly sat nursing her babe by the fire. "'You'll come back for me,' she said to Sam. "'As soon as I can,' he promised. "'Then we'll go somewhere warm.' When he heard that, part of Bran wondered what he was doing. "'Will I ever go someplace warm again?' "'I'll go first. I know the way.' Sam hesitated at the top. "'There's just so many steps,' he sighed before he started down. Jojen followed, then Summer, then Hodor with Bran riding on his back. Mira took the rear with her spear and net in hand. It was a long way down. The top of the well was bathed in moonlight, but it grew smaller and dimmer every time they went around. Their footsteps echoed off the damp stones, and the water sounds grew louder. "'Should we have brought torches?' Jojen asked. "'Your eyes will adjust,' said Sam. "'Keep one hand on the wall, and you won't fall.' The well grew darker and colder with every turn. When Bran finally lifted his head around to look back up the shaft, the top of the well was no bigger than a half-moon. "'Hodor!' Hodor whispered. "'Hodor! Hodor! 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 Hodor!' The well whispered back. The water sounds were close, but when Bran peered down, he saw only blackness. A turn or two later, Sam stopped suddenly. He was a quarter of the way around the well from Bran and Hodor, and six feet farther down, yet Bran could barely see him. He could see the door, though. The Black Gate, Sam had called it. But it wasn't black at all. It was a white weirwood, and there was a face on it. A glow came from the wood, like milk and moonlight, so faint it scarcely seemed to touch anything beyond the door itself, not even Sam standing right before it. The face was old and pale, wrinkled and shrunken. It looks dead. Its mouth was closed, and its eyes. Its cheeks were sunken, its brow withered, its chin sagging. If a man could live for a thousand years and never die but just grow older, his face might come to look like that. The door opened its eyes. They were white, too, and blind. Who are you? the door asked, and the well whispered, Who, 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 who? "'I am the sword in the darkness,' Samuel Tarley said. "'I am the watcher on the walls. "'I am the fire that burns against the cold, "'the light that brings the dawn, "'the horn that wakes the sleepers. "'I am the shield that guards the realms of men.' "'Then pass,' the door said. "'Its lips opened wide and wider and wider still.' until nothing at all remained but a great gaping mouth in a ring of wrinkles. Sam stepped aside and waved Jojen through ahead of him. Summer followed, sniffing as he went, and then it was Bran's turn. Hodor ducked, but not low enough. The door's upper lip brushed softly against the top of Bran's head, and a drop of water fell on him and ran slowly down his nose. It was strangely warm and salty as a tear.
Daenerys. Marine was as large as Astabor and Yunkai combined. Like her sister cities, she was built of brick. But where Astabor had been red and Yunkai yellow, Marine was made with bricks of many colors. Her walls were higher than Yunkai's and in better repair, studded with bastions and anchored by great defensive towers at every angle. Behind them, huge against the sky, could be seen the top of the Great Pyramid, a monstrous thing eight hundred feet tall with a towering bronze harpy at its top. The harpy is a craven thing, Dario Naharis said when he saw it. She has a woman's heart and uh, a chicken's legs. <laughs> Small wonder her sons hide behind their walls. But the hero did not hide. He rode out the city gates, armoured in scales of copper and jet, and mounted upon a white charger, whose striped pink and white barding matched the silk cloak flowing from the hero's shoulders. The lance he bore was fourteen feet long, swirled in pink and white, and his hair was shaped and teased and lacquered into two great curling ram's horns. Back and forth he rode beneath the walls of multicolored bricks, challenging the besiegers to send a champion forth to meet him in single combat. Her blood riders were in such a fever to go meet him that they almost came to blows. Blood of my blood, Danny told them, your place is here by me. This man is a buzzing fly, no more. Ignore him. He will soon be gone. Ego, Jogo, and Ricaro were brave warriors, but they were young and too valuable to risk. They kept her calisar together and were her best scouts, too. And that was wisely done, Sir Jorah said, as they watched from the front of her pavilion. Let the fool ride back and forth and shout until his horse goes lame. He does us no harm. He does, Aston Whitebeard insisted. Wars are not one with swords and spears alone, sir. Two hosts of equal strength may come together, but one will break and run, whilst the other stands. This hero builds courage in the hearts of his own men, and plants the seeds of doubt in ours. Sir Jorah snorted. <laughs> and if our champion were to lose, what sort of seed would that plant? A man who fears battle wins no victory, sir. We're not speaking of battle— Marine's gates will not open if that fall falls. Why risk a life for naught? For honor, I would say. I've heard enough. Danny did not need their squabbling on top of all the other troubles that plagued her. Marine posed dangers far more serious than one pink and white hero shouting insults, and she could not let herself be distracted. Her host numbered more than eighty thousand after Yunkai, but fewer than a quarter of them were soldiers. The rest... Well, Sir Jorah called them mouths with feet, and soon they would be starving. The great masters of marine had withdrawn before Danny's advance, harvesting all they could and burning what they could not harvest. Scorched fields and poison wells had greeted her at every hand. Worst of all, they had nailed a slave child up on every milepost along the coast road from Yunkai. Nailed them up still living, with their entrails hanging out, and one arm always outstretched to point the way to Marine. Leading her van, Dario had given orders for the children to be taken down before Danny had to see them, but she had countermanded him as soon as she was told. I will see them, she said. 
I will see every one, and count them, and look upon their faces, and I will remember. By the time they came to Marine, sitting on the salt coast beside her river, the count stood at one hundred and sixty-three. I will have this city, Danny pledged to herself once more. The pink-and-white hero taunted the besiegers for an hour, mocking their manhood, mothers, wives, and gods. Marine's defenders cheered him on from the city walls. His name is Osnak Zopal, Bron Ben Plum told her when he arrived for the war council. He was the new commander of the Second Sons, chosen by a vote of his fellow sellswords. I was bodyguard to his uncle once, before I joined the Second Sons. The great masters. <laughs> what a ripe lot of maggots. The women weren't so bad. It was worth your life to look at the wrong one the wrong way. I knew a man, Scarb, this Osnack cut his liver out. Claimed to be defending a lady's honour, he did. Said Scarb had raped her with his eyes. How'd you rape a wench with eyes, I ask you. But his uncle is the richest man in Marine, and his father commands the city guard, so I had to run like a rat before he killed me too. They watched Osnag Zopal dismount his white charger, undo his robes, pull out his manhood, and direct a stream of urine in the general direction of the olive grove, where Danny's gold pavilion stood amongst the burnt trees. He was still pissing when Dario Naharis rode up, arrack in hand. Shall I cut that off for you, eh? And stuff it down his mouth, your grace. His gold tooth shone amidst the blue of his forked beard. It's his city I want, not his meagre manhood. She was growing angry, however. If I ignore this any longer, my own people will think me weak. Yet who could she send? She needed Dario as much as she did her blood riders. Without the flamboyant Tairoshi, she had no hold on the storm crows, many of whom had been followers of Prendelnagazine and Salor the Bald. High on the walls of Marine, the jeers had grown louder, and now hundreds of the defenders were taking their lead from the hero and pissing down through the ramparts to show their contempt for the besiegers. They are pissing on slaves to show how little they fear us, she thought. They would never dare such a thing if it were a Dothraki Kalasar outside their gates. This challenge must be met, Arston said again. It will be, Danny said, as the hero tucked his penis away again. Tell strong Belwas I have need of him. They found the huge brown eunuch sitting in the shade of her pavilion, eating a sausage. He finished it in three bites, wiped his greasy hands clean on his trousers, and sent Arston Whitebeard to fetch him his steel. The aged squire honed Belwas's arrack every evening and rubbed it down with bright red oil. When Whitebeard brought the sword, Strong Belwas squinted down the edge, grunted, slid the blade back into its leather sheath, and tied the sword belt about his vast waist. Arston had brought his shield as well, a round steel disc no larger than a pie plate, which the eunuch grasped with his offhand rather than strapping to his forearm in the manner of Westeros. Fine liver and onions, Whitebeard, Belwas said. Not for now, for after. Killing makes strong Belwas hungry. He did not wait for a reply, but lumbered from the olive grove 
toward Osnag's Opal. Why that one, Khaleesi? Ricaro demanded of her. He is fat and stupid. Strong Belwas was a slave here in the fighting pits. If this highborn Osnak should fall to such, the great masters will be shamed. While if he wins, well, it's a poor victory for one so noble, one that Marine can take no pride in. And unlike Sajora, Dario, Bran Ben, and her three blood riders, the eunuch did not lead troops, plan battles, or give her counsel. He does nothing but eat and boast and bellow at Arstan. Belwas was a man she could most easily spare, and it was time she learned what sort of protector Magister Illyrio had sent her. A thrum of excitement went through the siege lines when Belwas was seen plodding toward the city, and from the walls and towers of Marine came shouts and jeers. Osnag Zopal mounted up again and waited, his striped lance held upright. The charger tossed his head impatiently and pawed the sandy earth. As massive as he was, the eunuch looked small beside the hero and his horse. A chivalrous man would dismount, said Austin. Osnag Zopal lowered his lance and charged. Belwas stopped, with legs spread wide. In one hand was a small round shield, in the other the curved arrack that Arston tended with such care. His great bronze stomach and sagging chest were bare above the yellow silk sash knotted about his waist, and he wore no armor but his studded leather vest, so absurdly small that it did not even cover his nipples. "'We should have given him chainmail,' Danny said, suddenly anxious. Mail would only slow him, said Sir Jorah. They wear no armor in the fighting pits. It's blood the crowds come to see. Dust flew from the hooves of the white charger. Osnak thundered towards strong Belwas, his striped cloak streaming from his shoulders. The whole city of Marine seemed to be screaming him on. The besiegers' cheer seemed few and thin by comparison. Her unsolid stood in silent ranks, watching with stone faces. Belwas might have been made of stone as well. He stood in the horse's path, his vest stretched tight across his broad back. Osnak's lance was leveled at the center of his chest. Its bright steel point winked in the sunlight. He's going to be impaled, she thought, as the eunuch spun sideways, and quick as the blink of an eye, the horseman was beyond him, wheeling, raising the lance. Belwas made no move to strike at him. The Miranese on the wall screamed even louder. What is he doing? Danny demanded. Giving the mob a show, Sir Jorah said. Osnak brought the horse around Belwas in a wide circle, then dug in with his spurs and charged again. Again Belwas waited, then spun and knocked the point of the lance aside. She could hear the eunuch's booming laughter echoing across the plain as the hero went past him. The lance is too long, Sir Jorah said. All Belwas needs do is avoid the point. Instead of trying to spit him so prettily, the fool should ride right over him. Osnak's Opal charged a third time, and now Danny could see plainly that he was riding past Belwas, the way a Westerosi knight might ride at an opponent in a tilt rather than at him, like a Dothraki riding down a foe. The flat level ground allowed the charger to get up a good speed, 
but it also made it easy for the eunuch to dodge the cumbersome 14-foot lance. Marine's pink-and-white hero tried to anticipate this time, and swung his lance sideways at the last second, to catch Strong Belwas when he dodged, but the eunuch had anticipated too, and this time he dropped down instead of spinning sideways. The lance passed harmlessly over his head, and suddenly Belwas was rolling, and bringing the razor-sharp Arak around in a silver arc. They heard the charger scream as the blade bit into his legs, and then the horse was falling, the hero tumbling from the saddle. A sudden silence swept along the brick parapets of Marine. Now it was Danny's people who were screaming and cheering. Osnak leapt clear of his horse and managed to draw his sword before strong Belwas was on him. Steel sang against steel, too fast and furious for Danny to follow the blows. It could not have been a dozen heartbeats before Belwas's chest was awash in blood from a slice below his breast, and Osnak Zopal had an arrack planted right between his ram's horns. The eunuch wrenched the blade loose and parted the hero's head from his body with three savage blows to the neck. He held it up high for the Maronese to see, then flung it toward the city gates and let it bounce and roll across the sand. So much for the hero of Marine, said Dario, laughing. A victory without meaning, Sir Jorah cautioned. We will not win Marine by killing its defenders one at a time. No, Danny agreed, but I'm pleased we killed this one. The defenders on the walls began firing their crossbows at Belwas, but the bolts fell short or skittered harmlessly along the ground. The eunuch turned his back on the steel-tipped rain, lowered his trousers, squatted, and shat in the direction of the city. He wiped himself with Osnak's striped cloak and paused long enough to loot the hero's corpse and put the dying horse out of its agony before trudging back to the olive grove. The besiegers gave him a raucous welcome as soon as he reached the camp. A Dothraki hooted and screamed, and the unsullied sent up a great clangor by banging their spears against their shields. Well done, Sir Jorah told him, and Bran Ben tossed the eunuch a ripe plum and said, A sweet fruit for a sweet fight. Even her Dothraki handmaids had words of praise. We would braid your hair and hang a bell in it, Strong Belwas, said Jiqui, but you have no hair to braid. Strong Belwas needs no tinkly bells. The eunuch ate Bran Ben's plum in four big bites and tossed aside the stone. Strong Belwas needs liver and onions. You shall have it, said Danny. Strong Belwas is hurt. His stomach was red with the blood, sheeting down from the meaty gash beneath his breasts. It is nothing. I let each man cut me once before I kill him. He slapped his bloody belly. Count the cuts and you will know how many strong Belwas are slain. But Danny had lost Carl Drogo to a similar wound, and she was not willing to let it go untreated. She sent Miss Handy to find a certain Yunkish freedman, renowned for his skill in the healing arts. Belwas howled and complained, but Danny scolded him and called him a big, bald baby until he let the healer staunch the wound with vinegar, sew it shut, and bind his chest 
with strips of linen soaked in fire-wine. Only then did she lead her captains and commanders inside her pavilion for their council. I must have this city, she told them, sitting cross-legged on a pile of cushions, her dragons all about her. Iri and Jiqui poured wine. Her granaries are full to bursting. There are figs and dates and olives growing on the terraces of her pyramids, and casks of salt fish and smoked meat buried in her cellars. And uh, fat chests of gold, silver, and gemstones as well, Dario reminded them. Let us not forget the gemstones. I've had a look at the landward walls, and I see no point of weakness, said Sir John a moment. Given time, we might be able to mine beneath a tower and make a breach. But what do we eat while we're digging? Our stores are all but exhausted. No weakness in the landward walls, said Danny. Maureen stood on a jot of sand and stone, where the slow brown Skahazadan flowed into Slaver's Bay. The city's north wall ran along the river bank, its west along the bay shore. Does that mean we might attack from the river or the sea? With three ships, we'll want to have Captain Grolio take a good look at the wall along the river, but unless it's crumbling, that's just a wetter way to die. What if we were to build siege towers? My brother Viserys told tales of such. I know they can be made. From ward, your grace, Sir Jorah said. The slavers have burnt every tree within twenty leagues of here. Without wood, we have no trebuchets to smash the walls, no ladders to go over them, no siege towers, no turtles, and no rams. We can storm the gates with axes, to be sure, but— Did you see them bronze heads above the gates? asked Bran Ben Plum. Rows of harpy heads with open mouths. The Maronese can squirt boiling oil out of their mouths and cook your axemen where they stand. Dario Naharis gave Grey Worm a smile. Perhaps the unsullied should wield their axes. Boiling oil feels like no more than a warm bath to you, I have heard. This is false. Grey Worm did not return the smile. These ones do not feel burns as men do, yet such oil blinds and kills. The unsullied do not fear to die, though. Give these ones rams, and we will batter down these gates or die in the attempt. You would die, said Brown Ben. At Yonkai, when he took command of the Second Sons, he claimed to be the veteran of a hundred battles. Though I will not say I fought bravely in all of them. There are old swords and bold swords, but no old bold swords. She saw that it was true. Danny sighed. I will not throw away unsolid lives, Grey Worm. Perhaps we can starve the city out. Sir Jorah looked unhappy. We'll starve long before they do, Your Grace. There's no food here, no fodder for our mules and horses. I do not like this river water either. Marine shits into the Skahazadan, but draws its drinking water from deep wells. Already we've had reports of sickness in the camps, fever and brown leg, and three cases of the bloody flux. There will be more if we remain. The slaves are weak from the march. Freedmen, Danny corrected. They are slaves no longer. Slave or free, they are hungry and they'll soon be sick. The city is better provisioned than we are. 
and can be resupplied by water. Your three ships are not enough to deny them access to both the river and the sea. Then what do you advise, Sir Jorah? You will not like it. I would hear it all the same. As you wish. I say, let this city be. You cannot free every slave in the world, Khaleesi. Your war is in Westeros. I have not forgotten Westeros. Danny dreamt of it some nights, this fabled land that she had never seen. If I let Marine's old brick walls defeat me so easily, though, how will I ever take the great stone castles of Westeros? Is Aegon did, Sir Jorah said, with fire. By the time we reach the Seven Kingdoms, your dragons will be grown, and we will have siege towers and trebuchets as well, all the things we lack here. But the way across the lands of the long summer is long and grueling, and there are dangers we cannot know. You stopped at Astapor to buy an army, not to start a war. Save your spears and swords for the seven kingdoms, my queen. Leave Marine to the Miranese, and march west for Pentos. Defeated, said Danny, bristling. When cowards hide behind great walls, it is they who are defeated, Khaleesi, Kojogo said. Her other blood riders concurred. Blood of my blood, said Ricardo. When cowards hide and burn the food and fodder, great carls must seek for braver foes. This is known. It is known, Jiqui agreed as she poured. Not to me. Dennis had great store by Sir Jorah's counsel, but to leave Marine untouched was more than she could stomach. She could not forget the children on their posts, the birds tearing at their entrails, their skinny arms pointing up the coast road. Sir Jorah, you say we have no food left. If I march west, how can I feed my freedmen? You cannot. I'm sorry, Khaleesi. They must feed themselves or starve. Many and more will die along the march, yes. That will be hard. But there is no way to save them. We need to put this scorched earth well behind us. Danny had left a trail of corpses behind her when she crossed the Red Waste. It was a sight she never meant to see again. No, she said. I will not march my people off to die. My children? There must be some way into this city. I know a way. Bron Ben Plum stroked his speckled grey and white beard. Sewers. Sewers? What do you mean? Great brick sewers empty into the Skahazadan, carrying the city's waste. They might be a way in, for a few. That was how I escaped Marine after Scarb lost his head. Bron Ben made a face. The smell has never left me. I dream of it some nights. Sir Jorah looked dubious. Easier to go out than in, it would seem to me. These sewers empty into the river, you say. That would mean the mouths are right below the walls. And closed with iron grates, Bram Ben admitted. Though some have rusted through, else I would have drowned in shit. Once inside, it's a long, foul climb in pitch dark through a maze of brick where a man could lose himself forever. The filth is never lower than waist-high and can rise above your head from the stains I saw on the walls. There's things down there, too, biggest rats you ever saw, and worse things, nasty. Dario Naharis laughed. As nasty as you, 
when you came crying out, eh? <laughs> if any man were fool enough to try this, every slaver and marine would smell them the moment they emerged. Bron Ben shrugged. Ergrays asked if there was a way in, so I told her. But Ben Plum isn't going down in them sores again, not for all the gold in the Seven Kingdoms. If there's others want to try it there, they're welcome. Ego, Jogo, and Grey Worm all tried to speak at once, but Danny raised her hand for silence. These sores do not sound promising. Grey Worm would lead his unsolid down the sores if she commanded it, she knew. Her blood riders would do no less, but none of them were suited to the task. The Dothraki were horsemen, and the strength of the unsolid was their discipline on the battlefield. Can I send men to die in the dark on such a slender hope? I must think on this some more. Return to your duties. Her captains bowed and left her with her handmaids and her dragons. But as Brown Ben was leaving, Viserion spread his pale white wings and flapped lazily at his head. One of the wings buffeted the cell sword in his face. The white dragon landed awkwardly with one foot on the man's head and one on his shoulder, shrieked, and flew off again. He likes you, Ben, said Danny. And well he might, Brown Ben laughed. I have me a drop of the dragon blood myself, you know. You? Danny was startled. Plum was a creature of the free companies, an amiable mongrel. He had a broad brown face with a broken nose and a head of nappy grey hair, and his Dothraki mother had bequeathed him large brown almond-shaped eyes. He claimed to be part Bravasi, part Summon Islander, part Ibanese, part Kohorik, part Dothraki, part Dornish, and part Westerussi, but this was the first she had heard of Targaryen blood. She gave him a searching look and said, How could that be? Well, said Brown Ben, there was some old plum in the Sunset Kingdoms who wed a dragon princess. My grandmama told me the tale. He lived in King Aegon's day. Which King Aegon? Danny asked. Five Aegons have ruled in Westeros. Her brother's son would have been the sixth, but the usurper's men had dashed his head against a wall. Five, were they? Well, that's a confusion. I could not give you a number, my queen. This old plum was a lord, though. Must have been a famous fellow in his day, the talk of all the land. The thing was, begging your royal pardon, he had himself a cock six foot long. The three bells in Danny's braid tinkled when she laughed. You, you mean inches, I think. Feet, Brown Ben said firmly. If it was inches, who'd want to talk about it now? Your Grace? Danny giggled like a little girl. Did your grandmother claim she'd actually seen this prodigy? That the old crone never did. She was half Ebenese and half Coorric. Never been to Westeros. My grandfather must have told her. Some Dothraki killed him before I was born. And where did your grandfather's knowledge come from? One of them tales told at the tit, I'd guess. Bron Ben shrugged. That's all I know about Aegon the Unnumbered or old Lord Plum's mighty manhood, I fear. I best see to my sons. Go do that, Danny told him. When Bron Ben left, she lay back on her cushions. If you were grown, she told Drogon, scratching him between the horns, I'd fly you over the walls 
and melt that harpy down to slag. But it would be years before her dragons were large enough to ride. And when they are, who shall ride them? The dragon has three heads, but I have only one. She thought of Dario. If ever there was a man who could rape a woman with his eyes. To be sure, she was just as guilty. Danny found herself stealing looks at the Tyroshi when her captains came to council, and sometimes at night she remembered the way his gold tooth glittered when he smiled. That and his eyes, his bright blue eyes. On the road from Yankai, Dario had brought her a flower or a sprig of some plant every evening when he made his report to help her learn the land, he said. Wasp willow, dusky roses, wild mint, ladies' lace, dagger leaf, broom, prickly ben, harpy's gold. He tried to spare me the sight of the dead children, too. He should not have done that, but he meant it kindly. And Dario Naharez made her laugh, which Sajara never did. Danny tried to imagine what it would be like if she allowed Dario to kiss her, the way Jara had kissed her on the ship. The thought was exciting and disturbing both at once. It's too great a risk. The Tyroshi sellsword was not a good man. No one needed to tell her that. Under the smiles and jests he was dangerous, even cruel. Salor and Prendal had woken one morning as his partners. That very night he'd given her their heads. Carl Drogo could be cruel as well, and there was never a man more dangerous. She had come to love him all the same. Could I love Dario? What would it mean if I took him into my bed? Would that make him one of the heads of the dragon? Sir Jorro would be angry, she knew, but he was the one who said she had to take two husbands. Perhaps I should marry them both and be done with it. But these were foolish thoughts. She had a city to take, and dreaming of kisses and some sell-sword's bright blue eyes would not help her breach the walls of Marine. I am the blood of the dragon, Danny reminded herself. Her thoughts were spinning in circles like a rat chasing its tail. Suddenly she could not stand the close confines of the pavilion another moment. I want to feel the wind on my face and smell the sea. Miss Sandy, she called. Have my silver saddled, your own mount as well. The little scribe bowed. As your grace commands, shall I summon your bloodliders to guard you? We'll take our stand. I do not mean to leave the camps. She had no enemies among her children, and the old squire would not talk too much, as Belwas would, or look at her like Dario. The grove of burnt olive trees in which she raised her pavilion stood beside the sea, between the Dothraki camp and that of the Unsullied. When the horses had been saddled, Danny and her companions set out along the shoreline away from the city. Even so, she could feel Marine at her back, mocking her. When she looked over one shoulder, there it stood, the afternoon sun blazing off the bronze harpy atop the Great Pyramid. Inside Marine, the slavers would soon be reclining in their fringed tokars to feast on lamb and olives, unborn puppies, honeyed dormice, and other such delicacies, whilst outside her children went hungry. 
A sudden wild anger filled her. I will bring you down, she swore. As they rode past the stakes and pits that surrounded the eunuch encampment, Danny could hear Grey Worm and his sergeants running one company through a series of drills with shield, short sword, and heavy spear. Another company was bathing in the sea, clad only in white linen breechclouts. The eunuchs were very clean, she had noticed. Some of her cell swords smelled as if they had not washed or changed their clothes since her father lost the Iron Throne, but the unsullied bathed each evening, even if they'd marched all day. When no water was available, they cleansed themselves with sand the Dothraki way. The eunuchs knelt as she passed, raising clenched fists to their breasts. Danny returned the salute. The tide was coming in, and the surf foamed about the feet of her silver. She could see her ships standing out to sea. Balerion floated nearest, the great cog once known as Sardulian. Her sails furled. Further out were the galleys, Meraxes, and Vagar, formerly Jozo's Prank and Summer Sun. They were Magister Illyrio's ships, in truth, not hers at all, and yet she had given them new names with hardly a thought. Dragon names and more. In old Valeria before the doom, Valerian, Meraxes, and Vagar had been gods. South of the ordered realm of stakes, pits, drills, and bathing eunuchs lay the encampments of her freedmen, a far noisier and more chaotic place. Danny had armed the former slaves as best she could with weapons from Astapor and Yunkai, and Sir Jorah had organized the fighting men into four strong companies. Yet she saw no one drilling here. They passed a driftwood fire, where a hundred people had gathered to roast the carcass of a horse. She could smell the meat and hear the fat sizzling as the spit boys turned, but the sight only made her frown. Children ran behind their horses, skipping and laughing. Instead of salutes, voices called to her on every side in a babel of tongues. Some of the freedmen greeted her as mother, whilst others begged for boons or favours. Some prayed for strange gods to bless her, and some asked her to bless them instead. She smiled at them, turning right and left, touching their hands when they raised them, letting those who knelt reach up to touch her stirrup or her leg. Many of the freedmen believed there was good fortune in her touch. If it helps give them courage, let them touch me, she thought. There are hard trials yet ahead. Danny had stopped to speak to a pregnant woman who wanted the mother of dragons to name her baby, when someone reached up and grabbed her left wrist. Turning, she glimpsed a tall, ragged man with a shaved head and a sunburnt face. Not so hard! she started to say, but before she could finish, he'd yanked her bodily from the saddle. The ground came up and knocked the breath out of her as her silver whinnied and backed away. Stunned, Danny rolled to her side and pushed herself onto one elbow. And then she saw the sword. There's that treacherous sow, he said. <laughs> I knew you'd come to get your feet kissed one day. His head was bald as a melon, his nose red and peeling, but she knew that voice and those pale green eyes. I'm going to start by cutting off your tits. Danny was dimly aware of Masandi shouting for help. A freedman edged forward, but only a step, 
One quick slash, and he was on his knees, blood running down his face. Miro wiped his sword on his breeches. Who's next? I am. Austin Whitebeard leapt from his horse and stood over her. The salt wind riffling through his snowy hair, both hands on his tall hardwood staff. Grandfather, Miro said, run off before I break your stick in two and buggy you with. The old man fainted with one end of the staff, pulled it back, and whipped the other end about faster than Danny would have believed. The titan's bastard staggered back into the surf, spitting blood and broken teeth from the ruin of his mouth. Whitebeard put Danny behind him. Miro slashed at his face. The old man jerked back, cat quick. The staff thumped Miro's ribs, sending him reeling. Austin splashed sideways, parried a looping cut, danced away from a second, checked a third mid-swing. The moves were so fast she could hardly follow. Missandei was pulling Danny to her feet when she heard a crack. She thought Austin's staff had snapped until she saw the jagged bone jutting from Miro's calf. As he fell, the titan's bastard twisted and lunged, sending his point straight at the old man's chest. Whitebeard swept the blade aside almost contemptuously and smashed the other end of his staff against the big man's temple. Mero went sprawling, blood bubbling from his mouth as the waves washed over him. A moment later, the freedman washed over him too, knives and stones and angry fists rising and falling in a frenzy. Danny turned away, sickened. She was more frightened now than when it had been happening. He would have killed me. Your grace, Austin knelt. I am an old man, and shamed. He should never have gotten close enough to see you. I was lax. I did not know him without his beard and hair. No more than I did. Danny took a deep breath to stop her shaking. Enemies everywhere. Take me back to my tent, please. By the time Mormont arrived, she was huddled in her lion's pelt, drinking a cup of spice wine. I had a look at the river wall, Sir Jorah started. It's a few feet higher than the others and just as strong, and the Miranese have a dozen fire hulks tied up beneath the ramparts. She cut him off. You might have warned me that the titan's bastard had escaped. He frowned. I saw no need to frighten you, Your Grace. I have offered a reward for his head. Pay it to Whitebeard. Murrow has been with us all the way from Yonkai. He shaved his beard off and lost himself amongst the freedmen, waiting for a chance for vengeance. Arston killed him. Sir Jorah gave the old man a long look. A squire with a stick slew Murrow of Bravos? Is that the way of it? A stick? Danny confirmed, but no longer a squire. Sir Jorah, it's my wish that Arstan be knighted. No. The loud refusal was surprised enough. Stranger still, it came from both men at once. Sir Jorah drew his sword. The titan's bastard was a nasty piece of work and good at killing. Who are you, old man? A better knight than you, sir, Arstan said coldly. Knight? Danny was confused. You said you were a squire. I was, Your Grace. He dropped to one knee. I squired for Lord Swan in my youth, and at Magistro Illyria's behest I have served strong Belwas as well. But during the years between, 
I was a knight in Westeros. I have told you no lies, my queen. Yet there are truths I have withheld. And for that, and all my other sins, I can only beg your forgiveness. What truths have you withheld? Danny did not like this. You will tell me, now. He bowed his head. It cost, when you asked my name. I said I was called Arsthead. That much was true. Many men had called me by that name, while Belros and I were making our way east to find you. What is not my true name? She was more confused than angry. He has played me false, just as Jara warned me. Yet he saved my life just now. Sir Jorah flushed red. Murrow shaved his beard, but you grew one, didn't you? No wonder you look so bloody familiar. You know him? Danny asked the exile knight. Lost. I saw him perhaps a dozen times, from afar most often, standing with his brothers or riding in some tawny, but every man in the Seven Kingdoms knew Barristan the Bold. He laid the point of his sword against the old man's neck. Khaleesi, before you kneel, Sir Barristan Selmy, Lord Commander of the King's Guard, who betrayed your house to serve the usurper Robert Baratheon. The old knight did not so much as blink. The crow calls the raven black, and you speak of betrayal. Why are you here? Danny demanded of him. If Robert sent you to kill me, why did you save my life? He served the usurper. He betrayed Rhaegar's memory and abandoned Viserys to live and die in exile. Yet if he wanted me dead, he need only have stood aside. I want the whole truth now, on your honor as a knight. Are you the usurper's man or mine? Yours, if you will have me. Sir Barristan had tears in his eyes. I took Robert's pardon, I... I served him in King's Guard and Council, served with the King Slayer and others near as bad who soiled the white cloak I wore. Nothing will excuse that. I might be serving in King's Landing still if the vile boy upon the Iron Throne had not cast me aside. It shames me to admit. But when he took the cloak that the white bull had draped about my shoulders— and sent men to kill me that selfsame day. It was as though he dripped a call off my eyes. That was when I knew I must find my true king and die in his service. I can grant that wish, Sir Jorah said darkly. Quiet, said Danny. I'll hear him out. It may be that I must die a traitor's death, Sir Barristan said. If so... I should not die alone. Before I took Robert's pardon, I fought against him on the Trident. You were on the other side of that battle moment, were you not? He did not wait for an answer. Your Grace, I am sorry I misled you. It was the only way to keep the Lannisters from learning that I had joined you. You are watched, as your brother was. Lord Varys reported every move a series made for years. Whilst I sat on the small council... I heard a hundred such reports, and since the day you wed Carl Drogo, there has been an informer by your side selling your secrets, trading whispers to the spider for gold and promises. He cannot mean. You, you are mistaken. 
Danny looked at Jorah Mormon. Tell him he's mistaken. There's no informer, Sir Jorah. Tell him. We crossed the Dothraki Sea together and the Red Waste. Her heart fluttered like a bird in a trap. Tell him, Jorah. Tell him how he got it wrong. The others take you, Selmy. Sir Jorah flung his long sword to the carpet. Khaleesi, it was only at the start, before I came to know you, before I came to love. Do not say that word. She backed away from him. How could you? What did the usurper promise you? Gold? Was it gold? The undying had said she would be betrayed twice more, once for gold and once for love. Tell me what you were promised. Vari said I might go home. He bowed his head. I was going to take you home. Her dragon sensed her fury. The Syrian roared, and smoke rose grey from his snout. Drogon beat the air with black wings, and Rhaegal twisted his head back and belched flame. I should say the word, and burn the two of them. Was there no one she could trust, no one to keep her safe? Are all the knights of Westeros so false as you two? Get out, before my dragons roast you both. What does roast liar smell like? As foul as brown Ben sewers? Go! Sir Barristan rose stiff and slow. For the first time he looked his age. Where shall we go, your grace? To hell, to serve King Robert. Danny felt hot tears on her cheeks. Drogon screamed, lashing his tail back and forth. The others can have you both. Go, go away forever, both of you. The next time I see your faces, I'll have your traitors' heads off. She could not say the words, though. They betrayed me, but they saved me. But they lied. You go! My bear, my fierce, strong bear, what will I do without him? And the old man, my brother's friend, you go, go! Where? And then she knew. Tyrion Tyrion dressed himself in darkness, listening to his wife's soft breathing from the bed they shared. She dreams, he thought, when Sansa murmured something softly, a name perhaps though it was too faint to say, and turned onto her side. As man and wife they shared a marriage bed, but that was all. Even her tears she hoards to herself. He had expected anguish and anger when he told her of her brother's death, but Sansa's face had remained so still that for a moment he feared she had not understood. It was only later, with a heavy oaken door between them, that he heard her sobbing. Tyrion had considered going to her then, to offer what comfort he could. No, he had to remind himself, she will not look for solace from a Lannister. The most he could do was to shield her from the uglier details of the Red Wedding as they came down from the twins. Sansa did not need to hear how her brother's body had been hacked and mutilated, he decided, nor how her mother's corpse had been dumped naked into the green fork in a savage mockery of House Tully's funeral customs. The last thing the girl needed 
was more fodder for her nightmares. It was not enough, though. He had wrapped his cloak around her shoulders and sworn to protect her, but that was as cruel a jape as the crown the phrase had placed atop the head of Robstark's direwolf after they'd sewn it onto his headless corpse. Sansa knew that as well, the way she looked at him, her stiffness when she climbed into their bed. When he was with her, never for an instant could he forget who he was or what he was, no more than she did. She still went nightly to the god's wood to pray, and Tyrion wondered if she were praying for his death. She had lost her home, her place in the world, and everyone she had ever loved or trusted. Winter is coming, warned the stark words, and truly it had come for them with a vengeance. But it is high summer for House Lannister, so why am I so bloody cold? He pulled on his boots, fastened his cloak with a lion's head brooch, and slipped out into the torch-lit hall. There was this much to be said for his marriage. It had allowed him to escape Magor's holdfast. Now that he had a wife and household, his lord father had agreed that more suitable accommodations were required, and Lord Giles had found himself abruptly dispossessed of his spacious apartments atop the kitchen keep. And splendid apartments they were, too, with a large bedchamber, an adequate solar, a bath and dressing-room for his wife, and small adjoining chambers for Pod and Sansa's maids. Even bronze cell by the stair had a window of sorts. Well, more an arrow slit, but it lets in light. The castle's main kitchen was just across the courtyard, true, but Tyrion found those sounds and smells infinitely preferable to sharing Magor's with his sister. The less he had to see of Cersei, the happier he was like to be. Tyrion could hear Brella snoring as he passed her cell. Shay complained of that, but it seemed a small enough price to pay. Varys had suggested the woman to him. In former days she had run Lord Renly's household in the city, which had given her a deal of practice at being blind, deaf, and mute. Lighting a taper, he made his way back to the servants' steps and descended. The floors below his own were still, and he heard no footsteps but his own. Down he went, to the ground floor and beyond, to emerge in a gloomy cellar with a vaulted stone ceiling. Much of the castle was connected underground, and the kitchen keep was no exception. Tyrion waddled along a long dark passageway until he found the door he wanted, and pushed through. Within, the dragon skulls were waiting, and so was Shay. I thought my lord had forgotten me. Her dress was draped over a black tooth near as tall as she was, and she stood within the dragon's jaws, nude. Balerion, he thought. Or was it Vagar? One dragon skull looked much like another. Just the sight of her made him hard. Come out of there. I won't, she smiled her wickedest smile. My lord will pluck me from the dragon's jaws, I know. But when he waddled closer, she leaned forward and blew out the taper. She? He reached, but she spun and slipped free. You have to catch me. Her voice came from his left. My lord must have played monsters and maidens when he was little. 
Are you calling me a monster? No more than I'm a maiden. She was behind him, her steps soft against the floor. You need to catch me all the same. He did, finally, but only because she let herself be caught. By the time she slipped into his arms, he was flushed and out of breath from stumbling into dragon skulls. All that was forgotten in an instant when he felt her small breasts pressing against his face in the dark, her stiff little nipples brushing lightly over his lips and the scar where his nose had been. Tyrion pulled her down onto the floor. My giant, she breathed as he entered her. My giants, come to save me. After, as they lay entwined amongst the dragon skulls, he rested his head against her, inhaling the smooth, clean smell of her hair. We should go back, he said reluctantly. It must be near dawn. Sansa will be waking. You should give her dream wine, Shay said, like Lady Tender does with lollies. A cup before she goes to sleep, and we could fuck in bed beside her without her waking. She giggled. Maybe we should, some night. Would my lord like that? Her hand found his shoulder and began to knead the muscles there. Your neck is hard as stone. What troubles you? Tyrion could not see his fingers in front of his face, but he ticked his woes off on them all the same. My wife, my sister, my nephew, my father, the Tyrells. He had to move to the other hand. Varys, Pycelle, Littlefinger, the Red Viper of Dawn. He had come to his last finger. The face that stares back out of the water when I wash. Shay kissed his maimed, scarred nose. A brave face, a kind and good face. I wish I could see it now. All the sweet innocence of the world was in her voice. Innocence? Fool, she's a whore. All she knows of men is the bit between their legs. Fool, fool. Better you than me. Tyrion sat. We have a long day before us, both of us. You shouldn't have blown out that taper. How are we to find our clothing? She laughed. Maybe we'll have to go naked. And if we're seen, my lord father will hang you. Hiring Shay as one of Sansa's maids had given him an excuse to be seen talking with her, but Tyrion did not delude himself that they were safe. Varys had warned him. I gave her a false history, but it was meant for lollies and Lady Tender. Your sister is of more suspicious mind. If she should ask me what I know, you will tell her some clever lie. No, I will tell her that the girl is a common camp follower that you acquired before the battle on the Green Fork and brought to King's Landing against your lord father's express command. I will not lie to the queen. You have lied to her before? Shall I tell her that? The eunuch sighed. That cuts more deeply than a knife, my lord. I have served you loyally, but I must also serve your sister when I can. How long do you think she would let me live? if I were of no further use to her whatsoever. 
I have no fierce sellsword to protect me, no valiant brother to avenge me, only some little birds who whisper in my ear. With those whisperings, I must buy my life anew each day. Pardon me if I do not weep for you. I shall, but you must pardon me if I do not weep for Shay. I confess I do not understand what there is in her to make a clever man like you act such a fool. You might, if you were not a eunuch. Was that the way of it? <laughs> a man may have wits or a bit of meat between his legs, but not both. <laughs> Varius tittered. Perhaps I should be grateful I was cut then. The spider was right. Tyrion groped through the dragon-haunted darkness for his small clothes, feeling wretched. The risk he was taken left him tight as a drumhead, and there was guilt as well. The others can take my guilt, he thought, as he slipped his tunic over his head. Why should I feel guilty? My wife wants no part of me, and most especially not the part that seems to want her. Perhaps he ought to tell her about Shay. It was not as though he was the first man ever to keep a concubine. Sansa's own oh-so-honourable father had given her a bastard brother. For all he knew, his wife might be thrilled to learn that he was fucking Shay, so long as it spared her his unwelcome touch. No, I dare not. Vows or no, his wife could not be trusted. She might be maiden between her legs, but she was hardly innocent of betrayal. She had once spilled her own father's plans to Cersei, and girls her age were not known for keeping secrets. The only safe course was to rid himself of Shay. I might send her to Shataya, Tyrion reflected, reluctantly. In Shataya's brothel, Shay would have all the silks and gems she could wish for, and the gentlest, high-born patrons. It would be a better life by far than the one she had been living when he found her. Or, if she was tired of earning her bread on her back, he might arrange a marriage for her. Brun, perhaps. The sellsword had never balked at eating off his master's plate, and he was a knight now, a better match than she could elsewise hope for. Or Sir Talad. Tyrion had noticed that one gazing wistfully at Shay more than once. Why not? He's tall, strong, not hard to look upon, every inch the gifted young knight. Of course, Talad knew Shay only as a pretty young lady's maid in service at the castle. If he wed her and then learned she was a whore. My lord, where are you? Did the dragons eat you up? No, here. He groped at a dragon's skull. I have found a shoe, but I believe it's yours. My lord sounds very solemn. Have I displeased you? No, he said too curtly. You always please me. And therein is our danger. He might dream of sending her away at times like this, but that never lasted long. Tyrion saw her dimly through the gloom, pulling a woolen sock up a slender leg. I can see. A vague light was leaking through the row of long, narrow windows set high in the cellar wall. The skulls 
of the Targaryen dragons were emerging from the darkness around them, black amidst grey. Day comes too soon. A new day, a new year, a new century. I survived the Green Fork and the Blackwater. I can bloody well survive King Joffrey's wedding. Shay snatched her dress down off the dragon's tooth and slipped it over her head. I'll go up first. Brello will want help with the bathwater. She bent over to give him one last kiss upon the brow. My giant of Lannister, I love you so. And I love you as well, sweetling. A whore she might well be, but she deserved better than what he had to give her. I will wed her to Sir Tallard. He seems a decent man, and tall. Sansa That was such a sweet dream, Sansa thought drowsily. She had been back in Winterfell, running through the godswood with her lady. Her father had been there, and her brothers, all of them warm and safe. If only dreaming could make it so. She threw back the coverlets. I must be brave. Her torments would soon be ended one way or the other. If Lady was here, I would not be afraid. Lady was dead, though. Rob, Bran, Rickon, Arya, her father, her mother, even Septimordain. All of them dead but me. She was alone in the world now. Her lord husband was not beside her, but she was used to that. Tyrion was a bad sleeper, and often rose before the dawn. Usually she found him in the solar, hunched beside a candle, lost in some old scroll or leather-bound book. Sometimes the smell of the morning bread from the ovens took him to the kitchens, and sometimes he would climb up to the roof garden or wander all alone down Traitor's Walk. She threw back the shutters and shivered as goose prickles rose along her arms. There were clouds massing in the eastern sky, pierced by shafts of sunlight. They looked like two huge castles afloat in the morning sky. Sansa could see their walls of tumble stone, their mighty keeps and barbicans. Wispy banners swirled from atop their towers and reached for the fast-fading stars. The sun was coming up behind them, and she watched them go from black to grey to a thousand shades of rose and gold and crimson. Soon the wind mushed them together, and there was only one castle where there had been two. She heard the door open as her maids brought the hot water for her bath. They were both new to her service. Turin said the women who tended her previously had all been Cersei's spies, just as Sansa had always suspected. Come see, she told them, there's a castle in the sky. They came to have a look. It's made of gold. Shay had short, dark hair and bold eyes. She did all that was asked of her, but sometimes she gave Sansa the most insolent looks. A castle all of gold. There's a sight I'd like to see. A castle, is it? Brella had to squint. That tower's tumbling over. Looks like it's all ruins, that is. Sansa did not want to hear about falling towers and ruined castles. She closed the shutters and said, 
We are expected at the Queen's breakfast. Is my lord husband in the solar? No, my lady, said Brella. I have not seen him. Might be he went to see his father, Shay declared. Might be the King's hand had need of his counsel. Brella gave a sniff. Lady Sansa, you'll be wanting to get into the tub before the water gets too cool. Sansa let Shay pull her shift overhead and climbed into the big wooden tub. She was tempted to ask for a cup of wine to calm her nerves. The wedding was to be at midday in the great sept of Baylor across the city, and come even for all the feast would be held in the throne room. A thousand guests and seventy-seven courses, with singers and jugglers and mummers. But first came breakfast in the Queen's ballroom for the Lannisters and the Tyrell men. The Tyrell women would be breaking their fast with Marjorie, and a hundred odd knights and lordlings. They have made me a Lannister, Sansa thought bitterly. Brella sent Shay to fetch more hot water while she washed Sansa's back. You're trembling, my lady. The water is not hot enough, Sansa lied. Her maids were dressing her when Tyrion appeared, Podrick Payne in tow. You look lovely, Sansa. He turned to his squire. Pod be so good as to pour me a cup of wine. There will be wine at breakfast, my lord, Sansa said. There's wine here. You don't expect me to face my sister sober, surely? It's a new century, my lady, the three hundredth year since Aegon's conquest. The dwarf took a cup of bread from Podrick and raised it high. To Aegon! What a fortunate fellow! Two sisters, two wives, and three big dragons! What more could a man ask for? He wiped his mouth with the back of his hand. The imp's clothing was soiled and unkempt, Sansa noticed. It looked as though he'd slept in it. Will you be changing into fresh garb, my lord? Your new doublet is very handsome. The doublet is handsome, yes. Tyrion put the cup aside. Come, Pud, let us see if we can find some garments to make me look less dwarfish. I would not want to shame my lady wife. When the imp returned a short time later, he was presentable enough, and even a little taller. Podrick Payne had changed as well, and looked almost a proper squire for once, although a rather large red pimple in the fold beside his nose spoilt the effect of his splendid purple, white, and gold raiment. He is such a timid boy. Sansa had been wary of Tyrion's squire at first. He was a Payne, cousin to Sir Ilian Payne, who had taken her father's head off. However, she had soon come to realize that Pod was as frightened of her as she was of his cousin. Whenever she spoke to him, he turned the most alarming shade of red. Are purple, gold, and white the colors of House Payne, Podrick? she asked him politely. Uh, no, uh, uh, I mean, yes, he blushed. The colors. Our arms are purple and white checky, my lady, with gold coins. In the checks, purple and white, both. He studied her feet. There's a tale behind those coins, said Tyrion. No doubt Pod will confide it to your toes one day. Just now we are expected at the Queen's ballroom, however. Shall we? Sansa was tempted to beg off. I could tell him that my tummy was upset, 
or that my moon's blood had come. She wanted nothing more than to crawl back in bed and pull the drapes. I must be brave, like Rub, she told herself as she took her lord husband stiffly by the arm. In the Queen's ballroom they broke their fast on honey cakes baked with blackberries and nuts, gammon steaks, bacon, fingerfish crisped in breadcrumbs, autumn pears, and a Dornish dish of onions, cheese, and chopped eggs cooked up with fiery peppers. Nothing like our tea breakfast to whet one's appetite for the seventy-seven-course feast to follow, Tyrion commented as their plates were filled. There were flagons of milk and flagons of mead, and flagons of a light-sweet golden wine to wash it down. Musicians strolled among the tables, piping and fluting and fiddling, while Sodontus galloped about on his broomstick horse and Moonboy made farting sounds with his cheeks and sang rude songs about the guests. Tyrion scarce touched his food, Sansa noticed, though he drank several cups of the wine. For herself she tried a little of the Dornish eggs, but the peppers burned her mouth. Otherwise she only nibbled at the fruit and fish and honey cakes. Every time Joffrey looked at her, her tummy got so fluttery that she felt as though she'd swallowed a bat. When the food had been cleared away, the queen solemnly presented Joff with the wife's cloak that he would drape over Marjorie's shoulders. It is the cloak I donned when Robert took me for his queen, the same cloak my mother Lady Joanna wore when wed to my lord father. Sansa thought it looked threadbare, if truth be told, but perhaps because it was so used. Then it was time for gifts. It was traditional in the Reach to give presents to bride and groom on the morning of their wedding. On the morrow they would receive more presents as a couple, but today's tokens were for their separate persons. From Jalabar Zoe, Joffrey received a great bow of golden wood and quiver of long arrows fletched with green and scarlet feathers. From Lady Tander, a pair of supple riding boots— from Sir Kevin, a magnificent red leather jousting saddle, a red gold brooch wrought in the shape of a scorpion from the Dornishman, Prince Oberon, silver spurs from Sir Adam Marbrandt, a red silk tawny pavilion from Lord Mathis Rowan, Lord Paxter Redwine brought forth a beautiful wooden model of the war galley of two hundred oars being built even now on the arbor. If it please your grace, she would be called King Joffrey's Valor, he said, and Joffrey allowed that he was very pleased indeed. I will make it my flagship when I sail to Dragonstone to kill my traitor uncle Stannis, he said. He plays a gracious king today. Joffrey could be gallant when it suited him, Sansa knew, but it seems to suit him less and less. Indeed, all his courtesy vanished at once when Tyrion presented him with their own gift, a huge old book called Lives of Four Kings, bound in leather and gorgeously illuminated. The king leafed through it with no interest. And what is this, uncle? A book. Sansa wondered if Joffrey moved those fat, wormy lips of his when he read. The Grand Maester Case History of the Reigns of Daron the Young Dragon, Baelor the Blessed, Aegon the Unworthy, and Daron the Good. 
her small husband answered. A book every king should read, your grace, said Sir Kevin. My father had no time for books. Joffrey shoved the term across the table. If you read less, Uncle Imp, perhaps Lady Sansa would have a baby in her belly by now. <laughs> he laughed, and when the king laughs, the court laughs with him. Don't be sad, Sansa. Once I've gotten Queen Marjorie with child, I'll visit your bedchamber and show my little uncle how it's done. Sansa reddened. She glanced nervously at Tyrion, afraid of what he might say. This could turn as nasty as the bedding had at their own feast. But for once the dwarf filled his mouth with wine instead of words. Lord Mace Tyrell came forward to present his gift, a golden chalice three feet tall, with two ornate curved handles and seven faces glittering with gemstones. Seven faces for your grace's seven kingdoms, the bride's father explained. He showed them how each face bore the sigil of one of the great houses. Ruby lion, emerald rose, onyx stag, silver trout, blue jade falcon, opal sun, and pearl direwolf. A splendid cup, said Joffrey, but we'll need to chop the... Wolf off and put a squid in its place, I think. Sansa pretended that she had not heard. Marjorie and I shall drink deep at the feast, good father. Joffrey lifted the chalice above his head for everyone to admire. The damn thing's as tall as I am, Tyrion muttered in a low voice. Half a chalice, and Joff will be falling down drunk. Good, she thought. Perhaps he'll break his neck. Lord Tywin waited until last to present the king with his own gift, a longsword. Its scabbard was made of cherry wood, gold, and oiled red leather, studded with golden lion's heads. The lions had ruby eyes, she saw. The ballroom fell silent as Joffrey unsheathed the blade and thrust the sword above his head. Red and black ripples in the steel shimmered in the morning light. Magnificent, declared Mathis Rowan. A sword to sing of, sire, said Lord Redwine. A king's sword, said Sir Kevin Lannister. King Joffrey looked as if he wanted to kill someone right then and there. He was so excited. He slashed at the air and laughed. A great sword must have a great name, my lords. What shall they call it? Sansa remembered Lion's Tooth the sword Arya had flung into the trident, and Heart Eater, the one he'd made her kiss before the battle. She wondered if he'd want Marjorie to kiss this one. The guests were shouting out names for the new blade. Joffrey dismissed a dozen before he heard one he liked. Widow's Wail, he cried. Yes, it shall make many a widow, too. He slashed again. And when I face my uncle Stannis... It will break his magic sword clean in two. Joff tried a downcut, forcing Sir Balon's one to take a hasty step backward. Laughter rang through the hall at the look on Sir Balon's face. Have a care, your grace, Sir Adam Marbrunt warned the king. Valerian steel is perilously sharp. I remember. Joffrey brought Widow's Whale down in a savage two-handed slice 
onto the book that Tyrion had given him. The heavy leather cover parted at a stroke. Sharp, I tell you. I am no stranger to Valyrian steel. It took him half a dozen further cuts to hack the thick tome apart, and the boy was breathless by the time he was done. Sansa could feel her husband struggling with his fury as Sir Osmond Kettleback shouted, I pray you, never turn that wicked edge on me, sir. See that you'll never give me cause, sir. Joffrey flicked a chunk of lives of four kings off the table at sword point, then slid widow's whale back into its scabbard. Your grace, Sir Garland Tyrell said, perhaps you did not know, in all of Westeros, there were but four copies of that book illuminated in Kate's own hand. Now there are three. Joffrey undid his old sword belt to don his new one. You and Lady Sansa owe me a better present, Uncle Imp. This one is all chopped to pieces. Tyrion was staring at his nephew with his mismatched eyes. Perhaps a knife, sire, to match your sword. A dagger of the same fine Valyrian steel with a dragonborn hilt, say. Joffrey gave him a sharp look. You? Yes, a dagger to match my sword. Good. He nodded. Uh, a gold hilt with rubies in it. Dragonborn is too plain. As you wish, Your Grace. Tyrion drank another cup of wine. He might have been all alone in Isola for all the attention he paid Sansa, but when the time came to leave for the wedding, he took her by the hand. As they were crossing the yard, Prince Oberon of Dawn fell in beside them, his black-haired paramour on his arm. Sansa glanced at the woman curiously. She was base-born and unwed, and had borne two bastard daughters for the prince but she did not fear to look even the queen in the eye. She had told her that this Alaria worshipped some Lycian love goddess. She was almost a whore when he found her, milady, her maid confided, and now she's near a princess. Sansa had never been this close to the Dornish woman before. She's not truly beautiful, she thought, but something about her draws the eye. I once had the great good fortune to see the Citadel's copy of Lives of Four Kings, Prince Oberon was telling her lord husband. The illuminations were wondrous to behold, but Keith was too kind by half to King Viserys. Tyrion gave him a sharp look. Too kind? He scans Viserys shamefully in my view. It should have been Lives of Five Kings. The prince laughed. Viserys hardly reigned a fortnight. He reigned more than a year, said Tyrion. Oberon gave a shrug. A year or a fortnight, what does it matter? He poisoned his own nephew to gain the throne, and then did nothing once he had it. Baelor starved himself to death fasting, said Tyrion. His uncle served him loyally as hand, as he had served the young dragon before him. Viserys might have only reigned a year, but he ruled for fifteen, while Darren warred and Baylor prayed. He made a sour face. And if he did remove his nephew, can you blame him? Someone had to save the realm from Baylor's follies. Sansa was shocked. 
but Baylor the Blessed was a great king. He walked the bone way barefoot to make peace with dawn, and rescued the dragon knight from a snake pit. The vipers refused to strike him because he was so pure and holy. Prince Oberon smiled. If you were a viper, my lady, would you want to bite a bloodless stick like Baylor the Blessed? <laughs> I'd sooner save my fangs for someone juicier. My prince is playing with you, Lady Sansa, said the woman, Ilaria Sand. The septons and singers like to say that the snakes did not bite Baylor, but the truth is very different. He was bitten half a hundred times and should have died from it. If he had, Viserys would have reigned a dozen years, said Tyrion, and the seven kingdoms might have been better served. Some believe Baelor was deranged by all that vellum. Yes, said Prince Oberon, but I've seen no snakes in this red keep of yours. So how do you account for Joffrey? I prefer not to. Tyrion inclined his head stiffly. If you will excuse us, our litter awaits. The dwarf helped Sansa up inside and clambered awkwardly after her. Close the curtains, my lady, if you'll be so good. Must we, my lord? Sansa did not want to be shut behind the curtains. The day is so lovely. The good people of King's Landing are like to throw dung at the litter if they see me inside it. Do us both a kindness, my lady. Close the curtains. She did as he bid her. They sat for a time as the air grew warm and stuffy around them. I was sorry about your book, my lord, she made herself say. It was Joffrey's book. He might have learned a thing or two if he'd read it. He sounded distracted. I should have known better. I should have seen <laughs> a good many things. Perhaps a dagger will please him more. When the dwarf grimaced, his scar tightened and twisted. The boys and himself a dagger, wouldn't you say? Thankfully, Tyrion did not wait for her reply. Joff quarrelled with your brother Rob at Winterfell. Tell me, was there ill-feeling between Bran and his grace as well? Bran? The question confused her. Before he fell, you mean? She had to try and think back. It was all so long ago. Bran was a sweet boy. Everyone loved him. He and Tommen fought with wooden swords, I remember, but just for play. Tyrion lapsed back into moody silence. Sansa heard the distant clank of chains from outside. The portcullis was being drawn up. A moment later there was a shout, and their litter swayed into motion. Deprived of the passing scenery, she chose to stare at her folded hands, uncomfortably aware of her husband's mismatched eyes. Why is he looking at me that way? You loved your brother as much as I love Jamie. Is this some Lannister trap to make me speak treason? My brothers were traitors, and they've gone to traitors' graves. It is treason to love a traitor. Her little husband snorted. <laughs> Rob rose in arms against his rightful king. By law, that made him a traitor. The others died too young to know what treason was. He rubbed his nose. Sansa, do you know what happened to Bran at Winterfell? Bran fell. He was always climbing things, and finally he fell. We always feared he would. And Theon Greyjoy killed him. 
but that was later. Theon Greyjoy. Tyrion sighed. Your lady mother once accused me— well, I will not burden you with the ugly details. She accused me falsely. I never harmed your brother, Bran, and I mean no harm to you. What does he want me to say? Th that is good to know, my lord. He wanted something from her, but Sansa did not know what it was. He looks like a starving child, but I have no food to give him. Why won't he leave me be? Tyrion rubbed Discard's cabby nose yet again, an ugly habit that drew the eye to his ugly face. You have never asked me how Rob died, or your lady mother. I would sooner not know. It would give me bad dreams. Then I will say no more. That... that's kind of you. Oh, yes, said Tyrion. I am the very soul of kindness. And I know about bad dreams. Tyrion The new crown that his father had given the faith stood twice as tall as the one the mob had smashed, a glory of crystal and spun gold. Rainbow light flashed and shimmered every time the high septon moved his head but Tyrion had to wonder how the man could bear the weight. And even he had to concede that Joffrey and Marjorie made a regal couple as they stood side by side between the towering gilded statues of the father and the mother. The bride was lovely in ivory silk and moorish lace, her skirts decorated with floral patterns picked out in seed pearls. As Renly's widow, she might have worn the Baratheon colours, gold and black, yet she came to them a Tyrell, in a maiden's cloak made of a hundred cloth of gold roses sewn to green velvet. He wondered if she really was a maiden. Not that Joffrey is like to know the difference. The king looked near as splendid as his bride, in his doublet of dusky rose beneath a cloak of deep crimson velvet blazoned with his stag and lion. The crown rested easily on his curls, gold on gold. I saved that bloody crown for him. Tyrion shifted his weight uncomfortably from one foot to the other. He could not stand still. Too much wine. He should have thought to relieve himself before they had set out from the Red Keep. The sleepless night he'd spent with Shay was making itself felt too, but most of all, he wanted to strangle his bloody royal nephew. I am no stranger to Validian steel, the boy had boasted. The Septons were always going on about how the Father above judges us all. If the Father would be so good as to topple over and crush Joff like a dung beetle, I might even believe it. He ought to have seen it long ago. Jamie would never send another man to do his killing— and Cersei was too cunning to use a knife that could be traced back to her, but Joff, arrogant, vicious, stupid little wretch that he was. He remembered a cold morning when he'd climbed down the steep exterior steps from Winterfell's library to find Prince Joffrey jesting with a hound about killing wolves. 
send a dog to kill a wolf, he said. Even Joffrey was not so foolish as to command Sandor Clegane to slay a son of Eddard Stark, however. The hound would have gone to Cersei. Instead, the boy found his cat's paw among the unsavory lot of free riders, merchants, and camp followers who had attached themselves to the king's party as they made their way north. Some poxy lackwit, willing to risk his life for a prince's favor and a little coin. Tyrion wondered whose idea it had been to wait until Robert left Winterfell before opening Bran's throat. Joff's, most like. No doubt he thought it was the height of cunning. The prince's own dagger had a jewelled pummel, an inlaid goldwork on the blade Tyrion seemed to recall. At least Joff had not been stupid enough to use that. Instead, he went poking among his father's weapons. Robert Baratheon was a man of careless generosity, and would have given his son any dagger he wanted. But Tyrion guessed that the boy had just taken it. Robert had come to Winterfell with a long tail of knights and retainers, a huge wheelhouse, and a baggage train. No doubt some diligent servant had made certain that the king's weapons went with him, in case he should desire any of them. The blade Joff chose was nice and plain. No gold work, no jewels in the hilt, no silver inlay on the blade. King Robert never wore it, had likely forgotten he owned it. Yet the Valyrian steel was deadly sharp, sharp enough to slice through skin, flesh, and muscle in one quick stroke. I am no stranger to Valyrian steel. But he had been, hadn't he? Else he would never have been so foolish as to pick Littlefinger's knife. The why of it still eluded him. Simple cruelty, perhaps. His nephew had that in abundance. It was all Tyrion could do not to retch up all the wine he'd drunk, piss in his breeches or both. He squirmed uncomfortably. He ought to have held his tongue at breakfast. The boy knows I know now. My big mouth will be the death of me, I swear it. The seven vows were made, the seven blessings invoked, and the seven promises exchanged. When the wedding song had been sung, and the challenge had gone unanswered, it was time for the exchange of cloaks. Tyrion shifted his weight from one stunted leg to the other, trying to see between his father and his uncle Kevin. If the gods are just, Joff will make a hush of this. He made certain not to look at Sansa, lest his bitterness show in his eyes. You might have knelt, damn you. Would it have been so bloody hard to bend those stiff, stark knees of yours— and let me keep a little dignity. Mace Tyrell removed his daughter's maiden cloak tenderly, while Joffrey accepted the folded bride's cloak from his brother, Tommen, and shook it out with a flourish. The boy king was as tall at thirteen as his bride was at sixteen. He would not require a fool's back to climb upon. He draped Marjorie in the crimson and gold, and leaned close to fasten it at her throat and that easily she passed from her father's protection to her husband's. But who will protect her from Joff? Tyrion glanced at the Knight of Flowers, standing with the other king's guard. You had best keep your sword well honed, Sir Loris. With this kiss I pledge my love, Joffrey declared in ringing tones, 
When Marjorie echoed the words, he pulled her close and kissed her long and deep. Rainbow lights danced once more about the high septon's crown as he solemnly declared Joffrey of the houses Baratheon and Lannister and Marjorie of House Tyrell to be one flesh, one heart, one soul. Good, that's done with. Now let's get back to the bloody castle so I can have a piss. Solorus and Sir Merrin led the procession from the sept in their white-scale armour and snowy cloaks. Then came Prince Domin, scattering rose petals from a basket before the king and queen. After the royal couple followed Queen Cersei and Lord Tyrell, then the bride's mother arm-in-arm arm with Lord Tywin. The Queen of Thorns tottered after them, with one hand on Sir Kevin Lannister's arm and the other on her cane, her twin guardsmen close behind her in case she fell. Next came Sir Garland Tyrell and his lady wife, and finally it was their turn. My lady, Tyrion offered Sansa his arm. She took it, dutifully, but he could feel her stiffness as they walked up the aisle together. She never once looked down at him. He heard them cheering outside even before he reached the doors. The mob loved Marjorie so much they were even willing to love Joffrey again. She had belonged to Renly, the handsome young prince who had loved them so well he had come back from beyond the grave to save them, and the bounty of Highgarden had come with her, flowing up the Rose Road from the south. The fools didn't seem to remember that it had been Mace Tyrell who closed the Rose Road to begin with and made the bloody famine. They stepped out into the crisp autumn air. I feared we'd never escape, Tyrion quipped. Sansa had no choice but to look at him then. Uh, yes, my lord, as you say. She looked sad. It was such a beautiful ceremony, though. As ours was not. It was long, I'll say that much. I need to return to the castle for a good piss. Tyrion rubbed the stump of his nose. Would that I'd contrive some mission to take me out of the city. Littlefinger was a clever one. Joffrey and Marjorie stood surrounded by King's Guard atop the steps that fronted on the broad marble plaza. Sir Adam and his gold cloaks held back the crowd, while the statue of King Baelor the Blessed gazed down on them benevolently. Tyrion had no choice but to queue up with the rest to offer congratulations. He kissed Marjorie's fingers and wished her every happiness. Thankfully, there were others behind them, waiting their turn, so they did not need to linger long. Their litter had been sitting in the sun, and it was very warm inside the curtains. As they lurched into motion, Tyrion reclined on an elbow while Sansa sat staring at her hands. She is just as comely as a Tyrell girl. Her hair was a rich autumn auburn, her eyes a deep tully blue. Grief had given her a haunted, vulnerable look. If anything, it had only made her more beautiful. He wanted to reach her, to break through the armour of her courtesy. Was that what made him speak? Or just the need to distract himself from the fullness in his bladder? I had been thinking that when the roads are safe again, we might journey to Castle Rock. Far from Joffrey and my sister. 
The more he thought about what Joff had done to lives of four kings, the more it troubled him. There was a message there. Oh, yes. It would please me to show you the Golden Gallery and the Lion's Mouth and the Hall of Heroes, where Jamie and I played as boys. You can hear thunder from below where the sea comes in. She raised her head slowly. He knew what she was seeing, the swollen, brutish brow, the raw stump of his nose, his crooked pink scar and mismatched eyes. Her own eyes were big and blue and empty. I shall go wherever my lord husband wishes. I had hoped it might please you, my lady. It will please me to please my lord. His mouth tightened. What a pathetic little man you are. Did you think babbling about the lion's mouth would make her smile? When have you ever made a woman smile but with gold? No, it was a foolish notion. Only a Lannister can love the rock. Yes, my lord, as you wish. Tyrion could hear the commons shouting out King Joffrey's name. In three years that cruel boy will be a man ruling in his own right, and every dwarf with half his wits will be a long way from King's Landing. Old Town, perhaps, or even the Free Cities, he'd always had a yen to see the Titan of Bravos. Perhaps that would please Sansa. Gently he spoke of Bravos, and met a wall of sullen courtesy, as icy and unyielding as the wall he had once walked in the north. It made him weary, then and now. They passed the rest of the journey in silence. After a while Tyrion found himself hoping that Sansa would say something, anything, the merest word, but she never spoke. When the litter halted in the castle yard, he let one of the grooms help her down. We will be expected at the feast an hour hence, my lady. I will join you shortly. He walked off stiff-legged. Across the yard he could hear Marjorie's breathless laugh as Joffrey swept her from the saddle. The boy will be as tall and strong as Jamie one day, he thought. And as he'll be a dwarf beneath his feet. And one day he's like to make me even shorter. He found a privy and sighed gratefully as he relieved himself of the morning's wine. There were times when a piss felt near as good as a woman, and this was one. He wished he could relieve himself of his doubts and guilts half as easily. Podrick Payne was waiting outside his chambers. I laid out your new doublet, not here, on your bed, in the bedchamber. Yes, that's where we keep the bed. Sansa would be in there, dressing for the feast. She as well. Wine, Pod. Tyrion drank it in his window seat, brooding over the chaos of the kitchens below. The sun had not yet touched the top of the castle wall, but he could smell breads baking and meats roasting. The guests would soon be pouring into the throne room, full of anticipation. This would be an evening of song and splendor, designed not only to unite High Garden and Castly Rock, but to trumpet their power and wealth as a lesson to any who might still think to oppose Joffrey's rule. But who would be mad enough to contest Joffrey's rule now, 
after what had befallen Stannis Baratheon and Robb Stark. They were still fighting in the Riverlands, but everywhere the coils were tightening. Sir Gregor Clegane had crossed the Trident and seized the Ruby Ford, then captured Harren Hall almost effortlessly. Seaguard had yielded to Blackwalder Frey. Lord Randall Tarley held Maidenpool, Duskendale, and the King's Road. In the west, Sir Davin Lannister had linked up with Sir Forley Prester at the Golden Tooth for a march on Riverrun. Sir Raymond Frey was leading two thousand spears down from the Twins to join them, and Paxter Redwine claimed his fleet would soon set sail from the arbor to begin the long voyage around dawn and through the Stepstones. Stannis's Lyseni pirates would be outnumbered ten to one. The struggle that the Maces were calling the War of the Five Kings was all but at an end. Mace Tyrell had been heard complaining that Lord Tywin had left no victories for him. My lord, Pod was at his side, will you be changing? I laid out the doublet on your bed for the feast. Feast? said Tyrion Sarley. What feast? The wedding feast. Pod missed the sarcasm, of course. King Joffrey and Lady Marjorie. Uh, uh, Queen Marjorie, I mean. Tyrion resolved to get very, very drunk tonight. Very well, young Podrick. Let's go make me festive. Shay was helping Sansa with her hair when they entered the bedchamber. Joy and grief, he thought when he beheld them there together. Laughter and tears. Sansa wore a gown of silvery satin trimmed in vair with dagged sleeves that almost touched the floor, lined in soft purple felt. Shay had arranged her hair artfully in a delicate silver net winking with dark purple gemstones. Tyrion had never seen her look more lovely. Yet she wore sorrow on those long satin sleeves. Lady Sansa, he told her, you shall be the most beautiful woman in the hall tonight. My lord is too kind. My lady, said Shay wistfully, couldn't I come serve at table? I so want to see the pigeons fly out of the pie. Sansa looked at her uncertainly. The queen has chosen all the servers, and the hall will be too crowded. Tyrion had to bite back his annoyance. There will be musicians strolling all through the castle, though, and tables in the outer ward with food and drink for all. He inspected his new doublet, crimson velvet with padded shoulders and puff sleeves slashed to show the black satin underlining. A handsome garment, all at once is a handsome man to wear it. Come, Pod, help me into this. He had another cup of wine as he dressed. Then he took his wife by the arm and escorted her from the kitchen keep to join the river of silk, satin, and velvet flowing toward the throne room. Some guests had gone inside to find their places on the benches. Others were milling in front of the doors, enjoying the unseasonable warmth of the afternoon. Tyrion led Sansa around the yard to perform the necessary courtesies. She is good at this, he thought as he watched her tell Lord Giles that his cough was sounding better, compliment Eleanor Tyrell on her gown, 
and question Jalabazo about wedding customs in the summer isles. His cousin, Sir Lancel, had been brought down by Sir Kevin, the first time he'd left his sickbed since the battle. He looks ghastly. Lancel's hair had turned white and brittle, and he was thin as a stick. Without his father beside him holding him up, he would surely have collapsed. Yet when Sansa praised his valour and said how good it was to see him getting strong again, both Lancel and Sir Kevin beamed. She would have made Joffrey a good queen, and a better wife, if he'd had the sense to love her. He wondered if his nephew was capable of loving anyone. You do look quite exquisite, child, Lady Olena Tyrell told Sansa when she tuttered up to them in a cloth of gold gown that must have weighed more than she did. The wind has been at your hair, though. The little old woman reached up and fussed at the loose strands, tucking them back into place and straightening Sansa's hairnet. I was very sorry to hear about your losses, she said as she tugged and fiddled. Your brother was a terrible traitor, I know, but if we start killing men at weddings, they'll be even more frightened of marriage than they are presently. There, that's better. Lady Olena smiled. I'm pleased to say I shall be leaving for High Garden the day after next. I've had quite enough of this smelly city, thank you. Perhaps you would like to accompany me for a little visit while the men are off having their war. I shall miss my Marjorie so dreadfully, and all her lovely ladies. Your company would be such sweet solace. You are too kind, my lady, said Sansa, but my place is with my lord husband. Lady Elena gave Tyrion a wrinkled, toothless smile. Oh, forgive me, a silly old woman, my lord. I did not mean to steal your lovely wife. I assumed you would be off leading a Lannister host against some wicked foe. A host of dragons and stags. The master of coin must remain at court to see that all the armies are paid for. To be sure, dragons and stags, eh? Oh, that's very clever. And dwarfs' pennies as well. <laughs> I've heard of these dwarfs' pennies. No doubt collecting those is such a dreadful chore. I leave the collecting to others, my lady. Oh, do ye? I would have thought you might want to tend to it yourself. We can't have the crown being cheated of its dwarfs' pennies now, can we? Gods forbid. Tyrion was beginning to wonder whether Lord Luther Tyrell had ridden off that cliff intentionally. If you will excuse us, Lady Olena, it is time we were in our places. Myself as well. Seventy-seven courses, I dare say. Don't you find that a bit uh, excessive, my lord? I shan't eat more than three or four bites myself, but you and I are very little, aren't we? She patted Sansa's hair again and said, Well, off with your child, and try to be merrier. Now, where have my guardsmen gone? Left, right, where are ye? Come, help me to the dais. Although even four was still an hour away, the throne room was already a blaze of light, with torches burning in every sconce. 
The guests stood along the tables as heralds called out the names and titles of the lords and ladies making their entrance. Pages in the royal livery escorted them down the broad central aisle. The gallery above was packed with musicians, drummers and pipers and fiddlers, strings and horns and skins. Tyrion clutched Sansa's arm and made the walk with a heavy, waddling stride. He could feel their eyes on him, picking at the fresh new scar that had left him even uglier than he had been before. Let them look, he thought, as he hopped up onto his seat. Let them stare and whisper till they've had their fill. I will not hide myself for their sake. The Queen of Thorns followed them in, shuffling along with tiny little steps. Tyrion wondered which of them looked more absurd, him with Sansa or the wizened little woman between her seven-foot-tall twin guardsmen. Joffrey and Marjorie rode into the throne room on matched white chargers. Pages ran before them, scattering rose petals under their hooves. The king and queen had changed for the feast as well. Joffrey wore striped black and crimson breeches and a cloth of gold doublet with black satin sleeves and onyx studs. Marjorie had exchanged the demure gown that she had worn in the sept for one much more revealing, a confection in pale green samite with a tight-laced bodice that bared her shoulders and the tops of her small breasts. Unbound, her soft brown hair tumbled over her white shoulders and down her back almost to her waist. Around her brows was a slim golden crown. Her smile was shy and sweet. A lovely girl, thought Tyrion, and a kinder fate than my nephew deserves. The king's guard escorted them onto the dais, to the seats of honour beneath the shadow of the iron throne, draped for the occasion in long silken streamers of Baratheon gold, Lannister crimson, and Tyrell green. Cersei embraced Marjorie and kissed her cheeks. Lord Tywin did the same, and then Lancel and Sir Kevin. Joffrey received loving kisses from the bride's father and his two new brothers, Loras and Garlan. No one seemed in any great rush to kiss Tyrion. When the king and queen had taken their seats, the high septon rose to lead a prayer. At least he does not drone as badly as the last one, Tyrion consoled himself. He and Sansa had been seated far to the king's right, beside Sir Garland Tyrell and his wife, the Lady Leonette. A dozen others sat closer to Joffrey, which a pricklier man might have taken for a slight, given that he had been the king's hand only a short time past. Tyrion would have been glad if there had been a hundred. Let the cups be filled, Joffrey proclaimed, when the guards had been given their due. His cup-bearer poured a whole flagon of dark arbor red into the golden wedding chalice that Lord Tyrell had given him that morning. The king had to use both hands to lift it. To my wife, the queen! Marjorie! The hall shouted back at him. Marjorie! Marjorie! To the queen! A thousand cups rang together, and the wedding feast was well and truly begun. Tyrion Lannister drank with the rest, emptying his cup on that first toast, 
and signaling for it to be refilled as soon as he was seated again. The first dish was a creamy soup of mushrooms and buttered snails served in gilded bowls. Tyrion had scarcely touched the breakfast, and the wine had already gone to his head, so the food was welcome. He finished quickly. One done, seventy-six to come. Seventy-seven dishes, while there are still starving children in this city, and men who would kill for a radish. They might not love the Tyrells half so well if they could see us now. Sansa tasted a spoonful of soup and pushed the bowl away. Not to your liking, my lady? Tyrion asked. There's to be so much, my lord. I have a little tummy. She fiddled nervously with her hair and looked down the table to where Joffrey sat with his Tyrell queen. Does she wish it were her in Marjorie's place? Tyrion frowned. Even a child should have better sense. He turned away, wanting distraction. But everywhere he looked were women, fair, fine, beautiful, happy women who belonged to other men. Marjorie, of course, smiling sweetly as she and Joffrey shared a drink from the great seven-sided wedding chalice. Her mother, Lady O'Leary, silver-haired and handsome, still proud beside Mace Tyrell. The Queen's three young cousins, bright as birds. Lord Merryweather's dark-haired Murrish wife, with the big black sultry eyes. Alaria Sand, among the Dornishmen. Cersei had placed them at their own table, just below the dais, in a place of high honour, but as far from the Tyrells as the wit of the hall would allow, laughing at something the Red Viper had told her. And there was one woman, sitting almost at the foot of the third table on the left, the wife of one of the Fossaways, he thought, and heavy with his child. Her delicate beauty was in no way diminished by her belly, nor was her pleasure in the food and frolics. Tyrion watched as her husband fed her morsels off his plate. They drank from the same cup, and would kiss often and unpredictably. Whenever they did, his hand would gently rest upon her stomach, a tender and protective gesture. He wondered what Sansa would do if he leaned over and kissed her right now. Flinch away, most likely, or be brave, and suffer through it, as was her duty. She is nothing, if not dutiful, this wife of mine. If he told her that he wished to have her maidenhead tonight, she would suffer that dutifully as well, and weep no more than she had to. He called for more wine. By the time he got it, the second course was being served a pastry coffin filled with pork, pine-nuts, and eggs. Sansa ate no more than a bite of hers as the heralds were summoning the first of the seven singers. Greybeard Hamish the harper announced that he would perform for the ears of gods and men a song ne'er had before in all the seven kingdoms. He called it Lord Renly's Raid. His fingers moved across the strings of the high harp, filling the throne room with sweet sound. From his throne of bones, the Lord of Death looked down on the murdered Lord. Hamish began, and went on to tell how Renly, repenting his attempt to usurp his nephew's crown, 
had defied the Lord of Death himself and crossed back to the land of the living to defend the realm against his brother. And for this, poor Simon wound up in a bowl of brown, Tyrion mused. Queen Marjorie was teary-eyed by the end, when the shade of brave Lord Renly flew to Highgarden to steal one last look at his true love's face. Renly Baratheon never repented of anything in his life, the imp told Sansa, but if I am any judge, Hamish has just won himself a gilded loot. The harper also gave them several more familiar songs. A rose of gold was for the Tyrells, no doubt, as the reigns of Castamere was meant to flatter his father. Maiden, mother, and crone delighted the high septon, and my lady wife pleased all the little girls with romance in their hearts, and no doubt some little boys as well. Tyrion listened with half an ear as he sampled sweet corn fritters and hot oat bread baked with bits of date, apple, and orange, and gnawed on the rib of a wild boar. Thereafter, dishes and diversions succeeded one another in a staggering profusion, buoyed along upon a flood of wine and ale. Hamish left them, his place taken by a smallish elderly bear who danced clumsily to the pipe and drum whilst the wedding guests ate trout cooked in a crust of crushed almonds. Moonboy mounted his stilts and strode around the tables in pursuit of Lord Tyrell's ludicrously fat-full butter-bumps, and the lords and ladies sampled roast herons and cheese and onion pies. A troop of pentushy tumblers performed cartwheels and handstands, balanced platters on their bare feet, and stood upon each other's shoulders to form a pyramid. Their feats were accompanied by crabs boiled in fiery eastern spices, trenchers filled with chunks of chopped mutton, stewed in almond milk with carrots, raisins, and onions, and fish tarts fresh from the ovens served so hot they burned the fingers. Then the herald summoned another singer, Kalio Canus of Tyrosh, who had a vermilion beard and an accent as ludicrous as Simon had promised. Kalio began with his version of The Dance of the Dragons, which was more properly a song for two singers, male and female. Tyrion suffered through it with a double helping of honey-ginger partridge and several cups of wine. A haunting ballad of two dying lovers amidst the doom of Valyria might have pleased the whole more if Collio had not sung it in high Valyrian, which most of the guests could not speak. But Besser the barmaid won them back with its ribald lyrics. Peacocks were served in their plumage, roasted whole and stuffed with dates while Collio summoned a drummer, bowed low before Lord Tywin, and launched into The Reigns of Castamere. If I have to hear seven versions of that, I may go down to Flea Bottom and apologize to the stew. Tyrion turned to his wife. So, which did you prefer? Sansa blinked at him. My lord? The singers. Which did you prefer? I'm... I'm sorry, my lord, I, I was not listening. She was not eating either. Sansa is aught amiss. He spoke without thinking, and instantly felt the fall. All akin are slaughtered, 
and she's wed to me, and I wonder what's amiss. No, my lord. She looked away from him, and feigned an unconvincing interest in Moonboy pelting Sir Dantus with dates. Four master pyromancers conjure up beasts of living flame to tear at each other with fiery claws, whilst the serving men ladled out bowls of blendissery, a mixture of beef broth and boiled wine sweetened with honey and dotted with blanched almonds and chunks of capon. Then came some strolling pipers and clever dogs and sword-swallowers with buttered peas, chopped nuts, and slivers of swan poached in a sauce of saffron and peaches. Not swan again, Tyrion muttered, remembering his supper with his sister on the eve of battle. A juggler kept half a dozen swords and axes whirling through the air, as skewers of blood sausage were brought sizzling to the tables, a juxtaposition that Tyrion thought passing clever, though not perhaps in the best of taste. The heralds blew their trumpets. "'To sing for the golden lute!' one cried. "'We give you Galeon of Kai!' Galeon was a big barrel-chested man with a black beard, a bald head, and a thunderous voice that filled every corner of the throne room. He brought no fewer than six musicians to play for him. "'Noble lords and ladies fair, I sing but one song for you this night,' he announced. "'It is the song of the Black Water, and how a realm was saved.' The drummer began a slow, ominous beat. "'The Dark Lord brooded high in his tower,' Galeon began, "'in the castle as black as the night. "'Black was his hair, and black was his soul. "'The musicians chanted in unison. "'A flute came in. "'He feasted on bloodlust and envy, "'and filled his cup full up with spite,' sang Galeon. "'My brother wants your seven kingdoms,' he said to his hired and wife. "'I'll take what was his and make it all mine. "'Let his son feel the point of my knife.' "'A brave young boy with a hair of gold,' his players chanted, "'as a wood harp and a fiddle began to play.' "'If I am ever hand again, the first thing I'll do is hang all the singers.' said Tyrion, too loudly. Lady Leonette laughed lightly beside him, and Sir Garland leaned over to say, A valiant deed, unsung, is no less valiant. The Dark Lord assembled his legions. They gathered around him like crows, and thirsty for blood, they boarded their ships. And cut off poor Tyrion's nose, Tyrion finished. Lady Leonette giggled. Perhaps you should be a singer, my lord. You rhyme as well as this Galeon. No, my lady, Sir Garland said. My lord of Lannister was made to do great deeds, not to sing of them. But for his chain and his wildfire, the foe would have been across the river. And if Tyrion's wildlings had not slain most of Lord Stannis's scouts, we would never have been able to take him unawares. His words made Tyrion feel absurdly grateful, and helped to mollify him 
as Galien sang endless verses about the valour of the boy king and his mother, the Golden Queen. She never did that, Sansa blurted out suddenly. Never believe anything you hear in a song, my lady. Tyrion summoned a serving man to refill their wine cups. Soon it was full night outside the tall windows, and still Galien sang on. His song had seventy-seven verses, though it seemed more like a thousand. A one for every guest in the hall. Tyrion drank his way through the last twenty or so, to help resist the urge to stuff mushrooms in his ears. By the time the singer had taken his bows, some of the guests were drunk enough to begin providing unintentional entertainments of their own. Grand Maester Pycelle fell asleep, while dancers from the summer isle swirled and spun in robes made of bright feathers and smoky silk. Rondels of elk stuffed with ripe blue cheese were being brought out when one of Lord Rowan's knights stabbed a Dornishman. The gold cloaks dragged them both away, one to a cell to rot, and the other to get sewn up by Maester Balabar. Tyrion was toying with a lech of brawn spiced with cinnamon, clove, sugar, and almond milk, when King Joffrey lurched suddenly to his feet. "'Bring on my royal justice!' he shouted, in a voice thick with wine, clapping his hands together. "'My nephew is drunker than I am,' Tyrion thought as the gold cloaks opened the great doors at the end of the hall. From where he sat, he could only see the tops of two striped lances as a pair of riders entered side by side. A wave of laughter followed them down the centre aisle toward the king. They must be riding ponies, he concluded, until they came into full view. The jousters were a pair of dwarfs. One was mounted on an ugly grey dog, long of leg and heavy of jaw. The other rode an immense spotted sow. Painted wooden armour clattered and clacked as the little knights bounced up and down in their saddles. Their shields were bigger than they were, and they wrestled manfully with their lances as they clumped along, swaying this way and that, and listing gusts of mirth. One knight was all in gold with a black stag painted on his shield, the other wore grey and white and bore a wolf device. Their mounts were barded likewise. Tyrion glanced along the dais at all the laughing faces. Joffrey was red and breathless. Tommen was hooting and hopping up and down in his seat. Cersei was chuckling politely, and even Lord Tywin looked mildly amused. Of all those at the high table— only Sansa Stark was not smiling. He could have loved her for that, but if truth be told, the Stark girl's eyes were far away, as if she had not even seen the ludicrous riders loping toward her. The dwarfs are not to blame, Tyrion decided. When they are done, I shall compliment them and give them a fat purse of silver. And come the morrow, I shall find whoever planned this little diversion, and arrange for a different sort of thanks. When the dwarfs reined up beneath the dais to salute the king, the wolf knight dropped his shield. As he leaned over to grab for it, the stag knight lost control of his heavy lance and slammed him across the back. The wolf knight fell off his pig, and his lance tumbled over and boinked his foe on the head. 
They both wound up on the floor in a great tangle. When they rose, both tried to mount the dog. Much shouting and shoving followed. Finally, they regained their saddles, only mounted on each other's steed, holding the wrong shield and facing backward. It took some time to sort that out, but in the end they spurred to opposite ends of the hall and wheeled about for the tilt. As the lords and ladies guffawed and giggled, the little men came together with a crash and a clatter, and the wolf knight's lance struck the helm of the stag knight and knocked his head clean off. It spun through the air, spattering blood to land in the lap of Lord Giles. The headless dwarf careened around the tables, flailing his arms. Dogs barked, women shrieked, and Moonboy made a great show of swaying perilously back and forth on his stilts, until Lord Giles pulled a dripping red melon out of the shattered helm, at which point the stag knight poked his face up out of his armour, and another storm of laughter rocked the hall. The knights waited for it to die, circled around each other, trading colourful insults, and were about to separate for another joust, when the dog threw its rider to the floor and mounted the sow. The huge pig squealed in distress, while the wedding guests squealed with laughter, especially when the stag knight leapt onto the wolf knight, let down his woollen breeches, and started to pump away frantically at the other's nether portions. "'I yield! I yield!' the dwarf on the bottom screamed. "'Good, sir, put up your sword!' "'I would! I would, if you'll stop moving the sheath!' the dwarf on the top replied, to the merriment of all. Joffrey was snorting wine from both nostrils. Gasping, he lurched to his feet, almost knocking over his tall two-handed chalice. "'A champion!' he shouted. "'We have a champion!' The hall began to quiet when it was seen that the king was speaking. The dwarfs untangled, no doubt anticipating the royal thanks. "'Not a true champion, though,' said Joff. "'A true champion defeats all challengers.' The king climbed up on the table. "'Who else will challenge our tiny champion?' With a gleeful smile, he turned toward Tyrion. "'Uncle, you'll defend the honour of my realm, won't you? You can ride the pig.' The laughter crashed over him like a wave. Tyrion Lannister did not remember rising, nor climbing on his chair, but he found himself standing on the table. The hall was a torch-lit blur of leering faces. He twisted his face into the most hideous mockery of a smile the Seven Kingdoms had ever seen. "'Your Grace,' he called, "'I'll ride the pig, but only if you ride the dog.' Joffrey scowled, confused. "'Me? I'm no dwarf. Why me?' "'Step right into the cut, Joffrey.' "'Why?' You're the only man in the hall that I'm certain of defeating. He could not have said which was sweeter. The instant of shocked silence, the gale of laughter that followed, or the look of blind rage on his nephew's face. The dwarf hopped back to the floor well satisfied, and by the time he looked back, Sir Osmond and Sir Merrin were helping Joff climb down as well. When he noticed Cersei glaring at him, Tyrion blew her a kiss. It was a relief when the musicians began to play. 
The tiny justice led Dog and Sour from the hall. The guests returned to their trenches of brawn, and Tyrion called for another cup of wine. But suddenly he felt Sir Garland's hand on his sleeve. My lord, beware! The knight warned. The king! Tyrion turned in his seat. Joffrey was almost upon him, red-faced and staggering, wine slubbing over the rim of the great golden wedding chalice he carried in both hands. Your grace! was all he had time to say before the king upended the chalice over his head. The wine washed down over his face in a red torrent. It drenched his hair, stung his eyes, burned in his wound, ran down his cheeks, and soaked the velvet of his new doublet. How'd you like that, imp? Joffrey mocked. Tyrion's eyes were on fire. He dabbed at his face with the back of a sleeve and tried to blink the world back into clarity. That was ill done, your grace, he heard Sir Garland say quietly. Not at all, Sir Garland. Tyrion dare not let this grow any uglier than it was, not here, with half the realm looking on. Not every king would think to honour a humble subject by serving him from his own royal chalice. A pity the wine spilled. It didn't spill, said Joffrey, too graceless to take the retreat Tyrion offered him, and I wasn't serving you either. Queen Marjorie appeared suddenly at Joffrey's elbow. My sweet king, the Tyrell girl entreated, come, return to your place. There's another singer waiting. Alaric of Eisen, said Lady Olena Tyrell, leaning on her cane and taking no more notice of the wine-soaked dwarf than her granddaughter had done. I do so hope he plays us a range of Castamere. It has been an hour. I've forgotten how it goes. Sir Adam has a toast he wants to make as well, said Marjorie. Your Grace, please. I have no wine, Joffrey declared. How can I drink a toast if I have no wine? Uncle Imp, you can serve me. Since you won't joust, you'll be my cupbearer. I would be most honoured. It's not meant to be an honor, Joffrey screamed. Bend down and pick up my chalice. Tyrion did as he was bid, but as he reached for the handle, Joff kicked the chalice through his legs. Pick it up! Are you as clumsy as you are ugly? He had to crawl under the table to find the thing. Good! Now fill it with wine. He claimed a flagon from a serving girl and filled the goblet three-quarters full. No, on your knees, dwarf. Kneeling, Tyrion raised up the heavy cup, wondering if he was about to get a second bath. But Joffrey took the wedding chalice one-handed, drank deep, and set it on the table. You can get up now, uncle. His legs cramped as he tried to rise and almost spilt him again. Tyrion had to grab hold of a chair to steady himself. Sir Garden lent him a hand. Joffrey laughed and Cersei as well, then others. He could not see who, but he heard them. Your Grace, Lord Tywin's voice was impeccably correct. They are bringing in the pie. Your sword is needed. The pie? Joffrey took his queen by the hand. Come, my lady, it's the pie. The guests stood, shouting and applauding, and smashing their wine cups together 
as the great pie made its slow way down the length of the hall, wheeled along by a half-dozen beaming cooks. Two yards across it was, crusty and golden-brown, and they could hear squeaks and thumpings coming from inside it. Tyrion pulled himself back into his chair. All he needed now was for a dove to shit on him, and his day would be complete. The wine had soaked through his doublet and small clothes, and he could feel the wetness against his skin. He ought to change, but no one was permitted to leave the feast until the time came for the bedding ceremony. That was still a good twenty or thirty dishes off, he judged. King Joffrey and his queen met the pie below the dais. As Joffrey drew his sword, Marjorie laid a hand on his arm to restrain him. Widow's wail was not meant for slicing pies. True! Joffrey lifted his voice. Sir Ilian, your sword! From the shadows at the back of the hall, Sir Ilian Payne appeared. The spectre at the feast, thought Tyrion as he watched the king's justice stride forward, gaunt and grim. He had been too young to have known Sir Ilian before he'd lost his tongue. He would have been a different man in those days, but now the silence is as much a part of him as those hollow eyes, that rusty chainmail shirt, and the great sword on his back. Sir Ilian bowed before the king and queen, reached back over his shoulder, and drew forth six feet of ornate silver bright with runes. He knelt to offer the huge blade to Joffrey, hilt first. Points of red fire winked from the ruby eyes on the pommel. A chunk of dragon glass carved in the shape of a grinning skull. Sansa stirred in her seat. What sword is that? Tyrion's eyes still stung from the wine. He blinked and looked again. Sir Alien's great sword was as long and wide as ice, but it was too silvery bright. Valyrian steel had a darkness to it, a smokiness in its soul. Sansa clutched his arm. What has Sir Elian done with my father's sword? I should have sent ice back to Rob Stark, Tyrion thought. He glanced at his father, but Lord Tywin was watching the king. Joffrey and Marjorie joined hands to lift the great sword and swung it down together in a silvery arc. When the pie cross broke, the doves burst forth in a swirl of white feathers, scattering in every direction, flapping for the windows and the rafters. A roar of delight went up from the benches, and the fiddlers and pipers in the gallery began to play a sprightly tune. Joff took his bride in his arms and whirled her around merrily. A serving man placed a slice of hot pigeon pie in front of Tyrion and covered it with a spoon of lemon cream. The pigeons were well and truly cooked in this pie, but he found them no more appetizing than the white ones fluttering about the hall. Sansa was not eating either. "'You're deathly pale, my lady,' Tyrion said. "'You need a breath of cool air, and I need a fresh doublet.' He stood and offered her his hand. "'Come.' But before they could make their retreat, Joffrey was back. "'Uncle, where are you going?' You're my cup-bearer, remember? I need to change into fresh garb, your grace. May I have your leave? No. I like the look of you this way. Serve me my wine. 
The king's chalice was on the table where he'd left it. Tyrion had to climb back onto his chair to reach it. Joff yanked it from his hands and drank long and deep, his throat working as the wine ran purple down his chin. My lord, Marjorie said, we should return to our places. Lord Buckler wants to toast us. My uncle hasn't eaten his pigeon pie. Holding the chalice one-handed, Joffrey jammed his other into Tyrion's pie. It's ill luck not to eat the pie, he scolded as he filled his mouth with hot spice pigeon. See, it's good. Spitting out flakes of crust, he cuffed and helped himself to another fistful. Dry, though, knees washing down. Joff took a swallow of wine and coughed again, more violently. I want to see... <coughs> see you ride that... <coughs> pig, <coughs> Uncle. I want... <coughs> His words broke up in a fit of coughing. Marjorie looked at him with concern. Your Grace, it's <coughs> the pie, not <coughs> pie. Joff took another drink, or tried to, but all the wine came spewing back out when another spate of coughing doubled him over. His face was turning red. I, I can't. <coughs> the chalice slipped from his hand, and dark red wine went running across the dais. He's choking, Queen Marjorie gasped. Her grandmother moved to her side. Help the poor boy, the Queen of Thorns screeched in a voice ten times her size. Dolts, will you all stand about gaping? Help your king! Sir Garland shoved Tyrion aside and began to pound Joffrey on the back. Sir Osmond Kettleblack ripped open the king's collar. A fearful, high, thin sound emerged from the boy's throat, the sound of a man trying to suck a river through a reed. Then it stopped, and that was more terrible still. Turn him over! Mace Tyrell bellowed at everyone and no one. Turn him over and shake him by the hills! A different voice was calling. Water! Give him some water! The High Septon began to pray loudly. Grand Maester Pycelle shouted for someone to help him back to his chambers to fetch his potions. Joffrey began to claw at his throat, his nails tearing bloody gouges in the flesh. Beneath the skin, the muscles stood out hard as stone. Prince Tommen was screaming and crying. He's going to die, Tyrion realized. He felt curiously calm, though pandemonium raged all about him. They were pounding Joff on the back again, but his face was only growing darker. Dogs were barking, children were wailing, men were shouting useless advice at each other. Half the wedding guests were on their feet, some shoving at each other for a better view, others rushing for the doors in their haste to get away. Sir Merrin pried the king's mouth open to jam a spoon down his throat. As he did, the boy's eyes met Tyrion's. He has Jamie's eyes. Only had never seen Jamie look so scared. The boy's only thirteen. Joffrey was making a dry, clacking noise, trying to speak. His eyes bulged white with terror, and he lifted a hand, reaching for his uncle or pointing. Is he begging my forgiveness, or does he think I can save him? No! Cersei wailed. Father, help him! Someone help him! My son! My son! 
Tyrion found himself thinking of Rob Stark. My own wedding is looking much better in hindsight. He looked to see how Sansa was taking this, but there was so much confusion in the hall that he could not find her. But his eyes fell on a wedding chalice, forgotten on the floor. He went and scooped it up. There was still a half-inch of deep purple wine in the bottom of it. Tyrion considered it for a moment, then poured it on the floor. Marjorie Tyrell was weeping in her grandmother's arms as the old lady said, Be brave, be brave. Most of the musicians had fled, but one last flautist in the gallery was blowing a dirge. In the rear of the throne room, scuffling had broken out around the doors, and the guests were trampling on each other. Sir Adam's gold cloaks moved in to restore order. Guests were rushing headlong out into the night, some weeping, some stumbling and retching, others white with fear. It occurred to Tyrion belatedly that it might be wise to leave himself. When he heard Cersei scream, he knew that it was over. I should leave. Now. Instead, he waddled toward her. His sister sat in a puddle of wine, cradling her son's body. Her gown was torn and stained, her face white as chalk. A thin black dog crept up beside her, sniffing at Joffrey's corpse. The boy is gone, Sassy, Lord Tywin said. He put his gloved hand on his daughter's shoulder as one of his guardsmen shooed away the dog. Unhand him now. Let him go. She did not hear. It took two king's guard to pry loose her fingers, so the body of King Joffrey Baratheon could slide limp and lifeless to the floor. The high septon knelt beside him. Father above, judge our good king Joffrey justly, he intoned, beginning the prayer for the dead. Marjorie Tyrell began to sob, and Tyrion heard her mother, Lady Elleria, say, He choked, sweetling, he choked on the pie. It was not to do with you. He choked, we all saw. He did not choke. Cersei's voice was sharp as Sir Ilian's sword. My son was poisoned. She looked to the white knight standing helplessly around her. King's guard, do your duty. My lady, said Sir Loras Tyrell, uncertain. Arrest my brother, she commanded him. He did this, the dwarf, him, and his little wife. They killed my son, your king. Take them. Take them both. Sansa Far across the city, a bell began to toll. Sansa felt as though she were in a dream. Joffrey is dead, she told the trees, to see if that would wake her. He had not been dead when she left the throne room. He'd been on his knees, though, clawing at his throat, tearing at his own skin as he fought to breathe. The sight of it had been too terrible to watch, and she had turned and fled, sobbing. Lady Tander had been fleeing as well. You have a good heart, my lady, she said to Sansa. Not every maid would weep so for a man who set her aside and wed her to a dwarf. A good heart? 
I have a good heart. Hysterical laughter rose up in her gullet, but Sansa choked it back down. The bells were ringing slow and mournful. Ringing, ringing, ringing. They had rung for King Robert the same way. Joffrey was dead. He was dead. He was dead, dead, dead. Why was she crying? When she wanted to dance. Were they tears of joy? She found her clothes where she had hidden them, the night before last. With no maids to help her, it took her longer than it should have to undo the laces of her gown. Her hands were strangely clumsy, though she was not as frightened as she ought to have been. The gods are cruel to take him so young and handsome at his own wedding feast, Lady Tander had said to her. The gods are just, thought Sansa. Rob had died at a wedding feast as well. It was Rob she wept for. Him and Marjorie. Poor Marjorie, twice wed and twice widowed. Sansa slid her arm from a sleeve, pushed down the gown, and wriggled out of it. She balled it up and shoved it into the bowl of an oak, shook out the clothing she had hidden there. Dress warmly, Sir Dantas had told her, and dress dark. She had no blacks, so she chose a dress of thick brown wool. The bodice was decorated with freshwater pearls, though. The cloak will cover them. The cloak was a deep green with a large hood. She slipped the dress over her head and donned the cloak, though she left the hood down for the moment. There were shoes as well, simple and sturdy, with flat heels and square toes. The gods heard my prayer, she thought. She felt so numb and dreamy. My skin has turned to porcelain, to ivory, to steel. Her hands moved stiffly, awkwardly, as if they had never let down her hair before. For a moment she wished Shea was there to help her with the net. When she pulled it free, her long auburn hair cascaded down her back and across her shoulders. The web of spun silver hung from her fingers, the fine metal glimmering softly, the stones black in the moonlight. Black amethyst from a shayi. One of them was missing. Sansa lifted the net for a closer look. There was a dark smudge in the silver socket where the stone had fallen out. A sudden terror filled her. Her heart hammered against her ribs, and for an instant she held her breath. Why am I so scared? It's only an amethyst. A black amethyst from a shayi? No more than that. It must have been loose in the setting, that's all. It was loose, and it fell out, and now it's lying somewhere in the throne room or in the yard— Unless— Sedantus had said the hairnet was magic, that it would take her home. He told her that she must wear it tonight at Joffrey's wedding feast. The silver wire stretched tight across her knuckles. Her thumb rubbed back and forth against the hole where the stone had been. She tried to stop, but her fingers were not her own. Her thumb was drawn to the hole as the tongue is drawn to a missing tooth. What kind of magic? The king was dead, the cruel king who had been her gallant prince a thousand years ago. If Dantas had lied about the hairnet, had he lied about the rest as well? What if he never comes? What if there's no ship, no boat on the river, no escape? What would happen to her then? She heard a faint rustle of leaves, 
and stuffed the silver hairnet down deep in the pocket of her cloak. Who is there? she cried. Who is it? The godswood was dim and dark, and the bells were ringing Joff into his grave. Me! He staggered out from under the trees, reeling drunk. He caught her arm to steady himself. Sweet jungle, I've, I've come. Your Florian has come. Don't be afraid. Sansa pulled away from his touch. You said I must wear the hairnet. The silver net with the... What sort of stones are those? Amethyst. Black am amethyst from Ashai, my lady. They're no amethysts. Are they? Are they? You lied. Black amethyst, he swore. There was magic in them. There was murder in them. Softly, my ladies, softly. No murder. He choked on his pigeon pie. <laughs> Duntus chortled. Oh, tasty, tasty pie. Silver and stones. That's all it was. Silver and stone and magic. The bells were tolling, and the wind was making a noise like he had made as he tried to suck a breath of air. You poisoned him. You did. You took a stone for my hair. Hush! You'll, you'll be the death of us. I did nothing. Come, we, we must away. They'll ser search for you. Your husband's been arrested. Tyrion? she said, shocked. Do you have another husband? The imp! The dwarf uncle! She thinks he did it. He grabbed her hand and pulled at her. This way, we must away. Quickly now, have no fear. Sansa followed on resisting. I can never abide the weeping of women, Joff once said, but his mother was the only woman weeping now. In old Nan's stories, the Grumpkins crafted magic things that could make a wish come true. Did I wish him dead? She wondered before she remembered that she was too old to believe in Grumpkins. Tyrion poisoned him. Her dwarf husband had hated his nephew, she knew. Could he truly have killed him? Did he know about my hairnet? About the black amethyst? He brought Joff wine. How could you make someone choke by putting an amethyst in their wine? If Tyrion did it, they will think I was part of it as well, she realized with a start of fear. How not? They were man and wife, and Joffrey had killed her father and mocked her with her brother's death. One flesh, one heart, one soul. Be quiet now, my sweetling, said Dantus. Outside the godswood, we must make no sound. P pull up your hood and hide your face. Sansa nodded and did as he said. He was so drunk that sometimes Sansa had to lend him her arm to keep him from falling. The bells were ringing out across the city, more and more of them joining in. She kept her head down and stayed in the shadows close behind Dantus. While descending the serpentine steps, he stumbled to his knees and retched. My poor Florian, she thought, as he wiped his mouth with a floppy sleeve. Dress dark, he'd said. Yet under his brown hooded cloak, he was wearing his old surcoat, 
red and pink horizontal stripes beneath a black chief bearing three gold crowns, the arms of House Hollard. Why are you wearing your surcoat? Joff decreed it was death if you were caught dressed as a knight again. He's— Oh. Nothing Joff had decreed mattered any longer. I wanted to be a knight. For, for this, at least. Dunters lurched back to his feet and took her arm. Come, be, be quiet now. No questions. They continued down the serpentine and across a small sunken courtyard. Sir Dantas shoved open a heavy door and lit a taper. They were inside a long gallery. Along the wall stood empty suits of armour, dark and dusty, their helms crested with rows of scales that continued down their backs. As they hurried past, the taper's light made the shadows of each scale stretch and twist. The hollow knights are turning into dragons, she thought. One more stair took them to an oaken door banded with iron. Be strong now, my gentle, you're almost there. When Dantas lifted the bar and pulled open the door, Sansa felt the cold breeze on her face. She passed through twelve feet of wall, and then she was outside the castle, standing on the top of the cliff. Below was the river, above the sky, and one was as black as the other. We must climb down, Sir Dantas said. At the bottom, a man is waiting to row us out to the ship. I'll fall. Bran had fallen, and he had loved to climb. No, you won't. There's a, a so sort of ladder, a s secret ladder, carved into the stone. Here, you can feel it, my lady. He got down on his knees with her, and made her lean over the edge of the cliff, groping with her fingers, until she found the handhold cut into the face of the bluff. Almost as good as rungs. Even so, it was a long way down. I can't. You must. Isn't there another way? This is the way. It won't be so hard for a strong young girl like you. Hold on tight and never look down, and you'll be... At the bottom, in no time at all. His eyes were shiny. Your poor Florian is fat and old and drunk. I'm the one should be afraid. I used to fall off my horse. Don't you remember? That was how we began. I was drunk and fell off my horse. And Geoffrey wanted my full head, but you saved me. "'You saved me, sweetling.' "'He's weeping,' she realised. "'And now you have saved me. "'Only if you go. "'If not, I have killed us both.' "'It was him,' she thought. "'He killed Joffrey.' "'She had to go, for him as much as herself. "'You go first, sir.' If he did fall, she did not want him falling down on her head and knocking them both off the cliff. As you wish, my lady. He gave her a sloppy kiss and swung his legs clumsily over the precipice, kicking about until he found a foothold. Let me get down a bit and uh, come after. You will come now. You must swear it. I'll come, she promised. Sir Dantas disappeared. 
she could hear him huffing and puffing as he began the descent. Sansa listened to the tolling of the bell, counting each ring. At ten, gingerly, she eased herself over the edge of the cliff, poking with her toes until they found a place to rest. The castle walls loomed large above her, and for a moment she wanted nothing so much as to pull herself up and run back to her warm rooms in the kitchen keep. Be brave, she told herself, be brave, like a lady in a song. Sansa dared not look down. She kept her eyes on the face of the cliff, making certain of each step before reaching for the next. The stone was rough and cold. Sometimes she could feel her fingers slipping, and the handholds were not as evenly spaced as she would have liked. The bells would not stop ringing. Before she was halfway down, her arms were trembling, and she knew she was going to fall. One more step, she told herself. One more step. She had to keep moving. If she stopped, she would never start again, and dawn would find her still clinging to the cliff, frozen in fear. One more step, and one more step. The ground took her by surprise. She stumbled and fell, her heart pounding. When she rolled onto her back and stared up at from where she had come, her head swam dizzily and her fingers clawed at the dirt. I did it. I did it. I didn't fall. I made the climb. And now I'm going home. Sedantus pulled her back onto her feet. This way, quiet now. Quiet, quiet. He stayed close to the shadows that lay black and thick beneath the cliffs. Thankfully, they did not have to go far. Fifty yards down river, a man sat in a small skiff, half hidden by the remains of a great galley that had gone aground there and burned. Dantas limped up to him, puffing. Oswell, no names, the man said. In the boat. He sat hunched over his oars, an old man, tall and gangling, with long white hair and a great hooked nose, with eyes shaded by a cowl. Get in, and be quick about it, he muttered. We need to be away. When both of them were safe aboard, the cowl man slid the blades into the water and put his back into the oars, rowing them out toward the channel. Behind them the bells were still tolling the boy king's death. They had the dark river all to themselves. With slow, steady, rhythmic strokes, they threaded their way downstream, sliding above the sunken galleys, past broken masts, burned hulls and torn sails. The oarlocks had been muffled, so they moved almost soundlessly. A mist was rising over the water. Sansa saw the embattled ramparts of one of the imp's winch towers looming above, but the great chain had been lowered and they rode unimpeded past the spot where a thousand men had burned. The shore fell away. The fog grew thicker. The sound of the bells began to fade. Finally, even the lights were gone, lost somewhere behind them. They were out in Blackwater Bay, and the world shrank to dark water, blowing mist, and their silent companion stooped over the oars. How far must we go? she asked. No talk. The oarsman was old, but stronger than he looked, and his voice was fierce. There was something oddly familiar about his face, though Sansa could not say what it was. Not far. Sir Dantas took her hand in his own and rubbed it gently. 
Your friend is near, waiting for you. No talk, the oarsman growled again. Sound carries over, water, sir, fool. Abashed, Sansa bit her lip and huddled on in silence. The rest was rowing, rowing, rowing. The eastern sky was vague with the first hint of dawn when Sansa finally saw a ghostly shape in the darkness ahead, a trading galley, her sails furled, moving slowly on a single bank of oars. As they drew closer, she saw the ship's figurehead, a merman with a golden crown blowing on a great seashell horn. She heard a voice cry out, and the galley swung slowly about. As they came alongside, the galley dropped a rope ladder over the rail. The rower shipped the oars and helped Sansa to her feet. Up now. Go on, girl. I got you. Sansa thanked him for his kindness, but received no answer but a grunt. It was much easier going up the rope ladder than it had been coming down the cliff. The oarsman, Oswell, followed close behind her, while Sardantus remained in the boat. Two sailors were waiting by the rail to help her onto the deck. Sansa was trembling. She's cold, she heard someone say. He took off his cloak and put it round her shoulders. There, is that better, my lady? Rest easy. The worst is past and done. She knew the voice. But he's in the pale, she thought. Sir Lothar Brun stood beside him with a torch. Lord Pertire, Dantus called from the boat, I must needs row back before they seek to look for me. Batar Baelish put a hand on the rail. But first, you'll want your payment. Ten thousand dragons, was it? Ten thousand? Dantus rubbed his mouth with the back of his hand. As you promised, my lord. Sir Lothar, the reward. Lothar Brune dipped his torch. Three men stepped to the gunwale, raised crossbows, and fired. One bolt took Dantus in the chest as he looked up, punching through the left crown on his surcoat. The others ripped into throat and belly. It happened so quickly, neither Dantus nor Sansa had time to cry out. When it was done, Lothar Brune tossed the torch down on top of the corpse. The little boat was blazing fiercely as the galley moved away. You killed him! Clutching the rail, Sansa turned away and wretched. Had she escaped the Lannisters to tumble into worse? My lady, Littlefinger murmured, your grief is wasted on such a man as that. He was a sot, and no man's friend. But he saved me. He sold you for a promise of ten thousand dragons. Your disappearance will make them suspect you in Joffrey's death. The gold cloaks will hunt, and the eunuch will jingle his purse. Dantus, well, you heard him. He sold you for gold, and when he'd drunk it up, he would have sold you again. A bag of dragons buys a man's silence for a while, but a well-placed quarrel buys it forever. He smiled sadly. All he did, he did at my behest. I dared not befriend you openly. When I heard how you saved his life at Joff's tourney, I knew he would be the perfect cat's paw. Sansa felt sick. 
he said it was my Florian. Do you perchance recall what I said to you that day your father sat the Iron Throne? The moment came back to her vividly. You tell me that life was not a song, that I would learn that one day to my sorrow. She felt tears in her eyes, but whether she wept for Sedantus Hollard, for Joff, for Tyrion, or for herself, Sansa could not say. Is it all lies, forever and ever, everyone and everything? Almost everyone, save you and I, of course. He smiled. Come to the Godswood tonight, if you want to go home. The note. It was you. It had to be the Godswood. No other place in the Red Keep is safe from the eunuch's little birds, or little rats, as I call them. There are trees in the Godswood, instead of walls, sky above instead of ceiling, roots and dirt and rock in place of floor. The rats have no place to scurry. Rats need to hide, lest men skewer them with swords. Lord Pattaya took her arm. Let me show you to your cabin. You have had a long and trying day, I know. You must be weary. Already the little boat was no more than the swirl of smoke and fire behind them, almost lost in the immensity of the dawn sea. There was no going back. Her only road was forward. Very weary, she admitted. As he led her below, he said, Tell me of the feast. The queen took such pains, the singers, the jugglers, the dancing bear. Did your little lord husband enjoy my jousting dwarfs? Yours? I had to send a brave ass for them and hide them away in a brothel until the wedding. The expense was exceeded only by the bother. It is surprisingly difficult to hide a dwarf. And Joffrey, <laughs> you can lead a king to water, but with Joff one had to splash it about before he realized he could drink it. When I told him about my little surprise, his grace said, Why would I want some ugly dwarfs at my feast? I hate dwarfs. I had to take him by the shoulder and whisper, Not as much as your uncle will. The deck rocked beneath her feet, and Sansa felt as if the world itself had grown unsteady. They think Tyrion poisoned Joffrey. Sir Duntas said they seized him. Littlefinger smiled. Widowhood will become you, Sansa. The thought made her tummy flutter. She might never need to share a bed with Tyrion again. That was what she'd wanted, wasn't it? The cabin was low and cramped, but a feather bed had been laid upon the narrow sleeping shelf to make it more comfortable, and thick furs piled atop it. It will be snug, I know, but you shouldn't be too uncomfortable. Littlefinger pointed out a cedar chest under the porthole. You'll find fresh garb within, dresses, small clothes, warm stockings, a cloak, wool and linen only, I fear. Unworthy of a maid so beautiful, but they'll serve to keep you dry and clean until we can find you something finer. He had all this prepared for me. My lord, I, I, I do not understand. Joffrey gave you Harrenhal, 
made you Lord Paramount of the Trident. Why? Why should I wish him dead? Little Finger shrugged. I had no motive. Besides, I am a thousand leagues away in the Vale. Always keep your foes confused. If they are never certain who you are or what you want, they cannot know what you are like to do next. Sometimes the best way to baffle them is to make moves that have no purpose, or even seem to work against you. Remember that, Sansa, when you come to play the game. What? What game? The only game. The Game of Thrones. He brushed back a strand of her hair. You are old enough to know that your mother and I were more than friends. There was a time when Cat was all I wanted in this world. I dared to dream of the life we might make and the children she would give me. But she was a daughter of River Run and Hoster Tully. Family, duty, honor, Sansa. Family, duty, honor, meant I could never have her hand. But she gave me something finer, a gift a woman can give but once. How could I turn my back upon her daughter? In a better world, you might have been mine, not Eddard Stark's, my loyal, loving daughter. Put Joffrey from your mind, sweetling. Dantus. Tyrion, all of them. They will never trouble you again. You are safe now. That is all that matters. You are safe with me and sailing home. Jamie. The king is dead, they told him, never knowing that Joffrey was his son as well as his sovereign. Liam opened his throat with a dagger, a customonger declared at the roadside inn where they spent the night. He drank his blood from a big gold chalice. The man did not recognize the bearded one-handed knight with a big bat on his shield, no more than any of them, so he said things he might otherwise have swallowed had he known who was listening. It was poison did the deed, the innkeep insisted. The boy's face turned black as a plum. "'May the father judge him justly,' murmured a septon. "'The dwarf's wife did the murder with him,' swore an archer in Lord Rowan's livery. "'Afterwards she vanished from the hall in a puff of brimstone, "'and a ghostly direwolf was seen prowling the red keep, "'blood dripping from its jaws. "'Jamie sat silent through it all, letting the words wash over him, "'a horn of ale forgotten in his one good hand.' Joffrey, my blood, my firstborn, my son. He tried to bring the boy's face to mind, but his features kept turning into Cersei's. She will be in mourning, her hair in disarray, and her eyes red from crying. Her mouth trembling, she tries to speak. She will cry again when she sees me, though she'll fight the tears. His sister seldom wept, but when she was with him, she could not stand for others to think her weak. Only to her twin did she show her wounds. She will look to me for comfort and revenge. 
They rode hard the next day at Jamie's insistence. His son was dead, and his sister needed him. When he saw the city before him, its watchtowers dark against the gathering dusk, Jamie Lannister cantered up to Steelshanks Walton behind Nage with a peace banner. What's that awful stink? the Northman complained. Death, thought Jamie, but he said, Smoke, sweat, and shit. King's Landing, in short. If you have a good nose, you can smell the treachery, too. You've never smelt a city before. I smelt White Arbor. It never stank like this. White Arbor is to King's Landing, as my brother Tyrion is to Sir Gregor Clegane. Nage led them up a low hill, the seven-tailed peace banner lifting and turning in the wind, the polished seven-pointed star shining bright upon its staff. He would see Cersei soon, and Tyrion, and their father. Could my brother truly have killed the boy? Jamie found that hard to believe. He was curiously calm. Men were supposed to go mad with grief when their children died, he knew. They were supposed to tear their hair out by the roots, to curse the gods, and swear red vengeance. So why was it that he felt so little? The boy lived and died, believing Robert Baratheon his sire. Jamie had seen him born, that was true, though more for Cersei than the child. But he had never held him. How would it look, his sister warned him, when the women finally left them? Bad enough Joff looks like you, without you mooning over him. Jamie yielded with hardly a fight. The boy had been a squalling pink thing who demanded too much of Cersei's time, Cersei's love, and Cersei's breasts. Robert was welcome to him. And now he's dead. He pictured Joff lying still and cold, with a face black from poison, and still felt nothing. Perhaps he was the monster they claimed. If the father above came down to offer him back his son or his hand, Jamie knew which he would choose. He had a second son, after all, and seed enough for many more. If Cersei wants another child, I'll give her one, and this time I'll hold him, and the others take those who do not like it. Robert was rotting in his grave, and Jamie was sick of lies. He turned abruptly and galloped back to find Brian. Gods know why I bother. She is the least companionable creature I've ever had the misfortune to meet. The wench rode well behind, and a few feet off to the side, as if to proclaim that she was no part of them. They had found men's garb for her along the way, a tunic here, a mantle there, a pair of breeches, and a cowl cloak, even an old iron breastplate. She looked more comfortable dressed as a man, but nothing would ever make her look handsome, nor happy. Once out of Harrenhal, her usual pig-head stubbornness had soon reasserted itself. I want my arms and armor back, she had insisted. Oh, by all means, let us have you back in steel, Jamie replied. A helm especially. We'll all be happier if you keep your mouth shut and your visor down. That much Brian could do but her sullen silences soon began to fray his good humour almost as much as Kyburn's endless attempts to be ingratiating. I never thought I would find myself missing the company of Cleos Frey, God's help me. 
he was beginning to wish he had left her for the bear after all. King's Landing, Jamie announced when he found her. Our journey's done, my lady. You've kept your vow and delivered me to King's Landing. All but a few fingers and a hand. Brian's eyes were listless. That was only half my vow. I told Lady Catelyn I would bring her back her daughters, or Sansa at the least. And now— She never met Rob Stark, yet her grief for him runs deeper than mine for Joff. Or perhaps it was Lady Catelyn she mourned. They had been at Brindlewood when they had had that news, from a red-faced tub of a knight named Sir Bertram Beesbury, whose arms were three beehives on a field striped black and yellow. A troop of Lord Piper's men had passed through Brindlewood only yesterday, Beesbury told them, rushing to King's Landing beneath a peace banner of their own. With a young wolf dead, Piper saw no point to fighting on. His son is captive at the two old twins. Brian gaped like a cow about to choke in her cud. So it fell to Jamie to draw out the tale of the Red Wedding. Every great lord has unruly bannermen who envy him his place, he told her afterward. My father had the Reigns and Tarbecks. The Tyrells have the Florence. Huster Tully had Walder Frey. Only strength keeps such men in their place. The moment they smell weakness. During the Age of Heroes, the Boltons used to flay the Starks and wear their skins as cloaks. She looked so miserable that Jamie almost found himself wanting to comfort her. Since that day, Brian had been like one half dead. Even calling her wench failed to provoke any response. The strength is gone from her. The woman had dropped a rock on Robin Ryger, battled a bear with a tawny sword, bitten off Vargo Hote's ear, and fought Jamie to exhaustion. But she was broken now, done. I'll speak to my father about returning you to Tarth, if it please you, he told her. Or if you would rather stay, I could perchance find some place for you at court. As a lady companion to the queen, she said dully. Jamie remembered the sight of her in that pink satin gown, and tried not to imagine what his sister might say of such a companion. Perhaps a post with a city watch. I will not serve with oath-breakers and murderers. Then why did you ever bother putting on a sword? He might have said, but he bit back the words. As you will, Brain. One-handed, he wheeled his horse about and left her. The gate of the guards was open when they reached it, but two dozen wains were lined up along the roadside loaded with casks of cider, barrels of apples, bales of hay, and some of the biggest pumpkins Jamie had ever seen. Almost every wagon had its guards, men-at-arms wearing the badges of small lordlings, sell-swords in mail and boiled leather, sometimes only a pink-cheeked farmer's son clutching a homemade spear with a far-hardened point. Jamie smiled at them all as he trotted past. At the gate the gold cloaks were collecting coin from each driver before waving the wagons through. "'What's this?' still Shanks demanded. I've got to pay for the right to sell inside the city by command of the king's hand and the master of coin. Jamie looked up at the long line of wains, carts, and laden horses. 
yet they still line up to pay. There's good coin to be made here now the fighting's done, the miller in the nearest wagon told them cheerfully. It's a Lannister's holder city now, old Lord Tywin of the Rock. They say he shits silver. Gold, Jamie corrected dryly, and Littlefinger mints the stuff from Golden Rod, I vow. The imp as master of coin now, said the captain of the gate, or was till they arrested him for murdering the king. The man looked the Northman over suspiciously. Who are you lot? Lord Bolton's men. Come to see the king's hand. The captain glanced at Nage with his peace banner. Come to bend the knee, you mean? You're not the first. Go straight up to the castle and see you make no trouble. He waved them through and turned back to the wagons. If King's Landing mourned its dead boy king, Jamie would never have known it. On the street of seeds, a begging brother in threadbare robes was praying loudly for Joffrey's soul, but the passers-by paid him no more heed than they would a loose shutter banging in the wind. Elsewhere milled the usual crowds, gold cloaks in their black mail, baker's boys selling tarts and breads and hot pies, whores leaning out of windows with their bodices half unlaced, gutters redolent of night soil. They passed five men trying to drag a dead horse from the mouth of an alley, and elsewhere a juggler spinning knives through the air to delight a throng of drunken Tyrell soldiers and small children. Riding down familiar streets with two hundred Northmen, a chainless maester, and an ugly freak of a woman at his side, Jamie found he scarcely drew a second look. He did not know whether he ought to be amused or annoyed. They do not know me, he said to Steelshanks as they rode through Cobbler Square. Your face is changed, and your arms as well, the Northman said, and they have a new Kingslayer now. The gates to the Red Keep were open, but a dozen gold cloaks armed with pikes barred the way. They lowered their points as Steelshanks came trotting up, but Jamie recognized the white knight commanding them. Sir Merrin. Sir Merrin Tran's droopy eyes went wide. Sir Jamie? How nice to be remembered. Move these men aside. It had been a long time since anyone had leapt to obey him quite so fast. Jamie had forgotten how well he liked it. They found two more king's guard in the outer ward, two who had not worn white cloaks when Jamie last served here. How like Cersei to name me Lord Commander, and then choose my colleagues without consulting me. Someone has given me two new brothers, I see, he said as he dismounted. We have that honour, sir. The Knight of Flowers shone so fine and pure in his white scales and silk that Jamie felt a tattered and tawdry thing by contrast. Jamie turned to Merentrant. Sir, you have been remiss in teaching our new brothers their duties. What duties? said Merentrant defensively. Keeping the king alive. How many monarchs have you lost since I left the city? Two, is it? Then Sir Balin saw the stump. Oh, your hand! Jamie made himself smile. I fight with my left now. It makes for more of a contest. Where will I find my lord father? In the cellar, with Lord Tyrell and Prince Oberon. Mace Tyrell and the Red Viper breaking bread together. Strange and stranger. Is the queen with them as well? No, my lord, 
Sir Balin said. You'll find her in the sept, praying over King Joff. You? The last of the Northmen had dismounted, Jamie saw, and now Loras Tyrell had seen Brian. Sir Loris. She stood stupidly, holding her bridle. Loras Tyrell strode toward her. Why? he said. You will tell me why. He treated you kindly, gave you a rainbow cloak. Why would you kill him? I never did. I would have died for him. You will? Sir Loras drew his longsword. It was not me. Eamon Caius swore it was, with his dying breath. He was outside the tent. He never saw. There was no one in the tent but you and Lady Stark. Do you claim that old woman could cut through hardened steel? There was a shadow. I know how mad it sounds, but I was helping Renly into his armor, and the candles blew out, and there was blood everywhere. It was Stannis, Lady Catelyn said. His, his shadow. I had no part in it, on my honor. You have no honor. Draw your sword. I won't have it said that I slew you while your hand was empty. Jamie stepped between them. Put the sword away, sir. Sir Loras edged around him. Are you craven as well as a killer, Brian? Is that why you ran, with his blood in your hands? Draw your sword, woman. Best hope she doesn't. Jamie blocked his path again. Or is like to be your corpse we carry out. The wench is as strong as Gregor Clegane, though not so pretty. This is no concern of yours. Sir Loras shoved him aside. Jamie grabbed the boy with his good hand and yanked him around. I am the Lord Commander of the King's Guard, you arrogant pup. Your commander, so long as you wear that white cloak. Now sheathe your bloody sword, or I'll take it from you and shove it up some place even Renly never found. The boy hesitated half a heartbeat long enough for Sir Balin Swan to say, Do as the Lord Commander says, Loras. Some of the gold cloaks drew their steel then, and that made some dreadfort men do the same. Splendid, thought Jamie. No sooner do I climb down off my horse than we have a bloodbath in the yard. Sir Loras Tyrell slammed his sword back into its sheath. That wasn't so difficult, was it? I want her arrested. Sir Loras pointed. Lady Brian, I charge you with the murder of Lord Renly Baratheon. For what it's worth, said Jamie, the wench does have honour, more than I've seen from you. And it may even be she's telling it true. I'll grant you she's not what you call clever, but even my horse could come up with a better lie, if it was a lie she meant to tell. As you insist, however. Sir Balan, Escort Lady Brian to a tower cell and hold her there under guard, and find some suitable quarters for Steelshanks and his men, until such time as my father can see them. Yes, my lord. Brian's big blue eyes were full of hurt as Balon Swan and a dozen gold cloaks led her away. You ought to be blowing me kisses, wench, he wanted to tell her. Why must they misunderstand every bloody thing he did? Ares. It all grows for Mary's. Jamie turned his back on the wench and strode across the yard. Another knight in white armour was guarding the doors of the royal sept, 
a tall man with a black beard, broad shoulders, and a hooked nose. When he saw Jamie, he gave a sour smile and said, And where do you think you're going? Into the sept. Jamie lifted his stump to point. That one right there. I mean to see the Queen. Her grace is in mourning, and why would she be wanting to see the likes of you? Because I'm a lover and the father of a murdered son, he wanted to say. Who in seven hells are you? A knight of the King's Guard. And you best learn some respect, cripple, or I'll have that other hand, and leave you to suck up your porridge of a morning. I am the Queen's brother, sir. The White Knight thought that funny. <laughs> Escaped, have you? <laughs> and grown a bit as well, my lord. <laughs> Her other brother, Dolt, and the Lord Commander of the King's Guard. Now stand aside, or you'll wish you had. The Dolt took a long look this time. Is it... Sir Jamie? He straightened. Oh, my pardon, my lord, I, I did not know you. I have the honour to be Sir Osmond Kettleblack. Where's the honour in that? I want some time alone with my sister. See that no one else enters the sepsa. If we're disturbed, I'll have your bloody head. Aye, oh, sir, as you say. Sir Osmond opened the door. Circe was kneeling before the altar of the mother. Joffrey's beer had been laid out beneath the stranger who led the newly dead to the other world. The smell of incense hung heavy in the air, and a hundred candles burned, sending up a hundred prayers. Joff's like to need every one of them, too. His sister looked over her shoulder. Who? she said, then. Jamie? She rose, her eyes brimming with tears. Is it truly you? She did not come to him, however. She has never come to me, he thought. She has always waited, letting me come to her. She gives, but I must ask. You should have come sooner, she murmured, when he took her in his arms. Why couldn't you have come sooner? To keep him safe. My boy. Our boy. I came as fast as I could. He broke from the embrace and stepped back a pace. It's war out there, sister. You look so thin. And your hair, your golden hair. The hair will grow back. Jamie lifted his stump. She needs to see. This won't. Her eyes went wide. The Starks? No. This was Vargo Holt's work. The name meant nothing to her. Who? The goat of Harrenhal, for a little while. Cersei turned to gaze at Joffrey's beer. They had dressed the dead king in gilded armor, eerily similar to Jamie's own. The visor of the helm was closed, but the candles reflected softly off the gold, so the boy shimmered bright and brave in death. The candlelight woke fires in the rubies that decorated the bodice of Cersei's morning dress as well. Her hair fell to her shoulders, undressed and unkempt. He killed him, Jamie, just as he'd warned me. One day, when I thought myself safe and happy, he would turn my joy to ashes in my mouth, he said. Tyrion said that? Jamie had not wanted to believe it. Kinslaying was worse than kingslaying in the eyes of gods and men. He knew the boy was mine. I loved Tyrion. I was good to him. 
Well, but for that one time. But the imp did not know the truth of that. Or did he? Why would he kill Joff? For a whore. She clutched his good hand and held it tight in hers. He told me he was going to do it. Joff knew. As he was dying, he pointed at his murderer, at our twisted little monster of a brother. She kissed Jamie's fingers. You'll kill him for me, won't you? You'll avenge our son. Jamie pulled away. He is still my brother. He shoved his stump at her face, in case she failed to see it. And I am in no fit state to be killing anyone. You have another hand, don't you? I'm not asking you to best the hound in battle. Tyrion is a dwarf locked in a cell. The guards will stand aside for you. The thought turned his stomach. I must know more of this, of how it happened. You shall, Cersei promised. There's to be a trial. When you hear all he did, you'll want him dead as much as I do. She touched his face. I was lost without you, Jamie. I was afraid the Starks would send me your head. I could not have borne that. She kissed him, a light kiss, the merest brush of her lips on his, but he could feel her tremble as he slid his arms around her. I'm not whole without you. There was no tenderness in the kiss he returned to her, only hunger. Her mouth opened for his tongue. No, she said weakly, when his lips moved down her neck. Not here. The Septons. The others can take the Septons. He kissed her again, kissed her silent, kissed her until she moaned. Then he knocked the candles aside and lifted her up onto the mother's altar, pushing up her skirts and the silken shift beneath. She pounded on his chest with feeble fists, murmuring about the risk, the danger, about their father, about the Septons, about the wrath of gods. He never heard her. He undid his breeches and climbed up and pushed her bare white legs apart. One hand slid up her thigh and underneath her small clothes. When he tore them away, he saw that her moon's blood was on her, but it made no difference. Hurry! She was whispering now. Quickly, quickly now. Do it now. Do me now. Jamie, Jamie, Jamie. Her hands helped guide him. Yes, Cersei said as he thrust. My brother, sweet brother, yes, like that, yes. I have you. You're home now, you're home now, you're home. She kissed his ear and stroked his short, bristly hair. Jamie lost himself in her flesh. He could feel Cersei's heart beating in time with his own and the wetness of blood and seed where they were joined. But no sooner were they done than the Queen said, Let me up. If we are discovered like this. Reluctantly he rolled away and helped her off the altar. The pale marble was smeared with blood. Jamie wiped it clean with his sleeve, then bent to pick up the candles he had knocked over. Fortunately, they had all gone out when they fell. If the sept had caught fire, I might never have noticed. This was folly. Cersei pulled her gown straight. With father in the castle, Jamie, we must be careful. I'm sick of being careful. The Targaryens wed brother to sister. Why shouldn't we do the same? Marry me, Cersei. Stand up before the realm and say it's me you want. We'll have our own wedding feast and make another son in place of Joffrey. 
she drew back. That's not funny. Did you hear me chuckling? Did you leave your wits at Riveron? Her voice had an edge to it. Tommen's throne derives from Robert, you know that. He'll have Castle Rock, isn't that enough? Let father sit the throne. All I want is you. He made to touch her cheek. Old habits die hard, and it was his right arm he lifted. Cersei recoiled from his stump. Don't! Don't talk like this. You're scaring me, Jamie. Don't be stupid. One wrong word, and you'll cost us everything. What did they do to you? They cut off my hand. No, it's more. You're changed. She backed off a step. We'll talk later, on the morrow. I have Sansa Stark's maids in a tower cell. I need to question them. You should go to father. I crossed a thousand leagues to come to you, and lost the best part of me along the way. Don't tell me to leave. Leave me, she repeated, turning away. Jamie laced up his breeches and did as she commanded. Weary as he was, he could not seek a bed. By now his lord father knew that he was back in the city. The Tower of the Hand was guarded by Lannister household guards, who knew him at once. The guards are good to give you back to us, sir, one said as he held the door. The guards had no part in it. Catelyn Stark gave me back, her and the Lord of the Dreadfort. He climbed the stairs and pushed into the solar unannounced, to find his father sitting by the fire. Lord Tywin was alone, for which Jamie was thankful. He had no desire to flaunt his maimed hand for Mace Tyrell or the Red Viper just now, much less the two of them together. Jamie, Lord Tywin said, as if they had last seen each other at breakfast. Lord Bolton led me to expect you earlier. I had hoped you'd be here for the wedding. I was delayed. Jamie closed the door softly. My sister outdid herself, I'm told. Seventy-seven courses and a regicide. Never a wedding like it. How long have you known I was free? The eunuch told me a few days after your escape. I sent the men into the Riverlands to look for you. Gregor Clegane, Samuel Spicer, the Brothers Plum. Varys put out the word as well, but quietly. We agreed that the fewer people who knew you were free, the fewer would be hunting you. Did Varys mention this? He moved closer to the fire to let his father see. Lord Tywin pushed himself out of his chair, breath hissing between his teeth. Who did this? If Lady Catelyn thinks. Lady Catelyn held a sword to my throat and made me swear to return her daughters. This was your goat's work, Vargo Hoat, the Lord of Harrenhal. Lord Tywin looked away, disgusted. No longer. Sir Gregor's taken the castle. The sellswords deserted their erstwhile captain almost to a man, and some of Lady Wensel people opened a postern gate. Clegane found Hoat, sitting alone, in the hall of a hundred hearts, half mad with pain and fever, from a wound that festered. He is here, I'm told. Jamie had to laugh. Too sweet, his ear. He could scarcely wait to tell Brian, though the wench wouldn't find it half so funny as he did. Is he dead yet? As soon, 
they have taken off his hands and feet. But Clegane seems amused by the way the Kaharic slubbers. Jamie's smile curdled. What about his brave companions? The few who stayed at Harrenhal are dead. The others scattered. They'll make for ports, I'll warrant, or try and lose themselves in the woods. His eyes went back to Jamie's stump, and his mouth grew taut with fury. We'll have their heads, every one. Can you use a sword with your left hand? I can hardly dress myself in the morning. Jamie held up the hand in question for his father's inspection. Four fingers, a thumb, much like the other. Why shouldn't it work as well? Good, his father said. That is good. I have a gift for you, for your return. After Varys told me. Unless it's a new hand, let it wait. Jamie took the chair across from him. How did Joffrey die? Poison. It was meant to appear as though he choked on a morsel of food, but I had his throat slit open, and the maesters could find no obstruction. Cersei claims that Tyrion did it. Your brother served the king the poison wine, with a thousand people looking on. That was rather foolish of him. I have taken Tyrion's squire into custody. His wife's maids as well. We shall see if they have anything to tell us. Sir Adam's gold cloaks are searching for this Stark girl, and Varys has offered a reward. The king's justice will be done. The king's justice? You would execute your own son? He stands accused of regicide and kinslaying. If he is innocent, he has nothing to fear. First we must needs consider the evidence for and against him. Evidence? In this city of liars, Jamie knew what sort of evidence would be found. Brenly died strangely as well, when Stannis needed him to. Lord Renly was murdered by one of his own guards, some uh, woman from Tarth. That woman from Tarth is the reason I'm here. I tossed her into a cell to appease Sir Loris, but I'll believe in Renly's ghost before I believe she did him any harm. But Stannis, it was poison that killed Joffrey, not sorcery. Lord Tywin glanced at Jamie's stump again. You cannot serve in the king's guard without a sword end. I can, he interrupted, and I will. There's precedent. I'll look in the white book and find it if you like. Crippled or whole, a knight of the king's guard serves for life. Cersei ended that when she replaced Sir Barristan on grounds of age. <laughs> a suitable gift to the faith will persuade the High Septon to release you from your vows. Your sister was foolish to dismiss Selmy, admittedly, but now that she has opened the gates, someone needs to close them again. Jamie stood. I am tired of having high-born women kicking pails of shit at me, father. No one ever asked me if I wanted to be Lord Commander of the King's Guard, but it seems I am. I have a duty. You do? Lord Tywin rose as well. A duty to House Lannister. You are the heir to Castle Rock. 
That is where you should be. Tommen should accompany you as your ward and squire. The Rock is where he'll learn to be a Lannister, and I want him away from his mother. I mean to find a new husband for Cersei. Oberon Martell, perhaps, once I convince Lord Tyrell that the match does not threaten Highgarden. And it is past time you were wed. The Tyrells are now insisting that Marjorie be wed to Tommen. But if I were to offer you instead— No! Jamie had heard all he could stand, no, more than he could stand. He was sick of it, sick of lords and lies, sick of his father, his sister, sick of the whole bloody business. No, 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 no! How many times must I say no before you hear me? Oberon Martell? The man's infamous! And not for just poisoning his sword. He has more bastards than Robert, and beds with boys as well. And if you think for one misbegotten moment that I would wed Joffrey's widow— Lord Tyrell swears, the girl's still maiden. She can die a maiden as far as I'm concerned. I don't want her, and I don't want your rock. You are my son. I am a knight of the King's Guard, the Lord Commander of the King's Guard, and that's all I mean to be. Firelight gleamed golden in the stiff whiskers that framed Lord Tywin's face. A vein pulsed in his neck, but he did not speak, and did not speak and did not speak. The strained silence went on until it was more than Jamie could endure. Father, he began, You are not my son. Lord Tywin turned his face away. You say you are the Lord Commander of the King's Guard, and only that. Very well, sir. Go. Do your duty. Davis. Their voices rose like cinders, swirling up into purple evening sky. Lead us from the darkness, O my Lord. Fill our hearts with fire, so we may walk your shining path. The night fire burned against the gathering dark, a great bright beast whose shifting orange light threw shadows twenty feet tall across the yard. All along the walls of Dragonstone, the army of gargoyles and grotesques seemed to stir and shift. Davis looked down from an arched window in the gallery above. He watched Melisande lift her arms as if to embrace the shivering flames. Relor, she sang in a voice loud and clear, you are the light in our eyes, the fire in our hearts, the heat in our loins. Yours is the sun that warms our days, yours the stars that guard us in the dark of night. Lord of light, defend us. The night is dark and full of terrors. Queen Selyse led the responses, her pinched face full of fervor. King Stannis stood beside her, jaw clenched hard, the points of his red-gold crown shimmering whenever he moved his head. He is with them, but not of them, Davis thought. Princess Shireen was between them, the mottled grey patches on her face and neck almost black in the firelight. Lord of light, protect us, the queen sang. 
The king did not respond with the others. He was staring into the flames. Davis wondered what he saw there. Another vision of the war to come? Or something closer to home? Relore, who gave us breath, we thank you, sang Melisande. Relore, who gave us day, we thank you. We thank you for the sun that warms us, Queen Celise and the other worshippers replied. We thank you for the stars that watch us. We thank you for our hearths and for our torches that keep the savage dark at bay. There were fewer voices saying the responses than there had been the night before, it seemed to Davis. Fewer faces flushed with orange light about the fire. But would there be fewer still on the morrow? Or more? The voice of Sir Axel Florent rang loud as a trumpet. He stood barrel-chested and bandy-legged, the firelight washing his face like a monstrous orange tongue. Davis wondered if Sir Axel would thank him after. The work they did tonight might well make him the king's hand, as he dreamed. Melisande cried, We thank you, Fastenus, by your grace, our king. We thank you for the pure white fire of his goodness, for the red sword of justice in his hand, for the love he bears his leal people. Guide him and defend him, Relor, and grant him strength to smite his foes. Grant him strength, answered Queen Selyse, Sir Axel, Devon, and the rest. Grant him courage, grant him wisdom. When he was a boy, the Septons had taught Davis to pray to the crone for wisdom, to the warrior for courage, to the smith for strength. But it was the mother he prayed to now, to keep his sweet son Devon safe from the red woman's demon god. Lord Davis, we'd best be about it. Sir Andrew touched his elbow gently. My lord? The title still rang queer in his ears, yet Davis turned away from the window. Oi, it's time. Stannis Melisande and the Queen's men would be at their prayers an hour or more. The Red Priest lit their fires every day at sunset to thank Relor for the day just ending and beg him to send his son back on the morrow to banish the gathering darkness. A smuggler must know the tides and when to seize them. That was all he was at the end of the day. Davis, the smuggler. His maimed hand rose to his throat for his luck and found nothing. He snatched it down and walked a bit more quickly. His companions kept pace, matching their strides to his own. The bastard of Nightsong had a pox-ravaged face and an air of tattered chivalry. Sir Gerald Gower was broad, bluff, and blonde. Sir Andrew Estamont stood a head taller, with a spade-shaped beard and shaggy brown eyebrows. They were all good men in their own ways, Davis thought. And they will all be dead men soon, if this night's work goes badly. Fire is a living thing, the Red Woman told him when he asked her to teach him how to see the future in the flames. It is always moving, always changing, like a book whose letters dance and shift even as you try to read them. It takes years of training to see the shapes beyond the flames, 
and more years still, to learn to tell the shapes of what will be, from what may be, or what was. Even then, it comes hard, hard. You do not understand that, you men of the Sunset Lands. Davis asked her then how it was that Sir Axel had learned the trick of it so quickly. But to that she only smiled enigmatically and said, Any cat may stare into a fire and see red mice at play. He had not lied to his king's men about that or any of it. The red woman may see what we intend, he warned them. We should start by killing her then urged Lewis, the fishwife. I know a place where we could weigh lair, four of us with sharp swords. You doom us all, said Davis. Maester Cressin tried to kill her, and she knew at once, from her flames, I guess. It seems to me that she is very quick to sense any threat to her own person, but surely she cannot see everything. If we ignore her, Perhaps we might escape our notice. There is no honour in hiding and sneaking, objected Sir Tristan of Tally Hill, who had been a sunglass man, before Lord Gunser went to Melisande's fires. Is it so honourable to burn? Davis asked him. You saw Lord Sunglass die. Is that what you want? I don't need men of honour now. I need smugglers. Are you with me or no? They were. Gods be good, they were. Maester Pilus was leading Edric Storm through his sums when Davis pushed open the door. Sir Andrew was close behind him. The others had been left to guard the steps and cellar door. The maester broke off. That will be enough for now, Hendrick. The boy was puzzled by the intrusion. Lord Davis, Sir Andrew, we were doing sums. Sir Andrew smiled. I hated sums when I was your age, cos... I don't mind them so much. I like history best, though. It's full of tales. Edric, said Maester Pilus, run and get your cloak now. You're to go with Lord Davis. I am. Edric got to his feet. Where are we going? His mouth set stubbornly. I won't go to pray to the Lord of Light. I'm a warrior's man, like my father. We know, Davis said. Come, lad, we must not dawdle. Edric donned a thick hooded cloak of undyed wool. Maester Pilus helped him fasten it and pull the hood up to shadow his face. Are you coming with us, Maester? the boy asked. No. Pilus touched the chain of many metals he wore about his neck. My place is here on Dragonstone. Go with Lord Davis now and do as he says. He is the king's hand, remember? What did I tell you about the king's hand? The hand speaks with the king's voice. The young maester smiled. That's so. Go now. Davis had been uncertain of Pylos. Perhaps he resented him for taking old Crescent's place, but now he could only admire the man's courage. This could mean his life as well. Outside the maester's chambers, Sir Gerald Gower waited by the steps. Edric Storm looked at him curiously. As they made their descent, he asked, Where are we going, Lord Davis? To the water. A ship awaits you. The boy stopped suddenly. A ship? 
one of Salador Sands. Sala is a good friend of mine. I shall go with you, cousin, Sir Andrew assured him. There's nothing to be frightened of. I am not frightened, Edric said indignantly. Only, is Shireen coming too? No, said Davis. The princess must remain here with her father and mother. I have to see her then, Edric explained, to say my farewells, otherwise she'll be sad. Not so sad as if she sees you burn. There is no time, Davis said. I will tell the princess that you were thinking of her, and you can write her when you get to where you're going. The boy frowned. Are you sure I must go? Why would my uncle send me from Dragonstone? Did I displease him? I never meant to. He got that stubborn look again. I want to see my uncle. I want to see King Stannis. Sir Andrew and Sir Gerald exchanged a look. There's no time for that, cousin, Sir Andrew said. I want to see him, Edric insisted louder. He does not want to see you. Davis had to say something to get the boy moving. I am his hand. I speak with his voice. Must I go to the king and tell him that you would not do as you were told? Do you know how angry that will make him? Have you ever seen your uncle angry? He pulled off his glove and showed the boy the four fingers that Stannis had shortened. I have. It was all lies. There had been no anger in Stannis Baratheon when he cut the ends off his onion knight's fingers, only an iron sense of justice. But Edric Storm had not been born then, and could not know that, and the threat had the desired effect. He should not have done that, the boy said, but he let Davis take him by the hand and draw him down the steps. The bastard of Nightsung joined them at the cellar door. They walked quickly across a shadowed yard and down some steps under the stone tail of a frozen dragon. Lewis the fishwife and Omer Blackberry waited at the Boston gate, two guards bound and trussed at their feet. The boat, Davis asked them. It's there, Lewis said. Four oarsmen. The galley is anchored just past the point. Mad Prentice. Davis chuckled. <laughs> a ship named after a madman. Yes, that's fitting. Sella had a streak of the pirate's black humor. He went to one knee before Edric Storm. I must leave you now, he said. There's a boat waiting to row you out to a galley. Then it's off across the sea. You are Robert's son, so I know you will be brave, no matter what happens. I will, only— The boy hesitated. Think of this as an adventure, my lord. Davis tried to sound hale and cheerful. It's a start of your life's great adventure. May the warrior defend you. And may the father judge you justly, Lord Davis. The boy went with his cousin, Sir Andrew, out the postern gate. The others followed, all but the bastard of Nightsong. May the father judge me justly, Davis thought ruefully. But it was the king's judgment that concerned him now. These two, asked Sir Roland of the guards, when he had closed and barred the gate. Drag them into a cellar, said Davis. You can cut them free when Edric's safely underway. The bastard gave a curt nod. 
There were no more words to say. The easy part was done. Davis pulled his glove on, wishing he had not lost his luck. He had been a better man, and a braver one, with that bag of bones around his neck. He ran his shortened fingers through thinning brown hair, and wondered if it needed to be cut. He must look presentable when he stood before the king. Dragonstone had never seemed so dark and fearsome. He walked slowly, his footsteps echoing off black walls and dragons. Stone dragons, who will never wake, I pray. The stone drum loomed huge ahead of him. The guards at the door uncrossed their spears as he approached. Not for the Onion Knight, but for the King's Hand. Davos was the hand going in, at least. He wondered what he would be coming out. If I ever do. The steps seemed longer and steeper than before, or perhaps it was just that he was tired. The mother never made me for tasks like this. He had risen too high and too fast, and up here on the mountain the air was too thin for him to breathe. As a boy he had dreamed of riches, but that was long ago. Later, grown, all he had wanted was a few acres of good land, a hall to grow old in, a better life for his sons. The blind bastard used to tell him that a clever smuggler did not overreach, nor draw too much attention to himself. A few acres, a timbered roof, a sir before my name. I should have been content. If he survived this night, he would take Devon and sail home to Cape Roth and his gentle Maria. We will grieve together for our dead sons, raise the living ones to be good men, and speak no more of kings. The chamber of the painted table was dark and empty when Davis entered. The king would still be at the night fire with Melisande and the queen's men. He knelt and made a fire in the hearth to drive the chill from the round chamber and chase the shadows back into their corners. Then he went around the room to each window in turn, opening the heavy velvet curtains and unlatching the wooden shutters. The wind came in, strung with the smell of salt and sea, and pulled at his plain brown cloak. At the north window he leaned against the sill for a breath of the cold night air, hoping to catch a glimpse of Mad Prendice raising sail, but the sea seemed black and empty as far as the eye could see. She gone already? He could only pray that she was, and the boy with her. A half-moon was sliding in and out amongst high, thin clouds, and Davis could see familiar stars. There was the galley, sailing west. There the crone's lantern, four bright stars that enclosed a golden haze. The clouds hid most of the ice dragon, all but the bright blue eye that marked due north. The sky is full of smugglers' stars. They were old friends, those stars. Davis hoped that meant good luck. But when he lowered his gaze from the sky to the castle ramparts, he was not so certain. The wings of the stone dragons cast great black shadows in the light from the night fire. He tried to tell himself that they were no more than carvings, cold and lifeless. This was their place once, a place of dragons and dragon lords, the seat of House Trigarian. The Trigarians 
with the blood of old Valeria. The wind sighed through the chamber, and in the hearth the flames gusted and swirled. He listened to the logs crackle and spit. When Davis left the window, his shadow went before him, tall and thin, and fell across the painted table like a sword. And there he stood for a long time, waiting. He heard their boots on the stone steps as they ascended. The king's voice went before him. It's not three, he was saying. Three is three, came Melisande's answer. I swear to you, Your Grace, I saw him die and heard his mother's wail. In the night fire, Stannis and Melisande came through the door together. The flames are full of tricks, what is, what will be, what may be. You cannot tell me for a certainty. Your Grace, Davos stepped forward. Lady Melisande saw it true. Your nephew, Joffrey, is dead. If the king was surprised to find him at the painted table, he gave no sign. Lord Davis, he said, he was not my nephew, though for years I believed he was. He choked on a morsel of food at his wedding feast, Davis said. It may be that he was poisoned. He is the third, said Melisande. I can count, woman. Stannis walked along the table, past Old Town and the Arbor, up toward the Shield Islands and the mouth of the Mander. Weddings have become more perilous than battles, it would seem. Who was the poisoner? Is it known? His uncle, it said, the imp. Stannis ground his teeth. A dangerous man. I learned that on the Blackwater. How'd you come by this report? The Lyseni still trade at King's Landing. Salador San has no reason to lie to me. I suppose not. The king ran his fingers across the table. Joffrey. <laughs> I remember once. <laughs> this kitchen cat. The cooks were wont to feed her scraps and fish heads. One told the boy that she had kittens in her belly, thinking he might want one. Joffrey opened up the poor thing with a dagger to see if it were true. When he found the kittens, he brought them to show to his father. Robert hit the boy so hard, I thought he'd killed him. The king took off his crown and placed it on the table. Dwarf or leech, this killer served the kingdom well. They must send for me now. They will not, said Melisande. Joffrey has a brother. Tommen, the king said the name grudgingly. They will crown Tommen and rule in his name. Stannis made a fist. Tommen is gentler than Joffrey, but born of the same incest. Another monster in the making, another leech upon the land. Westeros needs a man's hand, not a child's. Melisande moved closer. Save them, sire. Let me wake the stone dragons. Three is three. Give me the boy. Adric Storm, Davis said. Stannis rounded on him in cold fury. I know his name. Spare me your reproaches. I like this no more than you do, but my duty is to the realm. My duty. He turned back to Melisande. You swear there is no other way? 
"'Swear it on your life, for I promise you shall die by inches if you lie. "'You are he who must stand against the other, "'the one whose coming was prophesied five thousand years ago. "'The red comet was your herald. "'You are the prince that was promised, "'and if you fail, the world fails with you.' Melisande went to him, her red lips parted, her ruby throbbing. "'Give me this boy.' she whispered, and I will give you your kingdom. He can't, said Davis. Edric's storm is gone. Gone? Stannis turned. What do you mean, gone? He is aboard the Lysini galley, safely out to sea. Davis watched Melisande's pale, heart-shaped face. He saw the flicker of dismay there, the sudden uncertainty. She did not see it. The king's eyes were dark blue bruises in the hollows of his face. The bastard was taken from Dragonstone without my leave. A galley, you say? If that liar-seen pirate thinks to use the boy to squeeze gold from me. This is your hand's work, sire. Melisande gave Davis a knowing look. You will bring him back, my lord. You will. The boy is out of my reach, said Davis. And out of your reach as well, my lady. Her red eyes made him squirm. I should have left you to the dark, sir. Do you know what you have done? My duty. Some might call it treason. Stannis went to the window to stare out into the night. Is he looking for the ship? I raised you up from dirt, Davis. He sounded more tired than angry. Was loyalty too much to hope for? Four of my sons died for you on the Blackwater. I might have died myself. You have my loyalty, always. Deva Seaworth had thought long and hard about the words he said next. He knew his life depended on them. Your grace, you made me swear to give you honest counsel and swift obedience to defend your realm against your foes, to protect your people. Is not Edric Storm one of your people? One of those I swore to protect? I kept my oath. How could that be treason? Stannis ground his teeth again. I never ask for this crown. Gold is cold and heavy on the head, but so long as I am the king, I have a duty— if I must sacrifice one child to the flames to save a million from the dark, sacrifice is never easy, Davis. Or it is no true sacrifice. Tell him, my lady. Melisande said, Azor Ahai tempered Lightbringer with the heart's blood of his own beloved wife. If a man with a thousand cows gives one to God, that is nothing. But a man who offers the only cow he owns. She talks of cows, Davis told the king. I am speaking of a boy, your daughter's friend, your brother's son. A king's son, with the power of king's blood in his veins. Melisande's ruby glowed like a red star at her throat. Do you think you've saved this boy, Onion Knight? When the long night falls, Edric Storm shall die with the rest. Wherever he is hidden, 
your own sons as well. Darkness and cold will cover the earth. You meddle in matters you do not understand. There's much I don't understand, Davis admitted. I have never pretended elsewise. I know the seas and rivers, the shapes of the coasts, where the rocks and shoals lie. I know hidden coves where a boat can land unseen. And I know that a king protects his people, or he is no king at all. Stannis's face darkened. Do you mock me to my face? Must I learn a king's duty from an onion smuggler? Davis knelt. If I have offended, take my head. I'll die as I lived, your loyal man. But hear me first. Hear me for the sake of the onions I brought you and the fingers you took. Stannis slid Lightbringer from its scabbard. Its glow filled the chamber. Say what you will, but say it quickly. The muscles in the king's neck stood out like cords. Davis fumbled inside his cloak and drew out the crinkled sheet of parchment. It seemed a thin and flimsy thing, yet it was all the shield he had. A king's hand should be able to read and write. Maester Pylus has been teaching me. He smoothed the letter flat upon his knee and began to read by the light of the magic sword. John He dreamt he was back in Winterfell, limping past the stone kings on their thrones. Their grey granite eyes turned to follow him as he passed, and their grey granite fingers tightened on the hilts of the rusted swords upon their laps. You are no Stark, he could hear them mutter, in heavy granite voices. There is no place for you here. Go away. He walked deeper into the darkness. Father, he called. Bran, Rickon. No one answered. A chill wind was blowing on his neck. Uncle, he called. Uncle Benjamin. Father? Please, father, help me. Up above he heard drums. They are feasting in the great hall, but I am not welcome there. I am no Stark, and this is not my place. His crutch slipped, and he fell to his knees. The crypts were growing darker. A light has gone out somewhere. Egret, he whispered. Forgive me, please. But it was only a direwolf, grey and ghastly, spotted with blood, his golden eyes shining sadly through the dark. The cell was dark, the bed hard beneath him. His own bed, he remembered, his own bed in his steward cell beneath the old bear's chambers. By rights it should have brought him sweeter dreams. Even beneath the furs he was cold. Ghost had shared his cell before the ranging, warming it against the chill of night, and in the wild, Egret had slept beside him. Both gone now. He had burned Egret himself, as he knew she would have wanted. And Ghost? Where are you? Was he dead as well? Was that what his dream had meant? 
the bloody wolf in the crypts? But the wolf in the dream had been grey, not white, grey, like Bran's wolf. Had the Thens hunted him down and killed him after Queen's crown? If so, Bran was lost to him for good and all. John was trying to make sense of that when the horn blew. The horn of winter, he thought, still confused from sleep. But Mance never found Joriman's horn, so that couldn't be. A second blast followed, as long and deep as the first. John had to get up and go to the wall, he knew, but it was so hard. He shoved aside his furs and sat. The pain in his leg seemed duller, nothing he could not stand. He had slept in his breeches and tunic and small clothes for the added warmth, so he had only to pull on his boots and don leather and mail and cloak. The horn blew again, two long blasts, so he slung Longclaw over one shoulder, found his crutch, and hobbled down the stairs. It was the black of night outside, bitter cold and overcast. His brothers were spilling out of towers and keeps, buckling their sword belts and walking toward the wall. John looked for Pip and Gren, but could not find them. Perhaps one of them was the sentry blowing the horn. It is Mance, he thought. He has come at last. That was good. We will fight a battle, and then we'll rest. Alive or dead, we'll rest. Where the stair had been, only an immense tangle of charred wood and broken ice remained below the wall. The winch raised them up now, but the cage was only big enough for ten men at a time, and it was already on its way up by the time John arrived. He would need to wait for its return. Others waited with him. Satin, mully, spare boot, kegs, big blonde Harith with his buck teeth. Everyone called him Horse. He had been a stable hand in Molestown, one of the few moles who stayed at Castle Black. The rest had run back to their fields and hovels, or their beds in the underground brothel. Horse wanted to take the black, though, the great bucktooth fool. Zay remained as well, the whore who proved so handy with a crossbow, and Noy had kept three orphan boys whose father had died on the steps. They were young, nine and eight and five, but no one else seemed to want them. As they waited for the cage to come back, Clyders brought them cups of hot mulled wine, while three-finger hub passed out chunks of black bread. John took a heel from him and gnawed on it. Is it Mans Raider? Saturn asked anxiously. We can hope so. There were worse things than wildings in the dark. John remembered the words the wildling king had spoken on the fist of the first men as they stood amidst that pink snow. When the dead walk, walls and stakes and swords mean nothing. You cannot fight the dead, John Snow. No man knows that half so well as me. Just thinking of it made the wind seem a little colder. Finally the cage came clanking back down, swaying at the end of the long chain, and they crowded in silently and shut the door. Mully yanked the bell rope three times. A moment later they began to rise, by fits and starts at first, then more smoothly. No one spoke. 
At the top, the cage swung sideways, and they clambered out one by one. Hawes gave John a hand down onto the ice. The cold hit him in the teeth like a fist. A line of fires burned along the top of the wall, contained in iron baskets and poles taller than a man. The cold knife of the wind stirred and swirled the flames, so the lurid orange light was always shifting. Bundles of quarrels, arrows, spears, and scorpion bolts stood ready on every hand. Rocks were piled ten feet high. Big wooden barrels of pitch and lamp oil lined up beside them. Bowen Marsh had left Castle Black well supplied in everything save men. The wind was whipping at the black cloaks of the scarecrow sentinels who stood along the ramparts, spears in hand. I hope it wasn't one of them who blew the horn, John said to Donald Noy when he limped up beside him. Did you hear that? Noy asked. There was a wind and horses and something else. A mammoth, John said. That was a mammoth. The armorer's breath was frosting as it blew from his broad, flat nose. North of the wall was a sea of darkness that seemed to stretch forever. John could make out the faint red glimmer of distant fires moving through the wood. It was Mance, certain as sunrise. The others did not light torches. "'How do we fight them if we can't see them?' Horse asked. Donald Noy turned toward the two great trebuchets that Bowen Marsh had restored to working order. "'Give me light!' he roared. Barrels of pitch were loaded hastily into the slings and set afire with a torch. The wind fanned the flames to a brisk red fury. "'Now!' Noy bellowed. The counterweights plunged downward, the throwing arms rose to thud against the padded crossbars. The burning pitch went tumbling through the darkness, casting an eerie flickering light upon the ground below. John caught a glimpse of mammoths moving ponderously through the half-light, and just as quickly lost them again. A dozen, maybe more. The barrel struck the earth and burst. They heard a deep bass trumpeting, and a giant roared something in the old tongue, his voice an ancient thunder that sent shivers up John's spine. "'Again!' Noy shouted, and the trebuchets were loaded once more. Two more barrels of burning pitch went crackling through the gloom to come crashing down amongst the foe. This time one of them struck a dead tree, enveloping it in flame. Not a dozen mammoths, John saw. A hundred. He stepped to the edge of the precipice. Careful, he reminded himself. It's a long way down. Red Allen sounded his sentry horn once more. Ahoo! And now the wildlings answered, not with one horn, but with a dozen, and with drums and pipes as well. We are come, they seemed to say. We are come to break your war, to take your lands and steal your daughters. The wind howled, the trebuchets creaked and thumped, the barrels flew. Behind the giants and the mammoths, John saw men advancing on the wall with bows and axes. Were there twenty or twenty thousand? In the dark, there was no way to tell. This is a battle of blind men, but Mance has a few thousand more of them than we do. The gate! 
Pip cried out, They're at the gate! The wall was too big to be stormed by any conventional means, too high for ladders or siege towers, too thick for battering rams. No catapult could throw a stone large enough to breach it. And if you tried to set it on fire, the ice melt would quench the flames. You could climb over, as the raiders did near Greyguard, but only if you were strong and fit and sure-handed, and even then you might end up like Jarl, impaled on a tree. They must take the gate, or they cannot pass. But the gate was a crooked tunnel through the ice, smaller than any castle gate in the Seven Kingdoms, so narrow that rangers must lead their garrons through single file. Three iron gates closed the inner passage, each locked and chained and protected by a murder hole. The outer door was old oak, nine inches thick and studded with iron, not easy to break through. But manse has mammoths, he reminded himself, and giants as well. Must be cold down there, said Noy. What say we warm them up, lads? A dozen jars of lamp oil had been lined up on the precipice. Pip ran down the line with a torch, setting them alight. Owen the oaf followed, shoving them over the edge one by one. Tongues of pale yellow fire swirled around the jars as they plunged downward. When the last was gone, Gren kicked loose the chucks on a barrel of pitch and sent it rumbling and rolling over the edge as well. The sounds below changed to shouts and screams, sweet music to their ears. Yet still the drums beat on. The trebuchets shuddered and thumped, and the sound of skin pipes came wafting through the night like the songs of strange, fierce birds. Septon Celador began to sing as well, his voice tremulous and thick with wine. Gentle mother, fond of mercy, save our sons from war, we pray. Save the swords and stay the arrows, let them know. Donalnoy rounded on him. Any man who stays his sword, I'll chuck his pocket ass right off this wall. Starting with you, Septon. Arches? Do we have any bloody arches? Here, said Satin. And here, said Molly. But how can I find a target as black as the inside of a pig's belly? Where are they? Noy pointed north. Loose enough arrows. Might be you'll find a few. At least you'll make them fretful. He looked around the ring of firelit faces. I need two bows and two spears to help me hold the tunnel if they break the gate. More than ten stepped forward, and the smith picked his four. John, you have the wall till I return. For a moment, John thought he'd misheard. It had sounded as if Noy were leaving him in command. My lord? Lord, I'm a blacksmith. I said the wall is yours. There are older men, John wanted to say, better men. I'm still as green as summer grass. I'm wounded, and I stand accused of desertion. His mouth had gone bone dry. I, he managed. Afterward, it would seem to John Snow as if he'd dreamt that night. Side by side with straw soldiers, with longbows or crossbows 
clutched in half-frozen hands, his archers launched a hundred flights of arrows against men they never saw. From time to time a wilding arrow came flying back in answer. He sent men to the smaller catapults, and filled the air with jagged rocks the size of a giant's fist, but the darkness swallowed them as a man might swallow a handful of nuts. Mammoths trumpeted in the gloom. Strange voices called out in stranger tongues, and Septon Celador prayed so loudly and drunkenly for the dawn to come that John was tempted to chuck him over the edge himself. They heard a mammoth dying at their feet and saw another lurch burning through the woods, trampling down men and trees alike. The wind blew cold and colder. Hub rode up the chain with cups of onion broth, and Owen and Clytus served them to the archers where they stood, so they could gulp them down between arrows. Zay took a place among them with her crossbow. Hours of repeated jars and shocks knocked something loose on the right-hand trebuchet, and its counterweight came crashing free, suddenly and catastrophically wrenching the throwing arm sideways with a splintering crash. The left-hand trebuchet kept throwing, but the wildlings had quickly learned to shun the place where its loads were landing. We should have twenty trebuchets, not two, and they should be mounted on sledges and turntables so we could move them. It was a futile thought. He might as well wish for another thousand men, and maybe a dragon or three. Donald Noy did not return, nor any of them who'd gone down with him to hold that black coal tunnel. The wall is mine, John reminded himself whenever he felt his strength flagging. He'd taken up a longbow himself, and his fingers felt crabbed and stiff, half-frozen. His fever was back as well and his leg would tremble uncontrollably, sending a white-hot knife of pain right through him. One more arrow, and I'll rest, he told himself, half a hundred times. Just one more. Whenever his quiver was empty, one of the orphaned moles would bring him another. One more quiver, and I'm done. It couldn't be long until the dawn. When morning came, none of them quite realized it at first. The world was still dark, but the black had turned to grey, and shapes were beginning to emerge, half seen from the gloom. John lowered his bow to stare at the mass of heavy clouds that covered the eastern sky. He could see a glow behind them, but perhaps he was only dreaming. He notched another arrow. Then the rising sun broke through to send pale lances of light across the battleground. John found himself holding his breath as he looked out over the half-mile swathe of cleared land that lay between the wall and the edge of the forest. In half a night they had turned it into a wasteland of blackened grass, bubbling pitch, shattered stone, and corpses. The carcass of the burned mammoth was already drawing crows. There were giants dead on the ground as well but behind them. Someone moaned to his left, and he heard Septon Celador say, Mother, have mercy, oh, 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 mother, have mercy. Beneath the trees were all the wildings in the world, raiders and giants, wags and skin changers, mountain men, salt sea sailors, ice river cannibals, 
cave dwellers with dyed faces, dog chariots from the frozen shore, hornfoot men with their soles like boiled leather, all the queer wild folk Mance had gathered to break the wall. This is not your land, John wanted to shout at them. There is no place for you here. Go away. He could hear Tormund Giant's Bane laughing at that. You know nothing, Jon Snow, Egret would have said. He flexed his sword hand, opening and closing the fingers, though he knew full well that swords would not come into it up here. He was chilled and feverish, and suddenly the weight of the longbow was too much. The battle with the Magnar had been nothing, he realized, and the night fires less than nothing, only a probe, a dagger in the dark to try and catch them unprepared. The real battle was only now beginning. I never knew there'd be so many, Satin said. John had. He'd seen them before, but not like this, not drawn up in battle array. On the march, the wilding column had sprawled over long leagues like some enormous worm, but you never saw all of it at once. But now... Here they come, said someone in a hoarse voice. Mammoth centred the wildling line, he saw, a hundred or more, with giants on their backs, clutching mauls and huge stone axes. More giants loped beside them, pushing along a tree trunk on great wooden wheels, its end sharpened to a point. A ram, he thought bleakly. If the gate still stood below, a few kisses from that thing would soon turn it into splinters. On either side of the giants came a wave of horsemen in boiled leather harness with fire-hardened lances, a mass of running archers, hundreds of foot, with spears, slings, clubs, and leathern shields. The bone chariots from the frozen shore clattered forward on the flanks, bouncing over rocks and roots behind teams of huge white dogs. The fury of the wild, John thought, as he listened to the skirl of skins, to the dogs barking and baying, the mammoths trumpeting, the free folk whistling and screaming, the giants roaring in the old tongue. Their drums echoed off the ice like rolling thunder. He could feel the despair all around him. There must be a hundred thousand, Satin wailed. How can we stop so many? The wall will stop them, John heard himself say. He turned and said it again louder. The wall will stop them. The wall defends itself. Hollow words, but he needed to say them, almost as much as his brothers needed to hear them. Mans wants to unman us with his numbers. Does he think we're stupid? He was shouting now, his leg forgotten, and every man was listening. The chariots, the horsemen, all those fools on foot. What are they going to do to us up here? Any of you ever seen a mammoth climb a wall? He laughed, and Pippin Owen and half a dozen more laughed with him. They're nothing. They're less use than our straw brothers here. They can't reach us, they can't hurt us, and they don't frighten us, do they? No! Gren shouted. They're down there, and we're up here. John said, and so long as we hold the gate, they cannot pass. They cannot pass. They were all shouting then, roaring his own words back at him, waving swords and longbows in the air as their cheeks flushed red.
John saw Keggs standing there with a war horn slung beneath his arm. Brother, he told him, sound for battle. Grinning, Keggs lifted the horn to his lips and blew the two long blasts that meant wildings. Other horns took up the call until the wall itself seemed to shudder, and the echo of those great, deep-throated moans drowned all other sound. Archers, John said, when the horns had died away, you aim for the giants with that ram, every bloody one of you, loose at my command, not before. The giants and the ram. I want arrows raining on them with every step, but we'll wait till they're in range. Any man who wastes an arrow will need to climb down and fetch it back, do you hear me? I do, shouted Owen the Oaf. I hear you, Lord Snow. John laughed, laughed like a drunk or a madman, and his men laughed with him. The chariots and the racing horsemen on the flanks were well ahead of the centre now, he saw. The wildlings had not crossed a third of the half-mile, yet their battle-line was dissolving. "'Load the trebuchet with caltrops,' John said. "'Owen, kegs, angle the catapult toward the centre. Scorpions, load with fire-spears and loose at my command.' He pointed at the Molestown boys. "'You, you and you, stand by with torches.' The wilding archers shut as they advanced. They would dash forward, stop loose, then run another ten yards. There were so many that the air was constantly full of arrows, all falling woefully short. A waste, John thought. Their want of discipline is showing. The smaller horn and wood bows of the free folk were outranged by the great yew longbows of the Night's Watch, and the wildlings were trying to shoot at men seven hundred feet above them. Let them shoot, John said. Wait, hold. Their cloaks were flapping behind them. The wind is in our faces. It will cost us range. Wait. Closer, closer. The skins wailed, the drums thundered, the wilding arrows fluttered and fell. Draw. John lifted his own bow and pulled the arrow to his ear. Satin did the same. And Gren, Owen the Oaf, Spareboot, Blackjack Bulwer, Aaron, and Emmerich. Zay hoisted her crossbow to her shoulder. John was watching the ram come on and on, the mammoths and giants lumbering forward on either side. They were so small he could have crushed them all in one hand, it seemed. If only my hand was big enough. Through the killing ground they came, a hundred crows rose from the carcass of the dead mammoth as the wildlings thundered past to either side of them. Closer and closer, until, loose! The black arrows hissed downward like snakes on feathered wings. John did not wait to see where they struck. He reached for a second arrow as soon as the first left his bow. Notch! Draw! Loose! As soon as the arrow flew, he found another. Notch! Draw! Loose! Again and then again. John shouted for the trebuchet and heard the creak and heavy thud as a hundred spike steel caltrops went spinning through the air. Catapults, he called. Scorpions! Bowmen, loose at will! 
Wilding arrows were striking the wall now, a hundred feet below them. A second giant spun and staggered. Nutch, draw, loose. A mammoth veered into another beside it, spilling giants on the ground. Nutch, draw, loose. The ram was down and done, he saw. The giants who'd pushed it, dead or dying. Fire arrows! he shouted. I want that ram burning! The screams of wounded mammoths and the booming cries of giants mingled with the drums and pipes to make an awful music, yet still his archers drew and loosed, as if they'd all gone as deaf as dead Dick followed. They might be the dregs of the order, but they were men of the night's watch, or near enough as made no matter. That's why they shall not pass. One of the mammoths was running berserk, smashing wildlings with his trunk and crushing archers underfoot. John pulled back his bow once more and launched another arrow at the beast's shaggy back to urge him on. To east and west the flanks of the wilding host had reached the wall unopposed. Their chariots drew in or turned while the horsemen milled aimlessly beneath the looming cliff of ice. At the gate! a shout came. Spare boot, maybe. Mammoth at the gate! Fire! John barked. Gren! Pip! Gren thrust his bow aside, wrestled a barrel of oil onto its side, and rolled it to the edge of the wall, where Pip hammered out the plug that sealed it, stuffed in a twist of cloth, set it alight with a torch. They shoved it over together. A hundred feet below it struck the wall and burst, filling the air with shattered staves and burning oil. Gren was rolling a second barrel to the precipice by then, and Keggs had one as well. Pip lit them both. Got him! Satin shouted, his head sticking out so far that John was certain he was about to fall. Got him! Got him! Got him! He could hear the roar of fire. A flaming giant lurched into view, stumbling and rolling on the ground. Then suddenly the mammoths were fleeing, running from the smoke and flames, and smashing into those behind them in their terror. Those went backward too, the giants and wildlings behind them scrambling to get out of their way. In half a heartbeat the whole centre was collapsing. The horsemen on the flanks saw themselves being abandoned, and decided to fall back as well, not one so much as blooded. Even the chariots rumbled off, having done nothing but look fearsome and make a lot of noise. When they break, they break hard, Jon Snow thought, as he watched them reel away. The drums had all gone silent. How'd you like that music, Mance? How'd you like the taste of the Dornishman's wife? Do we have anyone hurt? he asked. The bloody bogger's got my leg. Spareboot plucked the arrow out and waved it above his head. The wooden one! A ragged cheer went up. Zay grabbed Owen by the hands, spun him around in a circle, and gave him a long, wet kiss right there for all to see. She tried to kiss John, too, but he held her by the shoulder and pushed her gently but firmly away. No, he said, I am done with kissing. Suddenly he was too weary to stand, and his leg was agony from knee to groin. He fumbled for his crutch. Pip, help me to the cage, Gren. You have the wall. Me, said Gren. Him, said Pip, 
it was hard to tell which of them was more horrified. But, Gren stammered, but, but, but what do I uh, do, do if the wildlings attack again? Stop them, John told him. As they rode down in the cage, Pip took off his helm and wiped his brow. Frozen sweat. Is there anything as disgusting as frozen sweat? He laughed. God, I don't think I've ever been so hungry. I could eat an oryx whole, I swear it. Do you think Hob will cook up Gren for us? When he saw John's face, his smile died. What's wrong? Is it your leg? My leg, John agreed. Even the words were an effort. Not the battle, though. We won the battle. Ask me when I've seen the gate, John said grimly. I want a fire, a hot meal, a warm bed, and something to make my leg stop hurting, he told himself. But first he had to check the tunnel and find what had become of Donald Noy. After the battle with the Thens, it had taken them almost a day to clear the ice and broken beams away from the inner gate. Spotted pate and kegs and some of the other builders had argued heatedly that they ought just to leave the debris there, another obstacle for Mance. That would have meant abandoning the defence of the tunnel, though, and Noy was having none of it. With men in the murder holes and archers and spears behind each inner grate, a few determined brothers could hold off a hundred times as many wildlings and clug the way with corpses. He did not mean to give Mansraider free passage through the ice. So with pick and spade and ropes, they had moved the broken steps aside and dug back down to the gate. John waited by the cold iron bars, while Pip went to Maester Amon for the spare key. Surprisingly, the Maester himself returned with him, and Clydus with a lantern. "'Come see me when we are done,' the old man told John, while Pip was fumbling with the chains. "'I need to change your dressing, and apply a fresh poultice, and you will want some more dream wine for the pain.' John nodded weakly. The door swung open, Pip led them in, followed by Clydus and the lantern. It was all John could do to keep up with Maester Eamon. The ice pressed close around them, and he could feel the cold seeping into his bones, the weight of the wall above his head. It felt like walking down the gullet of an ice dragon. The tunnel took a twist, and then another. Pip unlocked a second iron gate. They walked farther, turned again, and saw a light ahead, faint and pale through the ice. That's bad, John knew at once. That's very bad. Then Pip said, There's blood on the floor. The last twenty feet of the tunnel was where they'd fought and died. The outer door of studded oak had been hacked and broken and finally torn off its hinges, and one of the giants had crawled in through the splinters. The lantern bathed the grisly scene in a sullen reddish light. Pip turned aside to wretch, and John found himself envying Maester Eamon his blindness. Noy and his men had been waiting within, behind a gate of heavy iron bars like the two Pip had just unlocked. The two crossbows had gotten off a dozen quarrels as the giant struggled toward them. 
Then the spearman must have come to the fore, stabbing through the bars. Still, the giant found the strength to reach through, twist the head off spotted pate, seize the iron gate, and wrench the bars apart. Links of broken chain lay strewn across the floor. One giant. All this was the work of one giant. Are they all dead? Maester Eamon asked softly. Yes. Donal was the last. Noy's sword was sunk deep into the giant's throat, halfway to the hilt. The armourer had always seemed such a big man to John, but locked in the giant's massive arms, he looked almost like a child. The giant crushed his spine. I don't know who died first. He took the lantern and moved forward for a better look. Mag! I am the last of the giants. He could feel the sadness there, but he had no time for sadness. It was Mag the Mighty, the king of the giants. He needed sun, then. It was too cold and dark inside the tunnel, and the stench of blood and death was suffocating. John gave the lantern back to Clytus, squeezed around the bodies, and threw the twisted bars, and walked toward the daylight to see what lay beyond the splintered door. The huge carcass of a dead mammoth partially blocked the way. One of the beast's tusks snagged his cloak and tore it as he edged past. Three more giants lay outside, half buried beneath stone and slush and hardened pitch. He could see where the fire had melted the wall, where great sheets of ice had come sloughing off in the heat to shatter on the blackened ground. He looked up at where they'd come from. When you stand here, it seems immense, as if it were about to crush you. John went back inside to where the others waited. We need to repair the outer gate as best we can, and then block up this section of the tunnel. Rubble, chunks of ice, anything. All the way to the second gate, if we can. Sir Winton will need to take command. He's the last knight left. But he needs to move now. The giants will be back before we know it. We have to tell him— Tell him what you will, said Maester Eamon gently. He will smile, nod, and forget. Thirty years ago, Sir Winton Stout came within a dozen votes of being Lord Commander. He would have made a fine one. Ten years ago, he would still have been capable. No longer. You know that, as well as Donald did, John. It was true. You give the order, then, John told the maester. You have been on the wall your whole life. The men will follow you. We have to close the gate. I am a maester, chained and sworn. My order serves, John. We give counsel not commands. Someone must. You. You must lead. No. Yes, John. It need not be for long. Only until such time as the garrison returns. Donald chose you and Corin Halfhand before him. Lord Commander Mormont made you his steward. You are a son of Winterfell a nephew of Benjamin Stark. It must be you 
or no one. The wall is yours, Jon Snow. Arya She could feel the hole inside her every morning when she woke. It wasn't hunger, though sometimes there was that too. It was a hollow place, an emptiness where her heart had been, where her brothers had lived, and her parents. Her head hurt, too. Not as bad as it had at first, but still pretty bad. Arya was used to that, though. And at least the lump was going down. But the hole inside her stayed the same. The hole will never feel any better, she told herself when she went to sleep. Some mornings Arya did not want to wake at all. She would huddle between her cloak with her eyes squeezed shut and try to will herself back to sleep. If the hound would only have left her alone, she would have slept all day and all night. And dreamed. That was the best part, the dreaming. She dreamed of wolves most every night, a great pack of wolves, with her at the head. She was bigger than any of them, stronger, swifter, faster. She could outrun horses and outfight lions. When she bared her teeth, even men would run from her. Her belly was never empty long, and her fur kept her warm even when the wind was blowing cold. And her brothers and sisters were with her, many and more of them, fierce and terrible, and hers. They would never leave her. But if her nights were full of wolves, her days belonged to the dog. Sandor Clegane made her get up every morning whether she wanted to or not. He would curse at her in that raspy voice, or yank her to her feet and shake her. Once he dumped a helm full of cold water all over her head. She bounced up sputtering and shivering and tried to kick him, but he only laughed. Dry off and feed the bloody horses, he told her, and she did. They had two now, stranger and a sorrel porphyry mare, Arya had named Craven, because Sandor said she'd likely run off from the twins the same as them. They'd found her wandering riderless through a field the morning after the slaughter. She was a good enough horse, but Arya could not love a coward. Stranger would have fought. Still, she tended the mare as best she knew. It was better than riding double with a hound. And Craven might have been a coward, but she was young and strong as well. Arya thought she might be able to outrun Stranger, if it came to it. The hound no longer watched her as closely as he had. Sometimes he did not seem to care whether she stayed or went, and he no longer bound her up in a cloak at night. One night I'll kill him in his sleep, she told herself, but she never did. One day I'll ride away on Craven, and he won't be able to catch me, she thought, but she never did that either. Where would she go? Winterfell was gone. Her grandfather's brother was at River Run, but he didn't know her, no more than she knew him. Maybe Lady Smallwood would take her in at Acorn Hall, and maybe she wouldn't. Besides, Arya wasn't even sure she could find Acorn Hall again. Sometimes she thought she might go back to Sharna's Inn, if the floods hadn't washed it away. She could stay with Hot Pie, or maybe Lord Berwick would find her there. Angai would teach her to use a bow, and she could ride with Gendry, and be an outlaw, like Wenda the White Fawn in the songs. But that was just stupid, like something Sansa might dream. 
hot-pine gendry, had left her just as soon as they could, and Lord Berwick and the outlaws only wanted to ransom her, just like the hound. None of them wanted her round. They were never my pack, not even hot-pie and gendry. I was stupid to think so. Just a stupid little girl, and no wolf at all. So she stayed with a hound. They rode every day, never sleeping twice in the same place, avoiding towns and villages and castles as best they could. Once she asked Sandor Clegane where they were going. Away, he said. That's all you need to know. You're not worth spit to me now, and I don't want to hear your whining. I should have let you run into that bloody castle. You should have, she agreed, thinking of her mother. You'd be dead if I had. You ought to thank me. You ought to sing me a pretty little song, the way your sister did. Did you hit her with an axe, too? I hit you with the flat of the axe, you stupid little bitch. If I'd hit you with a blade, there'd still be chunks of your head floating down the green fork. Now shut your bloody mouth. If I had any sense, I'd give you to the silent sisters. They cut the tongues out of girls who talk too much. That wasn't fair of him to say. Aside from that one time, Arya hardly talked at all. Whole days passed when neither of them said anything. She was too empty to talk, and the hound was too angry. She could feel the fury in him. She could see it on his face, the way his mouth would tighten and twist, the looks he gave her. Whenever he took his axe to chop some wood for a fire, he would slide into a cold rage, hacking savagely at the tree or the deadfall or the broken limb until they had twenty times as much kindling and firewood as they needed. Sometimes he would be so sore and tired afterward that he would lie down and go right to sleep without even lighting a fire. Arya hated it when that happened, and hated him too. Those were the nights when she stared the longest at the axe. It looks awfully heavy, but I bet I could swing it. She wouldn't hit him with a flat, either. Sometimes in their wanderings they glimpsed other people, farmers in their fields, swineherds with their pigs, a milkmaid leading a cow, a squire carrying a message down a rutted road. She never wanted to speak to them, either. It was as if they lived in some distant land and spoke a queer, alien tongue. They had nothing to do with her, or her with them. Besides, it wasn't safe to be seen. From time to time, columns of horsemen passed on the winding farm roads, the twin towers of Frey flying before them. "'Hunting for stray Northmen,' the hound said when they had passed. Any time you hear hooves, get your head down fast. It's not like to be a friend. One day, in an earthen hollow made by the roots of a fallen oak, they came face to face with another survivor of the twins. The badge on his breast showed a pink maiden dancing in a swirl of silk, and he told them he was Sir Mark Piper's man, a bowman, though he'd lost his bow. His left shoulder was all twisted and swollen, where it met his arm. A blow from a mace, he said. It had broken his shoulder and smashed his chainmail deep into his flesh. A Northman it was, he wept. His badge was a bloody man. 
and he saw mine and made a jeep. Red man and pink maiden. Maybe they should get together. I drank to his Lord Bolton. He drank to Sir Mark, and we drank together to Lord Edmure and Lady Rosalind and the King in the North. And then he killed me. His eyes were fever bright when he said that, and Arya could tell that it was true. His shoulder was swollen grotesquely, and pus and blood had stained his whole left side. There was a stink to him, too. He smells like a corpse. The man begged them for a drink of wine. If I had any wine, I'd have drunk it myself, the hound told him. I can give you water and the gift of mercy. The archer looked at him a long while before he said, You're Joffrey's dog. My own dog now. Do you want the water? I, the man swallowed, and the mercy, please. They had passed a small pond a short ways back. Sandor gave Arya his helm and told her to fill it, so she trudged back to the water's edge. Mud squished over the toe of her boots. She used the dog's head as a pail. Water ran through the eye holes, but the bottom of the helm still held a lot. When she came back, the archer turned his face up and she poured the water into his mouth. He gulped it down as fast as she could pour, and what he couldn't gulp ran down his cheeks into the brown blood that crusted his whiskers until pale pink tears dangled from his beard. When the water was gone, he clutched the helm and licked the steel. Good, he said. I wish it was wine, though. I wanted wine. Me too. The hound eased his dagger into the man's chest almost tenderly. The weight of his body driving the point through his surcoat ringmail and the quilting beneath. As he slid the blade back out and wiped it on the dead man, he looked at Arya. That's where the heart is, girl. That's how you kill a man. That's one way. Will we bury him? Why? Sandor said. He don't care, and we got no spade. Leave him for the wolves and wild dogs, your brothers and mine. He gave her a hard look. First, we rub him, though. There were two silver stags in the archer's purse, and almost thirty coppers. His dagger had a pretty pink stone in the hilt. The hound hefted the knife in his hand, then flipped it toward Arya. She caught it by the hilt, slid it through her belt, and felt a little better. It wasn't needle, but it was steel. The dead man had a quiver of arrows, too, but arrows weren't much good without a bow. His boots were too big for Arya and too small for the hound, so those they left. She took his kettle helm as well, even though it came down almost past her nose, so she had to tilt it back to see. He must have had a horse as well, or he wouldn't have gotten away, Clegane said, peering about. But it's bloody well gone, I'd say. No telling how long he's been here. By the time they found themselves in the foothills of the Mountains of the Moon, the rains had mostly stopped. Arya could see the sun and moon and stars, and it seemed to her that they were heading eastward. Where are we going? she asked him. This time the hound answered her. You have an aunt in the area. Might be 
she'll want to ransom your scrawny ass, though the gods know why. Once we find the high road, we can follow it all the way to the bloody gate. Aunt Lysa. The thought left Arya feeling empty. It was her mother she wanted, not her mother's sister. She didn't know her mother's sister any more than she knew her great-uncle, Blackfish. We should have gone into the castle. They didn't really know that her mother was dead, or Rob either. It wasn't like they'd seen them die or anything. Maybe Lord Frey had just taken them captive. Maybe they were chained up in his dungeon, or maybe the Freys were taking them to King's Landing, so Joffrey could chop their heads off. They didn't know. We should go back, she suddenly decided. We should go back to the twins and get my mother. She can't be dead. We have to help her. I thought your sister was the one with a head full of songs. The hound growled. Frey might have kept your mother alive to ransom, that's true, but there's no way in seven hells I'm going to pluck her out of his castle all by me bloody self. Not by yourself. I'd come too. He made a sound that was almost a laugh. Oh, that will scare the piss out of the old man. You're just afraid to die, she said scornfully. Now Clegane did laugh. Deaths don't scare me. <laughs> Only fire. Now be quiet, or I'll cut your tongue out myself and save the silent sisters the bother. It's the veil for us. Arya didn't think he'd really cut her tongue out. He was just saying that the way Pink Eye used to say he'd beat her bloody. All the same, she wasn't going to try him. Sandor Clegane was no Pink Eye. Pink Eye didn't cut people in half or hit them with axes. Not even with a flat of axes. That night she went to sleep thinking of her mother and wondering if she should kill the hound in his sleep and rescue Lady Catelyn herself. When she closed her eyes... She saw her mother's face against the back of her eyelids. She's so close, I could almost smell her. And then she could smell her. The scent was faint beneath the other smells, beneath moss and mud and water and the stench of rotting reeds and rotting men. She padded slowly through the soft ground to the river's edge, lapped up a drink, then lifted her head to sniff. The sky was grey and thick with cloud, the river green and full of floating things. Dead men clogged the shallows, some still moving as the water pushed them, others washed up on the banks. Her brothers and sisters swarmed around them, tearing at the rich, ripe flesh. The crows were there, too, screaming at the wolves and filling the air with feathers. Their blood was hotter, and one of her sisters had snapped at one as it took flight and caught it by the wing. It made her want a crow herself. She wanted to taste the blood, to hear the bones crunch between her teeth, to fill her belly with warm flesh instead of cold. She was hungry, and the meat was all around, but she knew she could not eat. The scent was stronger now. She pricked her ears up and listened to the grumbles of her peck the shriek of angry crows, the whir of wings and sound of running water. Somewhere far off she could hear horses and the calls of living men, but they were not what mattered. 
Only the scent mattered. She sniffed the air again. There it was. And now she saw it, too. Something pale and white, drifting down the river, turning where it brushed against the snag. The reeds bowed down before it. She splashed noisily through the shallows and threw herself into the deeper water, her legs churning. The current was strong, but she was stronger. She swam, following her nose. The river smells were rich and wet, but those were not the smells that pulled her. She paddled after the sharp red whisper of cold blood, the sweet, cloying stench of death. She chased them as she had often chased a red deer through the trees, and in the end she ran them down, her jaws closed around a pale white arm. She shook it to make it move, but there was only death and blood in her mouth. By now she was tiring, and it was all she could do to pull the body back to shore. As she dragged it up the muddy bank, one of her little brothers came prowling, his tongue lolling from his mouth. She had to snarl to drive him off, or else he would have fed. Only then did she stop to shake the water from her fur. The white thing lay face down in the mud, her dead flesh wrinkled and pale, cold blood trickling from her throat. Rise, she thought. Rise and eat and run with us. The sound of horses turned her head. Men! They were coming from downwind, so she had not smelled them, but now they were almost here. Men on horses, with flapping black and yellow and pink wings and long shiny claws in hand. Some of her younger brothers bared their teeth to defend the food they'd found, but she snapped at them until they scattered. That was the way of the wild. Deer and hares and crows fled before wolves, and wolves fled from men. She abandoned the cold white prize in the mud where she had dragged it and ran and felt no shame. When morning came, the hound did not need to shout at Arya or shake her awake. She had woken before him for a change and even watered the horses. They broke their fast in silence until Sandor said, This thing about your mother. It doesn't matter, Arya said in a dull voice. I know she's dead. I saw her in a dream. The hound looked at her a long time, then nodded. No more was said of it. They rode on toward the mountains. In the higher hills they came upon a tiny isolated village, surrounded by grey-green sentinels and tall blue soldier pines, and Clegane decided to risk going in. We need food, he said and a roof over our heads. They're not like to know what happened at the twins, and with any luck, they won't know me. The villagers were building a wooden palisade around their homes, and when they saw the breadth of the hound's shoulders, they offered them food and shelter, and even coin for work. If there's wine, as well, I'll do it, he growled at them. In the end, he settled for ale and drank himself to sleep each night. His dream of selling Arya to Lady Aaron died there in the hills, though. There's frost above us and snow in the hay passes, the village elder said. If you don't freeze or starve, the shadow cats will get you, or the keed bears. There's the clans as well. 
The burned men are fearless since Timot 1A came back from the war, and half a year ago Gunther, son of Gurn, led the stone crows down on a village not eight miles from here. They took every woman and every scrap of green and killed half the men. They have steel now, good swords and male hauberks, and they watch the high road, the stone crows, the milk snakes, the sons of the mist, all of them. Might be you'd take a few with you, but in the end they'd kill you and make off with your daughter. I am not his daughter. Arya might have shouted, if she hadn't felt so tired. She was no one's daughter now. She was no one. Not Arya, not Weasel, not Nan, nor Arry, nor Squab, not even Lumpyhead. She was only some girl who ran with a dog by day and dreamed of wolves by night. It was quiet in the village. They had beds stuffed with straw and not too many lice. The food was plain but filling, and the air smelled of pines. All the same, Arya soon decided that she hated it. The villagers were cowards. None of them would even look at the hound's face, at least not for long. Some of the women tried to put her in a dress and make her do needlework, but they weren't Lady Smallwood, and she was having none of it. And there was one girl who took to following her, the village elder's daughter. She was of an age with Arya, but just a child. She cried if she skinned a knee, and carried a stupid cloth doll with her everywhere she went. The doll was made up to look like a man-at-arms, sort of. So the girl called him Sir Soldier, and bragged how he kept her safe. "'Go away,' Arya told her half a hundred times. "'Just leave me be.' She wouldn't, though. So finally Arya took the doll away from her, ripped it open, and pulled the rag stuffing out of its belly with a finger. "'Now he really looks like a soldier,' she said, before she threw the doll in a brook. After that the girl stopped pestering her, and Arya spent her days grooming craven and stranger or walking in the woods. Sometimes she would find a stick and practice her needlework, but then she would remember what had happened at the twins and smash it against a tree until it broke. "'Might be we should stay here a while,' the hound told her after a fortnight. He was drunk on ale, but more brooding than sleepy. "'We'd never reach the area, and a phrase will still be hunting survivors in the Riverlands. Sounds like they need swords here, with these clansmen raiding. We can rest up, maybe find a way to get a letter to your aunt. Arya's face darkened when she heard that. She didn't want to stay, but there was nowhere to go either. The next morning, when the hound went off to chop down trees and haul logs, she crawled back into bed. But when the work was done, and the tall wooden palisade finished. The village elder made it plain that there was no place for them. "'Come winter, we will be hard-pressed to feed our own,' he explained. "'And you, a man like you, brings blood with him.' Sandor's mouth tightened. "'So, you know who I am?' "'Aye, we don't get travellers here, that's so. But we go to market and to fairs.' 
we know about King Joffrey's dog. When these stone crows come calling, you might be glad to have a dog. Might be, the man hesitated, then gathered up his courage. But they say you lost your belly for fighting at the Blackwater. They say... I know what they say. Sandor's voice sounded like two wood saws grinding together. Pay me, and we'll be gone. When they left, the hound had a pouch full of coppers, a skin of sour ale, and a new sword. It was a very old sword, if truth be told, though new to him. He swapped its owner the long axe he'd taken at the twins, the one he'd used to raise the lump on Arya's head. The ale was gone in less than a day, but Clegane sharpened the sword every night, cursing the man he'd swapped with for every nick and spot of rust. If he lost his belly for fighting, why does he care if his sword is sharp? It was not a question Arya dared ask him, but she thought on it a lot. Was that why he'd run from the twins and carried her off? Back in the Riverlands, they found that the rains had ebbed away and the flood waters had begun to recede. The hound turned south, back toward the trident. We'll make for River Run, he told Arya as they roasted a hare he'd killed. Maybe the blackfish wants to buy himself a she-wolf. He doesn't know me. He won't even know I'm really me. Arya was tired of making for River Run. She had been making for River Run for years, it seemed, without ever getting there. Every time she made for River Run, she ended up someplace worse. He won't give you any ransom. He'll probably just hang you. He's free to try. He turned the spit. He doesn't talk like he's lost his belly for fighting. I know where we could go, Arya said. She still had one brother left. John will want me, even if no one else does. He'll call me Little Sister and muss my hair. It was a long way, though, and she didn't think she could get there by herself. She hadn't even been able to reach River Run. We could go to the wall. Sandor's laugh was half a growl. The little wolf bitch wants to join the Night's Watch, does she? My brother's on the wall, she said stubbornly. His mouth gave a twitch. The wall's a thousand leagues from here. We need to fight through the bloody phrase just to reach the neck. There's lizard lions in those swamps that eat wolves every day for breakfast. And if we did reach the north with our skins intact, there's ironborn in half the castles and thousands of bloody buggering northmen as well. Are you scared of them? she asked. Have you lost your belly for fighting? For a moment she thought he was going to hit her. By then the hair was brown, though, skin crackling in grease, popping as it dripped down into the cook fire. Sandor took it off the stick, ripped it apart with his big hands, and tossed half of it into Arya's lap. There's nothing wrong with my belly, he said as he pulled off a leg. But I don't give a rat's ass for you or your brother. I have a brother, too. Tyrion Tyrion, Sir Kevin Lannister said wearily, if you are indeed innocent of Joffrey's death, 
You should have no difficulty proving it a trial. Tyrion turned from the window. Who is to judge me? Justice belongs to the throne. The king is dead, but your father remains hand. Since it is his own son who stands accused, and his grandson who was the victim, his arse-lord Tyrell, and Prince Oberon to sit in judgment with him. Tyrion was scarcely reassured. Mace Tyrell had been Joffrey's good father, however briefly, and the Red Viper was, well, a snake. Will I be allowed to demand trial by battle? I would not advise that. Why not? It had saved him in the Vale. Why not here? Answer me, uncle. Will I be allowed a trial by battle, and a champion to prove my innocence? Certainly, if that is your wish. However, you had best know that your sister means to name Sir Gregor Clegane as her champion, in the event of such a trial. The bitch checks my moves before I make them. A pity she didn't choose a kettle black. Bronn would make short work of any of the three brothers, but the mountain that rides was a kettle of a different colour. I shall need to sleep on this. I need to speak with Bronn, and soon. He didn't want to think about what this was like to cost him. Bronn had a lofty notion of what his skin was worth. Does Cersei have witnesses against me? More every day. Then I must have witnesses of my own. Tell me who you would have, and Sir Adam will send the watch to bring them to trial. I would sooner find them myself. You stand accused of regicide and kinslaying. Do you truly imagine that you will be allowed to come and go as you please? Sir Kevin waved at the table. You have quill, ink, and parchment. Write the names of such witnesses as you require, and I shall do all in my power to produce them. You have my word as a Lannister. But you shall not leave this tower except to go to trial. Tyrion would not demean himself by begging. Will you permit my squire to come and go, the boy, Padrick Payne? Certainly, if that is your wish, I shall send him to you. Do so. Sooner would be better than later, and now would be better than sooner. He waddled to the writing table, but when he heard the door open, he turned back and said, Uncle? Sir Kevin paused. Yes? I did not do this. I wish I could believe that, Tyrion. When the door closed, Tyrion Lannister pulled himself up into the chair, sharpened a quill, and pulled a blank parchment. Who will speak for me? He dipped his quill in the inkpot. The sheet was still maiden when Podrick Payne appeared, some time later. My lord, the boy said. Tyrion put down the quill. Find Bronn and bring him at once. Tell him there's gold in it, more gold than he's ever dreamed of. And see that you don't return without him. Yes, my lord. I mean, no, I, I won't. Return, he went. He had not returned by sunset, nor by moonrise. Tyrion fell asleep in the window seat to wake stiff and sore at dawn. A serving man brought porridge and apples to break his fast with a horn of ale. He ate at the table the blank parchment before him. 
An hour later, the serving man returned for the bowl. Have you seen my squire? Tyrion asked him. The man shook his head. Sighing, he turned back to the table and dipped his quill again. Sansa, he wrote upon the parchment. He sat staring at the name, his teeth clenched so hard they hurt. Assuming Joffrey had not simply choked to death on a bit of food, which even Tyrion found hard to swallow, Sansa must have poisoned him. Joff practically put his cup down in her lap, and he'd given her ample reason. Any doubts Tyrion might have had vanished when his wife did. One flesh, one heart, one soul. His mouth twisted. She wasted no time proving how much those vows meant to her, did she? Well, what did you expect, dwarf? And yet, where would Sansa have gotten poison? He could not believe the girl had acted alone in this. Do I really want to find her? Would the judges believe that Tyrion's child bride had poisoned a king without her husband's knowledge? I wouldn't. Cersei would insist that they had done the deed together. Even so, he gave the parchment to his uncle the next day. Sir Kevin frowned at it. Lady Sansa is your only witness? I will think of others in time. Best think of them now. The judges mean to begin the trial three days hence. That's too soon. You have me shut up here, under guard. How am I to find witnesses to my innocence? Your sisters had no difficulty finding witnesses to your guilt. Sir Kevin rolled up the parchment. Sir Adam has men hunting for your wife. Varys has offered a hundred stags for word of her whereabouts, and a hundred dragons for the girl herself. If the girl can be found, she will be found, and I shall bring her to you. I see no harm in husband and wife sharing the same cell and giving comfort to one another. You are too kind. Have you seen my squire? I sent him to you yesterday. Did he not come? He came, Tyrion admitted, and then he went. I shall send him to you again. But it was the next morning before Podrick Payne returned. He stepped inside the room hesitantly, with fear written all over his face. Bronn came in behind him. The sellsword knight wore a jerkin studded with silver and a heavy riding cloak, with a pair of fine-tooled leather gloves thrust through his sword belt. One look at Bronn's face gave Tyrion a queasy feeling in the pit of his stomach. It took you long enough. The boy begged, or I wouldn't have come at all. I am expected at Castle Stokeworth for supper. Stokeworth, Tyrion hopped from the bed. And pray, what is there for you in Stokeworth? A bride. Bron smiled like a wolf contemplating a lost lamb. I'm to wed lollies the day after next. Lollies? Perfect, bloody perfect. Lady Tander's lackwit daughter gets a knightly husband and a father of sorts for the bastard in her belly, and Sir Bron of the Blackwater climbs another rung. It had Cersei's stinking fingers all over it. My bitch sister has sold you a lame horse. The girl's dim-witted. If I wanted wits, 
I'd marry you. Lully's is big with another man's child. And when she pops him out, I'll get her big with mine. She's not even heir to Stokeworth, Tyrion pointed out. She has an elder sister, Felissa, a married sister. Married ten years, and still barren, said Bronn. Her lord husband shuns her bed. It's said he prefers virgins. He could prefer goats, and it wouldn't matter. The lands will still pass to his wife when Lady Tander dies, unless Felissa should die before her mother. Tyrion wondered whether Cersei had any notion of the sort of serpent she'd given Lady Tender to suckle. And if she does, would she care? Why are you here, then? Bronn shrugged. You once told me that if anyone ever asked me to sell you out, you'd double the price. Yes. Is it two wives you want, or two castles? One of each would serve, but if you want me to kill Gregor Clegane for you, it'd best be a damn big castle. The Seven Kingdoms were full of high-born maidens, but even the oldest, poorest, and ugliest spinster in the realm would balk at wedding such low-born scum as Bronn. Unless she was soft of body and soft of head, with a fatherless child in her belly, from having been raped half a hundred times. Lady Tander had been so desperate to find a husband for Lollies that she had even pursued Tyrion for a time, and that had been before half of King's Landing enjoyed her. No doubt Cersei had sweetened the offer somehow, and Bronn was a knight now, which made him a suitable match for a younger daughter of a minor house. I find myself woefully short to both castles and high-born maidens at the moment, Tyrion admitted, but I can offer you gold and gratitude as before. I have gold. What can I buy with gratitude? Oh, you might be surprised. A Lannister pays his debts. Your sister's a Lannister, too. My lady wife is heir to Winterfell. Should I emerge from this with my head still on my shoulders, I may one day rule the North in her name. I could carve you out a big piece of it. If and when, and might be, said Bronn, and it's bloody cold up there. Lollies is soft, warm, and close. I could be poking her two nights hence. Not a prospect I would relish. Is that so? Bronn grinned. Admitted Imp, given a choice between fucking lollies and fighting the mountain, you'd have your breeches down and cock up before a man could blink. He knows me too bloody well. Tyrion tried a different tack. I'd heard that Sir Gregor was wounded on the Red Fork and again at Duskendale. The wounds are bound to slow him. Bronn looked annoyed. He was never fast. Only freakish big and freakish strong. I'll grant you he's quicker than you'd expect for a man that size. He has a monstrous long reach, and doesn't seem to feel blows the way a normal man would. Does he frighten you so much? asked Tyrion, hoping to provoke him. If he didn't frighten me, I'd be a bloody fool. Bronn gave a shrug. 
Might be I could take him, dance around him until he was so tired of hacking at me that he couldn't lift his sword. Get him off his feet somehow. When they're flat on their backs, it don't matter how tall they are. Even so, it's chancy. One misstep, and I'm dead. Why should I risk it? I like you well enough, ugly little horsen that you are. But if I fight your battle, I lose either way. Either the mountain spills my guts, or I kill him and lose Stokeworth. I sell my sword. I don't give it away. I'm not your bloody brother. No, said Tyrion sadly. You're not. He waved a hand. Be gone, then. Run to Stokeworth and Lady Lollies. May you find more joy in your marriage bed than I ever found in mine. Bronn hesitated at the door. What will you do, imp? Kill Gregor myself. Won't that make for a jolly song? I hope I hear them sing it. Bronn grinned one last time and walked out of the door, the castle, and his life. Pod shuffled his feet. I I'm sorry. Why? Is it your fault that Bronn's an insolent, black-hearted rogue? He's always been an insolent, black-hearted rogue. That's what I liked about him. Tyrion poured himself a cup of wine and took it to the window seat. Outside, the day was grey and rainy, but the prospect was still more cheerful than his. He could send Podrick Payne questing after Shagger, he supposed, but there were so many hiding places in the deep of the King's Wood that outlaws often evaded capture for decades. And Pod sometimes has difficulty finding the kitchens when I send him down for cheese. Timot, son of Timot, would likely be back in the Mountains of the Moon by now. And despite what he'd told Bronn, going up against Sir Gregor Clegane in his own person would be a bigger farce than Joffrey's jousting dwarfs. He did not intend to die with gales of laughter ringing in his ears. So much for trail by combat. Sir Kevin paid him another call later that day, and again the day after. Sansa had not been found, his uncle informed him politely, nor the fool Sodontus, who'd vanished the same night. Did Tyrion have any more witnesses he wished to summon? He did not. How do I bloody well prove I didn't poison the wine when a thousand people saw me fill Joff's cup? He did not sleep at all that night. Instead, he lay in the dark, staring up at the canopy and counting his ghosts. He saw Tysha smiling as she kissed him. Saw Sansa naked and shivering in fear. He saw Joffrey clawing his throat, the blood running down his neck, as his face turned black. He saw Cersei's eyes, Bronn's wolfish smile, Shay's wicked grin. Even thought of Shay could not arouse him. He fondled himself, thinking that perhaps if he woke his cock and satisfied it, he might rest more easily afterward. But it was no good. And then it was dawn, and time for his trial to begin. It was not Sir Kevin who came for him that morning, but Sir Adam Marbrand, with a dozen gold cloaks. 
Tyrion had broken his fast on boiled eggs, burned bacon, and fried bread, and dressed in his finest. Sir Adam, he said, I had thought my father might send the king's guard to escort me to trial. I am still a member of the royal family, am I not? You are, my lord, but I fear that most of the king's guard stand witness against you. Lord Tywin felt it would not be proper for them to serve as your guards. Gods forbid we do anything improper. Please lead on. He was to be tried in the throne room, where Joffrey had died. As Sir Adam marched him through the towering bronze doors and down the long carpet, he felt the eyes upon him. Hundreds had crowded in to see him judged. At least he hoped that was why they had come. For all I know, they're all witnesses against me. He spied Queen Marjorie up in the gallery, pale and beautiful in her mourning. Twice wed, and twice widowed, and only sixteen. Her mother stood tall to one side of her, her grandmother small on the other, with her ladies-in-waiting and her father's household knights packing the rest of the gallery. The dais stood beneath the empty iron throne, though all but one table had been removed. Behind it sat stout Lord Mace Tyrell, in a gold mantle over green, and slender Prince Oberyn Martell in flowing robes of striped orange, yellow, and scarlet. Lord Tywin Lannister sat between them. Perhaps there's hope for me yet? The Dornishman and the High Gardener despised each other. If I can find a way to use that. The High Septon began with a prayer, asking the Father above to guide them to justice. When he was done, the father below leaned forward to say, Tyrion, did you kill King Joffrey? He would not waste a heartbeat. No. Well, that's a relief, said Oberyn Martell dryly. Did uh, Sansa Stark do it then? Lord Tyrell demanded. I would have, if I'd been her. Yet wherever Sansa was, and whatever her part in this might have been, she remained his wife. He had wrapped the cloak of his protection about her shoulders, though he had to stand on a fool's back to do it. The guards killed Joffrey. He choked on his pigeon pie. Lord Tyrell reddened. You would blame the bakers? Them or the pigeons? Just leave me out of it. Tyrion heard nervous laughter, and he knew he'd made a mistake. Guard your tongue, you little fool, before it digs your grave. There are witnesses against you, Lord Tywin said. We shall hear them first. Then you may present your own witnesses. You are to speak only with our leave. There was naught that Tyrion could do but not. Sir Adam had told it true. The first man ushered in, was Sir Balon Swan of the King's Guard. Lord Hand, he began, after the High Septon had sworn him to speak only truth. I had the honour to fight beside your son on the bridge of ships. He is a brave man, for all his size, and I will not believe he did this thing. A murmur went through the hall, and Tyrion wondered what mad game Cersei was playing. Why offer a witness? 
that believes me innocent. He soon learned. Sir Balon spoke reluctantly of how he had pulled Tyrion away from Joffrey on the day of the riot. He did strike his grace, that's so. It was a fit of wrath, no more. A summer storm. The mob near killed us all. In the days of the Targaryens, a man who struck one of the blood royal would lose the hand he struck him with, observed the Red Viper of Dawn. Did the dwarf regrow his little hand, or did you white swords forget your duty? He was of the blood royal himself, Sir Balon answered, and the king's hand beside. No, Lord Tywin said, he was acting hand in my stead. Sir Meryn Trent was pleased to expand on Sir Balon's account when he took his place as witness. He knocked the king to the ground and began kicking him. He shouted that it was unjust that his grace had escaped unharmed from the mobs. Tyrion began to grasp his sister's plan. She began with a man known to be honest and milked him for all he would give. Every witness to follow will tell a worse tale until I seem as bad as Magor the Cruel and Ares the Mad together with a pinch of Aegon the Unworthy for spice. Sir Merrin went on to relate how Tyrion had stopped Joffrey's chastisement of Sansa Stark. The dwarf asked his grace if he knew what had happened to Ares Targaryen. When Sir Boris spoke up in defence of the king, the imp threatened to have him killed. Blunt himself came next to echo that sorry tale. Whatever mislike Sir Boris might harbour towards Cersei for dismissing him from the king's guard, he said the words she wanted all the same. Tyrion could no longer hold his tongue. Tell the judges what Joffrey was doing. Why don't you? The big jolly man glared at him. You told all savages to kill me if I open my mouth. That's what I'll tell them. Tyrion, Lord Tywin said, you are to speak only when we call upon you. Take this for a warning. Tyrion subsided, seething. The Kettleblacks came next, all three of them in turn. Osney and Osfred told the tale of his supper with Cersei before the Battle of the Blackwater and of the threats he'd made. He told her grace that he meant to do her harm, said Sir Osfred. To hurt her, his brother Osney elaborated. He said he would wait for a day when she was happy and make her joy turn to ashes in her mouth. Neither mention Alayaya. Sir Osmond Kettleback, a vision of chivalry, in immaculate scale armour and white wool cloak, swore that King Joffrey had long known that his uncle Tyrion meant to murder him. It was the day they gave me the white cloak, my lords, he told the judges. That brave boy said to me, Good Sir Osmond, guard me well, for my uncle loves me not. He means to be king in my place. That was more than Tyrion could stomach. Liar! He took two steps forward before the gold cloaks dragged him back. Lord Tywin frowned. Must we have you chained, hand and foot, like a common brigand? Tyrion gnashed his teeth. 
A second mistake. Fool, fool, fool of a dwarf. Keep your calm, or you're doomed. No, I beg your pardons, my lords. His lies angered me. His truths, you mean? said Cersei. Father, I beg you to put him in fetters for your own protection. You see how he is. I see he's a dwarf, said Prince Oberon. The day I fear a dwarf's wrath is the day I drown myself in a cask of red. We need no fetters, Lord Tywin glanced at the windows and rose. The hour grows late. We shall resume on the morrow. That night, alone in his tower cell, with a blank parchment and a cup of wine, Tyrion found himself thinking of his wife, not Sansa, his first wife, Tysha, the whore wife, not the wolf wife. Her love for him had been pretense, and yet he had believed and found joy in that belief. Give me sweet lies and keep your bitter truths. He drank his wine and thought of Shea. Later, when Sir Kevin paid his nightly visit, Tyrion asked for Varys. You believe the eunuch will speak in your defence? I won't know until I've talked with him. Send him here, uncle, if you would be so good. As you wish. Maesters Balibar and Franken opened the second day of trial. They had opened King Joffrey's noble corpse as well, they swore, and found no morsel of pigeon pie nor any other food lodged in the royal throat. It was poison that killed him, my lords, said Balabar, as Franken nodded gravely. Then they brought forth Grand Maester Pycelle, leaning heavily on a twisted cane and shaking as he walked, a few white hairs sprouting from his long chicken's neck. He had grown too frail to stand, so the judges permitted a chair to be brought in for him and a table as well. On the table were laid a number of small jars. Pycelle was pleased to put a name to each. Grey cap, he said in a quavery voice, from the toadstool, nightshade, sweet sleep, demon's dance. This is blind eye. Widow's blood, this one is called, for the colour, a cruel potion. It shuts down a man's bladder and bowels until he drowns in his own poisons. This wolfsbane, here basilisk venom, and this one the tears of life. Yes, I, I know them all. The imp Tyrion Lannister stole them, from my chambers, when he had me falsely imprisoned. Pycelle, Tyrion called out, risking his father's wrath. Could any of these poisons choke off a man's breath? No, for that you must turn to a rarer poison. When I was a boy at the Citadel, my teachers named it simply the Strangler. But this... Rare poison was not found, was it? No, my lord. Pycelle blinked at him. You used it all to kill the noblest child the gods ever put on this good earth. 
Tyrion's anger overwhelmed his sense. Joffrey was cruel and stupid, but I did not kill him. Have my head off if you like. I had no hand in my nephew's death. Silence, Lord Tywin said. I have told you thrice. The next time you shall be gagged and chained. After Pycelle came the procession. Endless and wearisome, lords and ladies and noble knights, high-born and humble alike. They had all been present at the wedding feast, had all seen Joffrey choke, his face turning as black as a Dornish plum. Lord Redwine, Lord Celtigar, and Sir Flemont Brax had heard Tyrion threaten the king. Two serving men, a juggler, Lord Giles, Sir Hubber Redwine, and Sir Philip Foote had observed him fill the wedding chalice. Lady Merriweather swore she had seen the dwarf drop something into the king's wine while Joff and Marjorie were cutting the pie. Old Estamont, young Peckledon, the singer Galian of Kai, and the squires Morris and Jothus Slint told how Tyrion had picked up the chalice as Joff was dying and poured out the last of the poison wine onto the floor. When did I make so many enemies? Lady Merriweather was all but a stranger. Tyrion wondered if she was blind or bought. At least Galen of Kai had not set his account to music, or else there might have been seventy-seven bloody verses to it. When his uncle called that night after supper, his manner was cold and distant. He thinks I did it too. Do you have any witnesses for us? Sir Kevin asked him. Not as such, no, unless you found my wife. His uncle shook his head. It would seem the trial is going very badly for you. Oh, do you think so? I hadn't noticed. Tyrion fingered his scar. Varys has not come. Nor will he. On the morrow he testifies against you. Lovely. I see. He shifted in his seat. I am curious. You were always a fair man, uncle. What convinced you? Why steal Pycelle's poisons, if not to use them? Sir Kevin said bluntly. And Lady Merriweather saw nothing. There was nothing to see. But how do I prove that? How do I prove anything penned up here? Perhaps the time has come for you to confess. Even through the thick stone walls of the Red Keep, Tyrion could hear the steady wash of rain. Say that again, uncle. I could swear you urged me to confess. If you were to admit your guilt before the throne and repent of your crime, your father would withhold the sword. You would be permitted to take the black. Tyrion laughed in his face. Ah, those were the same terms Cersei offered Eddard Stark. We all know how that ended. Your father had no part in that. That much was true, at least. Castle Black teems with murderers, thieves, and rapists, Tyrion said, but I don't recall meeting many regicides while I was there. You expect me to believe that if I admit to being a kinslayer and kingslayer, my father will simply nod, forgive me, and packed me off to the wall with some warm, woolen, small clothes? Tch! he hooted rudely. 
Naught was said of forgiveness, Sir Kevin said sternly. A confession would put this matter to rest. It is for that reason your father sends me with this offer. Thank him kindly for me, uncle, said Tyrion, but tell him that I am not presently in a confessing mood. Were I you, I change my mood. Your sister wants your head, and Lord Tyrell at least is inclined to give it to her. So one of my judges has already condemned me without hearing a word in my defence. It was no more than he expected. Will I still be allowed to speak and present witnesses? You have no witnesses, his uncle reminded him. Tyrion, if you are guilty of this enormity, the wall is a kinder fate than you deserve. And if you are blameless, there is fighting in the north, I know. But even so, it will be a safer place for you than King's Landing, whatever the outcome of this trial. The mob is convinced of your guilt. Were you so foolish as to venture out into the streets, they would tear you limb from limb. I can see how much that prospect upsets you. You are my brother's son. You might remind him of that. Do you think he would allow you to take the black if you were not his own blood? and Joanna's? Tywin seems a hard man to you, I know, but he is no harder than he's had to be. Our own father was gentle and amiable, but so weak his bannermen mocked him in their cups. Some saw fit to defy him openly. Other lords borrowed our gold and never troubled to repay it. At court they japed of toothless lions. Even his mistress stole from him a woman scarcely one step above a whore, and she helped herself to my mother's jewels. It fell to Tywin to restore House Lannister to its proper place, just as it fell to him to rule this realm when he was no more than twenty. He bore that heavy burden for twenty years, and all it earned him was a mad king's envy. Instead of the honour he deserved, he was made to suffer slights beyond count. Yet he gave the seven kingdoms peace, plenty, and justice. He is a just man. You would be wise to trust him. Tyrion blinked in astonishment. Sir Kevin had always been solid, stolid, pragmatic. He had never heard him speak with such fervor before. You love him? He is my brother. I... I will think on what you've said. Think carefully, then, and quickly. He thought of little else that night, but come morning was no closer to deciding if his father could be trusted. A servant brought him porridge and honey to break his fast, but all he could taste was bile at the thought of confession. They will call me Kinslayer, till the end of my days, for a thousand years or more, if I am remembered at all, it will be as the monstrous dwarf who poisoned his young nephew at his wedding feast. The thought made him so bloody angry that he flung the bowl and spoon across the room and left a smear of porridge on the wall. Sir Adam Marbrandt looked at it curiously when he came to escort Tyrion to trial but he had the good grace not to inquire. "'Lord Varys,' the herald said, 
master of whisperers. Powdered, primped, and smelling of rose water, the spider rubbed his hands one over the other all the time he spoke. Washing my life away, Tyrion thought, as he listened to the eunuch's mournful account of how the imp had schemed to part Joffrey from the hound's protection, and spoken with Bronn of the benefits of having Tommen as king. Half-truths are worth more than outright lies. And unlike the others, Vares had documents. Parchments painstakingly filled with notes, details, dates, whole conversations. So much material that its recitation took all day, and so much of it damning. Varys confirmed Tyrion's midnight visit to Grand Maester Pycelle's chambers and the theft of his poisons and potions, confirmed the threat he'd make to Cersei the night of their supper, confirmed every bloody thing but the poisoning itself. When Prince Oberon asked him how he could possibly know all this, not having been present at any of these events, the eunuch only giggled and said, My little birds told me, knowing is their purpose and mine. How do I question a little bird? thought Tyrion. I should have had the eunuch's head off my first day in King's Landing. Damn him, and damn me for whatever trust I put in him. Have we heard it all? Lord Tywin asked his daughter as Varys left the hall. Almost, said Cersei. I beg your leave to bring one final witness before you on the morrow. As you wish, Lord Tywin said. Oh, good, thought Tyrion savagely. After this farce of a trial, execution will almost come as a relief. That night, as he sat by his window drinking, he heard voices outside his door. Sir Kevin, come for my answer, he thought at once, but it was not his uncle who entered. Tyrion rose to give Prince Oberon a mocking bow. Are judges permitted to visit the accused? Princes are permitted to go where they will, or so I told your guards. The Red Viper took a seat. My father will be displeased with you. The happiness of Tywin Lannister has never been high on my list of concerns. Is it Dornish wine you're drinking? From the arbor. Oberon made a face. Red water. Did you poison him? No. Did you? The prince smiled. Do all dwarfs have tongues like yours? Someone is going to cut it off one of these days. You are not the first to tell me that. Perhaps I should cut it out myself. It seems to make no end of trouble. So I've seen. I think I may drink some of Lord Redwine's grape juice after all. As you like. Tyrion served him a cup. The man took a sip, slushed it about his mouth, and swallowed. It was serve for the moment. I will send you up some strong Dornish wine on the morrow. He took another sip. I have turned up that golden-haired whore I was hoping for. So you found Shatayas? At Shatayas, I bedded the black-skinned girl, Alayaya, I believe she's called. Exquisite, despite the stripes on her back. 
but the whore I referred to is your sister. Has she seduced you yet? Tyrion asked, unsurprised. Oberon laughed aloud. <laughs> no, but she will, if I meet her price. The Queen has even hinted at marriage. Her Grace needs another husband, and who better than a Prince of Dorne? Elaria believes I should accept. Just the thought of Cersei in our bed makes her wet, the randy wench. And we should not even need to pay the dwarf's penny. All your sister requires from me is one head, somewhat over-large, and missing a nose. And, said Tyrion, waiting. By way of answer, Prince Oberon swirled his wine and said, When the young dragon conquered Durn, so long ago, he left the Lord of Haygarden to rule us after the submission of Sunspear. This Tyrell moved with his tail from keep to keep, chasing rebels and making certain that our knees stayed bent. He would arrive in force, take a castle for his own, stay a moon's turn, and ride on to the next castle. It was his custom to turn the lords out of their own chambers and take their beds for himself. One night he found himself beneath a heavy velvet canopy. A sash hung down near the pillows. Should he wish to summon a wench? He had a taste for Dornish women, this Lord Tyrell, and who can blame him? So he pulled upon the sash, and when he did, the canopy above him split open, and a hundred red scorpions fell down upon his head. His death lit a fire that soon swept across dawn, undoing all the young dragon's victories in a fortnight. The kneeling men stood up, and we were free again. I know the tale, said Tyrion. What of it? Just this. If I should ever find a sash beside my own bed and pull on it, I would sooner have the scorpions fall upon me than the queen in all her naked beauty. Tyrion grinned. We have that much in common, then. To be sure, I have much to thank your sister for. If not for her accusation at the feast, it might well be you judging me instead of me judging you. The prince's eyes were dark with amusement. Who knows more of poison than the red viper of dawn, after all? Who has better reason to want to keep the Tyrells far from the crown? And with Joffrey in his grave, by Dornish law, the Iron Throne should pass next to his sister, Marcella, who, as it happens, is betrothed to mine own nephew, thanks to you. Dornish law does not apply. Tyrion had been so ensnared in his own troubles that he'd never stopped to consider the succession. My father will crown Tommen, count on that. He may indeed crown Tommen here in King's Landing, which is not to say that my brother may not crown Marcella down in Sunspear. Will your father make war on your niece on behalf of your nephew? Will your sister? He gave a shrug. Perhaps I should marry Queen Cersei after all, on the condition that she support her daughter over her son. 
Do you think she would? Never, Tyrion wanted to say, but the word caught in his throat. Cersei always resented being excluded from power on account of her sex. If Dornish law applied in the West, she would be heir to Castle Rock in her own right. She and Jamie were twins, but Cersei had come first into the world, and that was all it took. By championing Marcella's cause, she would be championing her own. I do not know how my sister would choose between Tommen and Marcella, he admitted. It makes no matter. My father will never give her that choice. Your father, said Prince Oberon, may not live forever. Something about the way he said it made the hairs on the back of Tyrion's neck bristle. Suddenly he was mindful of Elia again, and all that Oberon had said as they crossed the field of ashes. He wants the head that spoke the words, not just the hand that swung the sword. It is not wise to speak such treasons in the Red Keep, my prince. The little birds are listening. Let them. Is it treason to say a man is mortal? Velar Morgullus was how they said it in Valeria of old. All men must die. And the doom came and proved it true. The Dornish man went to the window to gaze out into the night. It is being said that ye have no witnesses for us. I was hoping that one look at this sweet face of mine would be enough to persuade you all of my innocence. You are mistaken, my lord. The fat flower of Highgarden is quite convinced of your guilt and determined to see you die. His precious Marjorie was drinking from that chalice too, as he has reminded us half a hundred times. And you? said Tyrion. Men are seldom as they appear. You look so very guilty that I am convinced of your innocence. Still, you will likely be condemned. Justice is in short supply this side of the mountains. There has been none for Elior, Aegon, or Rhaenys. Why should there be any for you? Perhaps Joffrey's real kinner was eaten by a bear. That seems to happen quite often in King's Landing. Oh, wait! The bear was at Harrenhal. Now I remember. Is that the game we are playing? Tyrion rubbed at his scarred nose. He had nothing to lose by telling Oberon the truth. There was a bear at Harrenhal, and it did kill Sir Amory Lorch. How sad for him, said the Red Viper. And for you. Do all noseless men lie so badly, I wonder? I am not lying. Sir Amory dragged Princess Rainey's out from under her father's bed and stabbed her to death. He had some men-at-arms with him, but I do not know their names. He leaned forward. It was Sir Gregor Clegane who smashed Prince Aegon's head against a wall and raped your sister Ilya with his blood and brains still on his hands. What is this now? Truth from a Lannister? Oberon smiled coldly. Your father gave the commands, yes? No! He spoke the lie without hesitation, and never stopped to ask himself why he should. The Dornishman raised one thin black eyebrow. 
such a dutiful son, and such a very feeble lay. It was Lord Taywin who presented my sister's children to King Robert, all wrapped up in crimson Lannister cloaks. Perhaps you ought to have this discussion with my father. He was there. I was at the rock, and still so young that I thought the thing between my legs was only good for pissing. Yes, but you are here now, and in some difficulty, I would say. Your innocence may be as plain as a scar on your face, but it will not save you. No more than your father will. The Dornish prince smiled. But I might. You? Tyrion studied him. You are one judge in three. How could you save me? Not as your judge. As your champion. Jamie. A white book sat on a white table in a white room. The room was round, its walls of whitewashed stone hung with white woolen tapestries. It formed the first floor of the White Sword Tower, a slender structure of four stories built into an angle of the castle wall overlooking the bay. The undercroft held arms and armor, the second and third floors, the small spare sleeping cells of the six brothers of the King's Guard. One of those cells had been his for eighteen years, but this morning he had moved his things to the topmost floor, which was given over entirely to the Lord Commander's apartments. Those rooms were spare as well, though spacious, and they were above the outer walls, which meant he would have a view of the sea. I will like that, he thought, the view and all the rest. As pale as the room, Jamie sat by the book in his King's Guard whites, waiting for his sworn brothers. A longsword hung from his hip, from the wrong hip. Before he had always worn his sword on the left, and drawn it across his body when he unsheathed. He had shifted it to his right hip this morning, so as to be able to draw it with his left hand in the same manner, but the weight of it felt strange there, and when he had tried to pull the blade from the scabbard, the whole motion seemed clumsy and unnatural. His clothing fit badly as well. He had donned the winter raiment of the king's guard, a tunic and breeches of bleached white wool, and a heavy white cloak, but it all seemed to hang loose on him. Jamie had spent his days at his brother's trial, standing well to the back of the hall. Either Tyrion never saw him there, or he did not know him, but that was no surprise. Half the court no longer seemed to know him. I am a stranger in my own house. His son was dead, his father had disowned him, and his sister— she had not allowed him to be alone with her once, after that first day in the royal sept where Joffrey lay amongst the candles. Even when they bore him across the city to his tomb in the great sept of Baelor, Circe kept a careful distance. He looked about the round room once more. White wool hangings covered the walls, and there was a white shield and two cross longswords mounted above the hearth. The chair behind the table was old black oak, with cushions of blanched cowhide, the leather worn thin, worn by the bony ass of Barristan the Bold, and Sir Gerald Hightower before him, by Prince Aemon the Dragon Knight, Sir Ryman Redwine, 
and the Demon of Darry, by Sir Duncan the Tall and the Pale Griffin Alan Cunnington. How could the Kingslayer belong in such exalted company? Yet here he was. The table itself was old weirwood, pale as bone, carved in the shape of a huge shield supported by three white stallions. By tradition, the Lord Commander sat at the top of the shield, and the brothers three to a side, on the rare occasions when all seven were assembled. The book that rested by his elbow was massive, two feet tall and a foot and a half wide, a thousand pages thick, fine white vellum bound between covers of bleached white leather with gold hinges and fastenings. The Book of the Brothers was its formal name, but more often it was simply called the White Book. Within the White Book was the history of the King's Guard. Every knight who had ever served had a page to record his name and deeds for all time. On the top left-hand corner of each page was drawn the shield the man had carried at the time he was chosen, inked in rich colours. Down in the bottom right corner was the shield of the King's Guard, snow-white, empty, pure. The upper shields were all different. The lower shields were all the same. In the space between were written the facts of each man's life and service. The heraldic drawings and illuminations were done by septums, sent from the great septum Baylor three times a year, but it was the duty of the Lord Commander to keep the entries up to date. My duty now, once he learned to write with his left hand, that is. The white book was well behind. The deaths of Sir Mandon Moore and Sir Preston Greenfield needed to be entered and the brief bloody Kingsguard service of Sandor Clegane as well. New pages must be started for Sir Balan Swan, Sir Osmond Kettleblack, and the Knight of Flowers. I will need to summon a septon to draw their shields. Sir Barristan Selmy had preceded Jamie as Lord Commander. The shield atop his page showed the arms of House Selmy, three stalks of wheat, yellow on a brown field. Jamie was amused, though unsurprised, to find that Sir Barristan had taken the time to record his own dismissal before leaving the castle. Sir Barristan of House Selmy, firstborn son of Sir Lionel Selmy of Harvest Hall, served as squire to Sir Manfred Swan, named the Bold in his tenth year when he donned borrowed armour to appear as a mystery knight in the tourney at Blackhaven, where he was defeated and unmasked by Duncan, Prince of Dragonflies, knighted in his sixteenth year by King Aegon V Targaryen, after performing great feats of prowess as a mystery knight in the winter tourney at King's Landing, defeating Prince Duncan the Small and Sir Duncan the Tall, Lord Commander of the King's Guard. Slew Melee is the monstrous, last of the Blackfire pretenders, in single combat during the War of the Ninepenny Kings. Defeated Lormel Longlance and Cedric Storm, the bastard of Brunsgate. Named to the King's Guard in his twenty-third year by Lord Commander Sir Gerald Hightower. Defended the passage against all challengers in the tourney of the Silver Bridge. Victor in the melee at Maidenpool. Brought King Ares II to safety during the defiance of Duskendale, despite an arrow wound in his chest. Avenged the murder of sworn brother Sir Gwain Gaunt. Rescued Lady Jane Swan and her scepter from the Kingswood Brotherhood, defeating Simon Toyne and the Smiling Knight 
and slaying the former. In the old town tourney, defeated and unmasked, the mystery knight Black Shield revealing him as the Bastard of Uplands, sole champion of Lord Stephen's tourney at Storm's End, whereat he unhorsed Lord Robert Baratheon, Prince Oberyn Martell, Lord Leighton Hightower, Lord John Connington, Lord Jason Malister, and Prince Rhaegar Targaryen. Wounded by arrow, spear, and sword at the Battle of the Trident, was fighting beside his sworn brothers and Rhaegar, Prince of Dragonstone, pardoned and named Lord Commander of the King's Guard by King Robert I Baratheon, served in the honour guard that brought Lady Cersei of House Lannister to King's Landing to wed King Robert, led the attack on Oldwick during Balon Greyjoy's rebellion, champion of the tourney at King's Landing in his fifty-seventh year, dismissed from service by King Joffrey I Baratheon in his sixty-first year for reasons of advanced age. The earlier part of Sir Barristan's storied career had been entered by Sir Gerald Hightower in a big forceful hand. Selmy's own smaller and more elegant writing took over with the account of his wounding on the trident. Jamie's own page was scant by comparison. Sir Jamie of House Lannister, first-born son of Lord Tywin and Lady Joanna of Castley Rock. Served against the Kingswood Brotherhood as squire to Lord Sumner Craighall, knighted in his fifteenth year by Sir Arthur Dane of the King's Guard for valour in the field, chosen for the King's Guard in his fifteenth year by King Ares II Targaryen. During the sack of King's Landing slew King Ares II at the foot of the Iron Throne, thereafter known as the Kingslayer. Pardoned for his crime by King Robert I Baratheon, served in the honour guard that brought his sister, the Lady Cersei Lannister, to King's Landing to wed King Robert, champion in the tourney held at King's Landing on the occasion of their wedding. Summed up like that, his life seemed a rather scant and mingy thing. Sir Barristan could have recorded a few of his other tourney victories, at least. And Sir Gerald might have written a few more words about the deeds he'd performed when Sir Arthur Dane broke the Kingswood Brotherhood. He had saved Lord Sumner's life, as Big Belly Ben was about to smash his head in, though the outlaw had escaped him. And he'd held his own against the smiling knight, though it was Sir Arthur who slew him. What a fight that was, and what a foe. The smiling knight was a madman. Cruelty and chivalry all jumbled up together, but he did not know the meaning of fear. And Dane, with dawn in hand— the outlaw's longsword had so many notches by the end that Sir Arthur had stopped to let him fetch a new one. "'It's that white sword of yours I want,' the robber knight told him as they resumed, though he was bleeding from a dozen wounds by then. "'Then you shall have it, sir,' the sword of the morning replied, and made an end of it. "'The world was simpler in those days,' Jamie thought, "'and men as well as swords were made of finer steel.' Or was it only that he had been fifteen? They were all in their graves now, the Sword of the Morning and the Smiling Knight, the White Bull and Prince Lewin. Sir Oswald went with his black humour, Ernest John Darry, Simon Toyne, and his Kingswood Brotherhood. Bluff old Sumner Craighall. And me, that boy I was. When did he die, I wonder? When I'd done the White Cloak? 
when he opened Aerie's throat. That boy had wanted to be Sir Arthur Dane, but someplace along the way he had become the Smiling Knight instead. When he heard the door open, he closed the white book and stood to receive his sworn brothers. Sir Osmond Kettleblack was the first to arrive. He gave Jamie a grin as if they were old brothers in arms. Sir Jamie, he said, had you looked like this t'other night, I'd have known you at once. Would you indeed? Jamie darted that. The servants had bathed him, shaved him, and washed and brushed his hair. When he looked in a glass, he no longer saw the man who had crossed the riverlands with Brian, but he did not see himself either. His face was thin and hollow, and he had lines under his eyes. I look like some old man. Stand by your seat, sir. Kettleblack complied. The other sworn brothers filed in one by one. Sirs, Jamie said in a formal tone, when all five had assembled, who guards the king? Uh, my brothers, Sir Osney and Sir Osfrid, Sir Osmond replied. And my brother, Sir Garland, said the Knight of Flowers. Will they keep him safe? They will, my lord. Be seated, then. The words were ritual. Before the seven could meet in session, the king's safety must be assured. Sir Boris and Sir Merrin sat to his right, leaving an empty chair between them for Sir Aerys Oakheart, off in dawn. Sir Osmond, Sir Balon, and Sir Loris took their seats to his left. The old and the new. Jamie wondered if that meant anything. There had been times during its history when the king's guard had been divided against itself, most notably and bitterly during the Dance of the Dragons. Was that something he needed to fear as well? It seemed queer to him to sit in the Lord Commander's seat, where Barristan the Bold had sat for so many years, and even queerer to sit here crippled. Nonetheless, it was his seat, and this was his king's guard now. Tommons Seven. Jamie had served with Merrin Trant and Boris Blunt for years, Adequate fighters, but Trant was sly and cruel, and Blunt a bag of growly air. Sir Balon Swan was better suited to his cloak, and of course the Knight of Flowers was supposedly all a knight should be. The fifth man was a stranger to him, this Osmond Kettleblack. He wondered what Sir Arthur Dane would have to say of this lot. How is it the King's guard has fallen so low, most like? It was my doing. I would have to answer. I opened the door and did nothing when the vermin began to crawl inside. The king is dead, Jamie began. My sister's son, a boy of thirteen, murdered at his own wedding feast in his own hall. All five of you were present. All five of you were protecting him. And yet he's dead. He waited to see what they would say to that, but none of them so much as cleared a throat. The Tyrell boy is angry, and Balon Swan's ashamed, he judged. From the other three, Jamie sensed only indifference. Did my brother do this thing? he asked them bluntly. Did Tyrion poison my nephew? Sir Balon shifted uncomfortably in his seat. Sir Boris made a fist. Sir Osmond gave a lazy shrug. It was Merrin Trent who finally answered. He filled Joffrey's cup with wine. That must have been when he slipped the poison in. You are certain 
"'It was the wine that was poisoned.' "'What else?' said Sir Boris Blot. "'The imp emptied the dregs on the floor. "'Why, but to spill the wine that might have proved him guilty.' "'He knew the wine was poisoned,' said Sir Merrin. "'Sir Balon Swan frowned. "'The imp was not alone on the dais, far from it. "'That late in the feast we had people standing and moving about changing places, "'slipping off to the privy. "'Servants were coming and going. "'The king and queen had just opened the wedding pie. "'Every eye was on them or those thrice-damned doves. "'No one was watching the wine cup.' "'Who else was on the dais?' asked Jamie. Sir Merrin answered. The king's family, the bride's family, Grand Maester Pycelle, with the High Septon. There's your poisoner, suggested Sir Oswald Kettleblack with a sly grin. Too holy by off, that old man. Never liked the look of him myself. <laughs> he laughed. No, the Knight of Flowers said, unamused. Sansa Stark was the poisoner. You all forget my sister was drinking from that chalice as well. Sansa Stark was the only person in the hall who had reason to want Marjorie dead, as well as the king. By poisoning the wedding cup, she could hope to kill both of them. And why did she run afterward, unless she was guilty? The boy makes sense. Tyrion might yet be innocent. No one was any closer to finding the girl, however. Perhaps Jamie should look into that himself. For a start, it would be good to know how she had gotten out of the castle. Varys may have a notion or two about that. No one knew the Red Keep better than the eunuch. That could wait, however. Just now, Jamie had more immediate concerns. You say you're the Lord Commander of the King's Guard, his father had said. Go do your duty. These five were not the brothers he would have chosen, but they were the brothers he had. The time had come to take them in hand. Whoever did it, he told them, Joffrey is dead, and the Iron Throne belongs to Tommen now. I mean for him to sit on it until his hair turns white and his teeth fall out, and not from poison. Jamie turned to Sir Boris Blunt. The man had grown stout in recent years, though he was big-boned enough to carry it. Sir Boris, you look like a man who enjoys his food. Henceforth, you'll taste everything Tommen eats or drinks. Sir Osmond Kettleblack laughed aloud, and the Knight of Flowers smiled. But Sir Boris turned a deep beet red. I am no food taster. I am a knight of the King's Guard. Sad to say you are. Cersei should never have stripped the man of his white cloak. But their father had only compounded the shame by restoring it. My sister has told me how readily you yielded my nephew to Tyrion's sellswords. You will find carrots and peas less threatening, I hope. When your sworn brothers are training in the yard with sword and shield, you may train with spoon and trencher. Tommen loves apple cakes. Try not to let any sellswords make off with them. You speak to me thus? You? You should have died before you let Tommen be taken. As you died— "'Protecting, airy, sir!' Sir Boris lurched to his feet and clasped the hilt of his sword. "'I won't. I won't suffer this. You shall be the food taster, it seems to me. What else is a quibble good for?' Jamie smiled. "'I agree. I am as unfit to guard the king as you are. So draw that sword you're fondling, and we shall see how your two hands fare against my one.' 
At the end, one of us will be dead, and the king's guard will be improved. He rose. Or if you prefer, you may return to your duties. Bah! Sir Boris hawked up a gob of green phlegm, spattered at Jamie's feet, and walked out, his sword still in its sheath. The man is craven, and a good thing. Though fat, aging, and never more than ordinary, Sir Boris could still have hacked him into bloody pieces. But Boris does not know that, and neither must the rest. They feared the man I was. The man I am, they'd pity. Jamie seated himself again and turned to Kettleblack. Sir Osmond, I do not know you. I find that curious. I fought in tourneys, melees, and battles throughout the Seven Kingdoms. I know of every hedge knight, free rider, and up-jump squire of any skill who has ever presumed to break a lance in the lists. So how is it that I have never heard of you, Sir Osmond? That I couldn't say, my lord. He had a great wide smile on his face, did Sir Osmond, as if he and Jamie were old comrades in arms playing some jolly little game. I'm a soldier, though, not no tawny knight. Where had you served before my sister found you? Oh, errand there, my lord. I have been to Old Town in the south, and Winterfell in the north. I have been to Lannisport in the west, and King's Landing in the east. But I have never been to here nor there. For want of a finger, Jamie pointed his stump at Sir Osmond's beak of a nose. I will ask once more, where have you served? In the Stepstones, some in the disputed lands. There's always fighting there. I rode with the gallant men. We fought for lice, and some for Tyrosh. You fought for anyone who would pay you. How did you come by your knighthood? Uh, on a battlefield. Who knighted you? Uh, Sir Robert um, Stone. <laughs> He's dead now, my lord. To be sure. Sir Robert Stone might have been some bastard from the Vale, he supposed, selling his sword in the disputed lands. On the other hand, he might be no more than a name Sir Osmond cobbled together from a dead king and a castle wall. What was Cersei thinking when she gave this one a white cloak? At least Kettleblack would likely know how to use a sword and shield. Sellswords were seldom the most honourable of men, but they had to have a certain skill at arms to stay alive. Very well, sir, Jamie said. You may go. The man's grin returned. He left, swaggering. Sir Marin, Jamie smiled at the sour knight with the rust-red hair and the pouches under his eyes. I've heard it said that Joffrey made use of you to chastise Sansa Stark. He turned the white book around one-handed. Here, show me where it is in our vows that we swear to beat women and children. I did as his grace commanded me. We are sworn to obey. Henceforth, you will temper that obedience. My sister is Queen Regent. My father is the King's Hand. I am Lord Commander of the King's Guard. Obey us, none other. Samarin got a stubborn look on his face. Are you telling us not to obey the King? The King is eight. Our first duty is to protect him, which includes protecting him from himself. Use that ugly thing you keep inside your helm. If Tommen wants you to saddle his horse, 
obey him. If he tells you to kill his horse, come to me. I, as you command, my lord. Dismissed. As he left, Jamie turned to Sir Balan's one. Sir Balan, I have watched you tilt many a time, and fought with and against you in melees. I am told you proved your valour a hundred times during the Battle of the Blackwater. The King's Guard is honoured by your presence. The honour is mine, my lord. Sir Balan sounded weary. There is only one question I would put to you. You served us loyally, it's true, but Varys tells me that your brother rode with Renly and then Stannis. Was your lord father chose not to call his banners at all, and remain behind the walls of Stonehelm all through the fighting? My father is an old man, my lord, well past forty. His fighting days are done. And your brother? Donald was wounded in the battle and yielded to Sir Elwood Hart. He was ransomed afterward and pledged his fealty to King Joffrey, as did many other captives. So he did, said Jamie. Even so, Renly, Stannis, Joffrey, Tommen. How did it come to omit Balan Greyjoy and Rob Stark? He might have been the first knight in the realm to swear fealty to all six kings. Sir Balan's unease was plain. Uh, Donald erred, but he is Tommen's man now. You, you have my word. It is not Sir Donald, the constant who concerns me. It's you. Jamie leaned forward. What will you do if brave Sir Donald gives his sword to yet another usurper, and one day comes storming into the throne room? And there you stand all in white, between your king and your blood. What will you do? I am... Um, my lord, that will never happen. It happened to me, Jamie said. Swan wiped his brow with the sleeve of his white tunic. You have no answer? My lord, Sir Balan drew himself up. On my sword, on my honour, on my father's name, I swear, I shall not do as you did. Jamie laughed. Good. Return to your duties, and tell Sir Donald to add a weather vane to his shield. And then he was alone, with a knight of flowers. Slim as a sword, lithe and fit, Sir Loras Tyrell wore a snowy linen tunic and white wool breeches, with a gold belt around his waist and a gold rose clasping his fine silk cloak. His hair was a soft brown tumble, and his eyes were brown as well, and bright with insolence. He thinks this is a tawny, and his tilt has just been called. Seventeen, and a knight of the king's guard, said Jamie. You must be proud. Prince Eamon, the dragon knight, was seventeen when he was named. Did you know that? Yes, my lord. And did you know that I was fifteen? That as well, my lord. He smiled. Jamie hated that smile. I was better than you, Solaris. I was bigger, I was stronger, and I was quicker. And now you're older, the boy said. My lord. He had to laugh. This is too absurd. Tyrion would mock me unmercifully if he could hear me now, comparing cocks with this green boy. Older and wiser, sir. You should learn from me. As you learned from Sir Boris and Sir Meryn. 
that arrow hit too close to the mark. I learned from the white bull and Barriston the bold, Jamie snapped. I learned from Sir Arthur Dane, the sword of the morning, who could have slain all five of you with his left hand while he was taking a piss with his right. I learned from Prince Lewin of Dawn, and Sir Oswald Went, and Sir Jonathan Darry. Good men, everyone. Dead men, everyone. He's me, Jamie realized suddenly. I'm speaking to myself, as I was, all cocksure arrogance and empty chivalry. This is what it does to you, to be too good, too young. As in a sword fight, sometimes it is best to try a different stroke. It said you fought magnificently in the battle, almost as well as Lord Renly's ghost beside you. A sworn brother has no secrets from his Lord Commander. Tell me, sir, who was wearing Renly's armour? For a moment, Loras Tyrell looked as though he might refuse, but in the end he remembered his vows. My brother, he said sullenly. Renlier was taller than me and broader in the chest. His armour was too loose on me, but it suited Garland well. Was the masquerade your notion or his? Lord Littlefinger suggested it. He said it would frighten Stannis's ignorant men-at-arms. And so it did. And some knights and lordlings, too. Well, you gave the singers something to make rhymes about. I suppose that's not to be despised. What did you do with Renly? I buried him with mine own hands, in a place he showed me once when I was a squire at Storm's End. No one shall ever find him there to disturb his rest. He looked at Jamie defiantly. I will defend King Tommen with all my strength, I swear it. I will give my life for his if need be. But I will never betray Renly, by word or deed. He was the king that should have been. He was the best of them. The best dressed, perhaps, Jamie thought, but for once he did not say it. The arrogance had gone out of Sir Loras the moment he began to speak of Renly. He answered truly, he is proud and reckless, and full of piss, but he is not false, not yet. As you say, one more thing, and you may return to your duties. Yes, my lord. I still have Brian of Tarth in a tower cell. The boy's mouth hardened. A black cell would be better. You're certain that's what she deserves? She deserves death. I told Renly that a woman had no place in the Rainbow Guard. She won the melee with a trick. I seem to recall another knight who was fond of tricks. He once rode a mare in heat against a foe mounted on a bad-tempered stallion. What sort of trickery did Brian use? Sir Loras flushed. She leapt. Oh, it makes no matter. She won. I grant her that. His grace put a rainbow cloak about her shoulders, and she killed him. Or let him die. A large difference there. The difference between my crime and the shame of Burris Blunt. She had sworn to protect him. Sir Emon Kai, Sir Robar Royce, Sir Parman Crane, they'd sworn as well. How could anyone have hurt him, with her inside his tent and the others just outside? Unless they were part of it. There were five of you at the wedding feast, 
Jamie pointed out. How could Joffrey die, unless you were part of it? Solaris drew himself up stiffly. There was nothing we could have done. The wench says the same. She grieves for Renly, as you do. I promise you, I never grieve for Ares. Brain's ugly and pighead stubborn, but she lacks the wits to be a liar, and she is loyal past the point of sense. She swore an oath to bring me to King's Landing, and here I sit. This hand I lost. Well, that was my doing as much as hers. Considering all she did to protect me, I have no doubt that she would have fought for Renly, had there been a foe to fight. But a shadow? Jamie shook his head. Draw your sword, Solaris. Show me how you'd fight a shadow. I should like to see that. Solaris made no move to rise. She fled, he said. She and Catelyn Stark, they left him in his blood and ran. Why would they, if it was not their work? He stared at the table. Renly gave me the van. Otherwise it would have been me helping him don his armor. He often entrusted that task to me. We had, we had prayed together that night. I left him with her. Sir Parman and Sir Eamon were guarding the tent, and Sir Robar Royce was there as well. Sir Eamon swore Brian had, although, yes, Jamie prompted, sensing a doubt. The gorget was cut through, one clean stroke, through a steel gorget. Renly's armour was the best, the finest steel. How could she do that? I tried myself, and it was not possible. She is freakish strong for a woman, but even the mountain would have needed a heavy axe. And why armour him, and then cut his throat? He gave Jamie a confused look. If not her, though, how could it be a shadow? Ask her. Jamie came to a decision. Go to a cell. Ask your questions, and hear her answers. If you are still convinced that she murdered Lord Renly, I will see that she answers for it. The choice will be yours. Accuse her, or release her. All I ask is that you judge her fairly on your honour as a knight. Sir Laura stood. I shall, on my honour. We are done, then. The younger man started for the door, but there he turned back. Renly thought... She was absurd, a woman dressed in man's mail, pretending to be a knight. If he'd ever seen her in pink satin and moorish lace, he would not have complained. I asked him why he kept it close, if he thought her so grotesque. He said that all his other knights wanted things of him, castles or honours or riches, but all that Brian wanted was to die for him. When I saw him all bloody, with her fled and the three of them unharmed, if she's innocent, then Robar and Eamon— He could not seem to say the words. Jamie had not stopped to consider that aspect of it. I would have done the same, sir. The lie came easy, but Sir Laura seemed grateful for it. When he was gone, the Lord Commander sat alone in the White Room, wondering. The Knight of Flowers had been so mad with grief for Renly 
that he had cut down two of his own sworn brothers, but it had never occurred to Jamie to do the same with the five who had failed Joffrey. He was my son, my secret son. What am I if I do not lift the hand I have left to avenge mine own blood and seed? He ought to kill Sir Boris at least, just to be rid of him. He looked at his stump and grimaced. I must do something about that. If the late Sir Jaslyn Bywater could wear an iron hand, he should have a gold one. Cersei might like that, a golden hand to stroke her golden hair and hold her hard against me. His hand could wait, though. There were other things to tend to first. There were other debts to pay. <laughs>